Hello, everyone, and welcome to Between the Sheets, episode number 328. I'm your host, Chris Zellner, joined as always by my host, David Bix and Span and Bix. It's been a few shows, but yes, it's time to go back to the 2000s, early 2000s, that is. Always a uh, fun time to talk about because the shows are always longer, but uh, it's stuff that we have mainly better memories of. So this will be the first of two weeks, in the, at least two weeks in a row. Of the 2000s. Yes, because uh, next week we have William Lanham's pick for 2001, the week of Survivor Series with the end of the Invasion storyline. Yes, yes, yes. So we'll have that next week, but we also have a Survivor Series this week to talk about too, but we'll talk about that later in the show. Now, let me introduce our guest this week, uh, someone who I've done a lot of podcasts with, although none lately since I don't watch current wrestling anymore. But uh, I was glad to talk to him and uh, well, only watch certain things at times, but uh, always glad to talk to him. It's been way too long since we talked. Joined by the Oracle of WWE, Devin Hales. Devin, welcome back. Hey, guys, how you doing? Uh, yeah, right. I'm uh, I'm excited to be back on uh, going back to uh, fifth grade for me. Uh, which I'm sure <laughs> you guys are uh, going to have a stroke when you hear that. But fifth grade. Yes, yeah. I was 24. <laughs> and I was a month away from turning 19. There you go. <laughs> wow, it's crazy. Hard to believe it's been 18 years, man, since 2003. Jesus Christ. Yeah, that's that's crazy. Now, see, now I'm 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 almost 29 here in about 3 weeks, so uh it's it's weird. It's it's very strange. Yes, it is. I'm telling you. But uh, yeah, this was not a Patreon request. So this is a show I was trying to find a week to do. And a lot of the older years we kind of have done or kind of doesn't fit timeline wise. And then I was like, well, let's look at 2003. And I was like, well, this works. So um ended up being quite the show as we are going to do the week that was November the 10th through the 16th of 2003. And we'll begin with NWA Total Nonstop Action. Why would you do that, though? Start with what, TNA. Begin- Why do we even need to talk about TNA? Come on. We got eight, we got eight pages of TNA to talk about. <laughs> oh, boy. How much of it is Brian Alvarez TV recaps? Uh, some. As well, we begin with... Excuse me. Well, there, yeah, this, you're right. This is the weekly pay-per-view era. So let's go to Brian Alvarez's figure four weekly and the November 12th pay-per-view, which opened with a... Graphic for Mad Mikey, the death of Mike Lockwood. He was Mad Mikey in TNA. Uh, Brian said for the 5 million people or so that watched Raw SmackDown and therefore were unaware that he passed away. We'll have more on that later in the show. Yes, although I completely forgot that WWE acknowledged his death on TV. That, that especially in that era, is very unlike them to acknowledge. They didn't. They didn't. Then what the hell is Brian talking about? Read the sentence. Oh, sorry, I misread it. <laughs> yeah, they 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 uh they definitely didn't announce it on television because my uncle had to tell me uh, because he found out you know via the internet and we had like no clue because I was mainly a WWE viewer. Of course, weekly we would get the TNA shows probably once a month at that time, and yeah, that was that was not on that that did not air on Raw or SmackDown. Okay. Yeah, that's I'm it. So it, used to we have more on that later. 
Yeah, I'm so used to being reading Brian as sarcastic that I read it the wrong way. Yeah. All right, the opening segment included never before seen clips of a very bloody Jim Mitchell vowing to take out Raven someday. This was shot at their match last week and was quite gruesome. Scott Hudson interviewed Jimmy Hart outside, who was standing by a limo and wearing a Y t shirt. <laughs> I guess he was uh he was a year ahead of Jada Kiss and uh asking why in uh, in a song. He said Jarrett shot the wrestling world last week by announcing that Luger was going to debut. Lex Luger, that is. He sure did. Jimmy said he was one step ahead and unveiled AJ Styles. AJ was upset that Jarrett said he could compete at his level. He said maybe Luger and Steen could compete at his level. But he's right about Luger for sure. And um, just for additional clarity on that Luger line, not only are we, what, about six months removed from Elizabeth's death? Yeah. But a few months before that, I believe it was, he worked a WWE tour where he had a huge GH gut, could barely move, and if I remember right, was also sweating constantly. Yes, we covered that on the show, played that match. Him and staying. Yeah, so he's just physically not in a good place on top of everything else. Yeah. All right, Ron Killings won a 10-man gauntlet match. Basically, they took all the teams who wanted the tag title shot, put them in a Royal Rumble. The last two guys would have to wrestle each other, and the winner's team would then get a title shot. To make things fair, Disco and David Young were also involved, and the gimmick was that if either of them won... Simon Diamond and Johnny Swinger wouldn't have to give anyone a shot. This is a good story, and logically you would think about a role would therefore come down to either Disco or David Young versus someone else. Unfortunately, whoever booked this didn't seem to care much about logic because that's not what happened. <laughs> B.E. Jizzle and Chris Harris started. I presume that's uh, Brian Gerard James. Yes. Uh, Sonny Siaki was in next, but was immediately dumped. Sucks to be him. This made Trinity very upset. Brian was also very upset because his elimination resulted in Trinity leaving. Uh, Disco and David Young were the next two in, followed by CM Punk and James Storm. America's Most Wanted tossed out Disco. And OG Ekmo, the future of MAGA, came in wearing a Michael Lockwood t-shirt. He tossed out Punk. Julio De Niro was in next. Ekmo tossed out David Young. Beat Jizzle and Harrison made each other. Truth got in next. He and ECMO tossed out Julio. The good guys all tossed out ECMO. So it came down to James Storm and Ron Killings. Storm hit the eight-second ride, but Young came back out to stretch the referee. Disco then waffled Storm with a chair. Uh, Ron the Truth Killings in the front suplex for the pin. Yes, Storm did not kick out. So the three live crew gets a tag title shot next week. TNA, everybody. Uh, <laughs> and I believe the whole David Young... Glenn Gilberti, Simon and Swinger thing is that they are all part of Sports Entertainment Extreme. That's right. S-E-X. What is a tag is, is What is more of a Russo thing? S-E-X or TNA? <laughs> well, I mean, somebody, Ultraman Robin already beat him up for F-U-C-K, so he wasn't able to do that. But uh, Devin... What a tag team. Disco and David Young, huh? <laughs> uh, yeah. Like, I, I, I remember this group, and I I honestly preferred the Diamonds in the Rough that was formed, like, maybe, what, like a year later? Um, 
that was that was a team that I preferred more. But uh, I remember this group pretty well. Um, Sports Entertainment Extreme was like the basically collective groan in my uncle's living room because he was <laughs> the one who would order the uh, you know uh, TNA shows every every once in a while. So this this group was not was not my favorite by any means. Uh, I, I like David Young as a wrestler. Um, in fact, I actually got to see him around this period. I think it might've been February of 04, uh, at the, at, at the local, um, indie place I would go to in, uh, East Ridge, Tennessee. Uh, it was, it was he versus, or, uh, he, he and, uh, Sonny Siaki and Raven, uh, I think Johnny Swinger was also at this show. Um, but it was it was uh, Sonny Salki versus David Young, and of course at that time, I was 11 years old and, and didn't see anybody that polished work live very often. So that was like one of my favorite live live wrestling matches as a kid was 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 that match. And of course both those guys were in this battle royal, and for some reason TNA never figured out how to just have a regular fucking battle royal. They just decided to have uh, battle royals with all sorts of dumb stipulations that made no sense, <laughs> and they were always the most confusing, botched pieces of shit you will ever see. Uh, this this match makes no sense whatsoever. Um, <laughs> but I do agree with Brian on one thing, and that Trinity was very good looking. So uh, yeah, <laughs> yes, that that is the I guess the drawback to uh, that early elimination of Siaki. Yeah. Um, did either of you see the Trinity rematerialized uh, in the last few days? No. She did an interview no, uh, with, I think, Two Man Power Trip of Wrestling, where she talked about how when she went to WWE, that there are a bunch of hostile people. Like, I think it was like one of those wouldn't let her dress in the locker room thing, and just were being like uh, hostile. No, but li- not for any actual slight or anything, just because, she, like, she w- had come from TNA or something. And she even said, TNA was more professional. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I, I totally forgot about that run that she had. She was, what, uh, Tony Mamaluke's valet for a little bit? Is, is that right? Something was, like was, that. Was she, was she with, yeah, yeah, and then she, Yes, uh-huh. and then and then she stuck around for the infamous uh, balls Mahoney led uh, poker strip poker whatever. Oh yeah, episode a, cl- a classic moment. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> All right. You so said that was who Kelly Kelly Trinity Maria. Anyone else? Um, I can't remember. But anyway, I don't think Layla or uh, Brooke were around yet. No, not yet. No. All right. So Scott Hudson interviewed Don Callis next. Wow. Those are two people who are polar opposites. (laughs) He said Abyss was part of the family now. And you know what that means, Brian said. Today interviewed Jeff Jarrett. Well, briefly, Jarrett booted him out of the ring again, demanded Don West come in and earn a paycheck for once. Oh, Don earns his paycheck. Jarrett wanted to know when Hulk Hogan was going to be showing up at the Nashville Fairgrounds. It seems so funny to write that. Brian said he went on and on about Hogan saying he was not going to be ignored. And if Hogan did come to the fair, he is going to find Hogan. Brian suspects Mr. Jarrett will be going on a journey soon. It's funny because every time his interest video plays with the footage of the map, 
Brian's buddy Craig always remarks that Jared's on his way to Mount Doom. <laughs> and by the way, Jared, for those of you who want to hear Jeff's side of the whole failed Hogan program thing, the episode of it on his podcast is excellent. There you go. Um, so Jared then got to talk about tonight's tag team extravaganza. When Raven interrupted the promo, he wanted to know why Jarrett was ignoring him. He said he had a destiny to win the NWA title. This all sounds so familiar. Jarrett said Raven couldn't compete at his level, and his big concern should be to find a partner for his match with the Red Shirts later. Just then, the Red Shirts jumped Raven from behind and hit him repeatedly with a foam part of the microphone, which caused Raven to start bleeding profusely. Loud Raven chants. They end up in the ring, and Jarrett laid him out with a stroke on a chair. Ah, yes, the Red Shirt Security Squad. The, a, uh, the heel TNA Yes, a not TNA Yeah, not to be confused with black shirt, sorry. Sorry, I think... This would be... Black. This would be Kevin Northcutt and Ryan Wilson. Your Red Shirt Security team. Uh, what, wait, weren't one of them black shirt? Because wasn't Joey Legend red shirt? No, uh, I think Ryan Wilson and Kevin Northcutt were red shirts. Okay. I don't remember so, who the baby faces were though in the well program. But anyway. It's confusing. Well, of All course right, it Chris, is. This is also the second yeah. time in like two years well, no, three years that Russo was doing like some kind of bullshit evil security guards program too. Should have brought in Jim Dotson to lead his own ver- uh, security squad. It could be bring bring back the, the Jimmy Harris character. Christopher Daniels beat Loki. This is the first of two tournament matches to determine who advanced in a three-way with, with X next week. These guys have worked together so many times that Brian doesn't think it's possible for them to have a bad match. Loud low-key chance at points, but other points seem like what they were doing was going over the heads of these fans. Tracy was shown taking notes in the bleachers and talking on her cell phone, Tracy Brooks. Lots of cool kicks from Loki. Daniels hit last rise with Key kicked out. Finish saw Key go for the Key Crusher. But Daniel slipped out and pinned him with a leg cradle. Good match. Both guys shook hands after the match. As Key was leaving, X ran down and killed poor Daniels with his package pile driver. The angle that was that instead of helping, Key just stood on the ramp and washed on. Well, there you go. Uh, CM Punk and Julio backstage made it clear that they both hoped Raven would pick them as the ministry partner. And of course, we should explain that X is a masked uh, Pierre Carvalet. Yes. In the shape of his life. <laughs> yeah. He is jacked. Yeah. Yep. Short run, though. Yes. And you know what? I don't think they should have had him be as dominant as he was, because I think it defeats the whole point of the it's not about weight limits, it's about no limits thing. But I liked them having a legit heavyweight who could do all the X Division stuff come in and be champion. You know what I mean? Like, that idea was good. That he was running through everyone to the degree he did was the issue. Yeah. San, Sanjay Dutt beat Chad Collier. Dutt did the lowest springboard high cross in the history of wrestling. Collier's one of those Malenko Densmore types is really good, but looks so plain. The chance of him ever being pushed hard anywhere are pretty slim. Ironically, he was trained by Dean Malenko. He stole Brian's heart by applying a stump puller. Later, he tried the Texas Cloverleaf, but Duck got the ropes. Duck made a comeback, but Collier cut him off over the Cloverleaf again. This time, Duck rolled up for the pit. 
pretty good. So X comes out after that and kills Sanjay Dutt with a press slam on the ramp. By the way, this sets up Daniels versus Dutt versus X next week for the winner. Winner getting Michael Shane and the next title shot, presumably the week after. Oh, yes, Michael Shane, X Division champion. <laughs> Devin, can you imagine what Michael Shane would be like today? I mean, on a social media world, the people, how they would react to him. Uh, some would, you know, ironically pretend that he was good. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and 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 others would 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 ironically pretend that he was terrible when he was just kind of like somewhere in between. So I hated Michael Shane when I was a kid. Like I thought he was awful. Like I, I thought he was boring. Like I, I I don't know. I mean I was only ten or eleven, so maybe I just didn't. Maybe he didn't do enough cool moves. That that probably had something to do with it. Um, he was not my favorite like at all. Uh, I've actually gone back and watched some of his earlier stuff in Ring of Honor and and a few of his earlier TNA matches, and I have a little bit more of a, of a uh, appreciation for him. But in today's world, I think he would be very divisive and and someone who would be like all across the scale in terms of whether he was liked or or uh, disliked. It's a fa- I mean, for folks who don't know. It's because of his relation to Shawn Michaels. That's true, yeah. Although Shawn apparently never knew him until he showed up at the school. Yeah. But Um, still, he's kin to Shawn Michaels, so you're expecting Shawn Michaels. Yeah, I mean, he was good, you know, and good timing, you know, like smooth worker, but... He was not what he was hyped up to be, but he also had a backlash that was much greater than he deserved. Yeah. I mean, if he had just been just some guy, I think it would have been totally different. Yes. He, he seemed to lose some of the stink when he went to start using his real name, Matt Bentley. Matt, yeah, when he was Matt Bentley. Yeah, people forget that. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. Now, the last time we had the Michael Shane discussion on this show... I think we decided that the best comparison was MJF, because at the time, people were still not entirely sold on him in the ring. I don't think that's the case anymore. So who would be the best current comparison? That's 99 are. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's... <laughs> That's that's uh that's that's disrespectful well, to Michael Shane. Well, uh, well, okay. I mean, uh, Nanny's Nanny's. Well, here's the thing. Experience-wise, she's been around way longer than Michael Shane. Well, Nia Jax. Okay. Okay. Nia Jax without the included racism and misogyny. You mean? <laughs> well, I mean, just the fact that the connect game. You know, I mean, that's the thing. Nia was so connected. Uh, you know, that's where the, the thing is. The I, don't think, I don't think that was all of it, though. I think it unfairly raised people's expectations. But I don't think that was the whole thing. Um, I don't think that's a terrible comparison, though. I was trying to think of who else. And then, like, yeah, every, everyone else I'm thinking of, though, is a like is a veteran. Like, you know, like it, people are divisive about, like, Harry Smith. But he also has a lot more experience. Well, I don't think about Harry Smith anymore. Other than no. his whatever he believes politically. All right. Um, 
So Eric Watts and Goldie did the interrogation. This was such a waste of Brian's life. <laughs> yes, Eric Watts and Goldie Locks uh, were together here on, and I think off camera as well. So I don't know how long that lasted. Uh, Scott Huston tried to interview Lex Luger. He failed. Jeff Jarrett popped his out of the door instead and said, neither of them want to talk to nosy wrestling journalists. Oh, <laughs> Brian said. <laughs> There's a Abyss joke in be- here about how Jeff seems to like Wade better than Dave, but I don't know what it is. <laughs> Abyss beat Don Harris. This is one of those two big guys hitting each other matches. Abyss went for a choke slam, but Harris kicked him low and hit a choke slam of his own for a pretty dang decent little near fall that woke the folks in attendance up. Don then went to hit the Don. Don then went to hit Don, Callus that is, but turned around to a black hole for the pin. Chris Vaughn hit the ring afterwards. Today, he was just off the disabled list. Suffice to say, he went right back on it again. <laughs> Chris Vaughn, that's a name from the past. Good Lord. Yeah, I forgot he was ever like pushed or anything. I remembered him working explosion and stuff, but that's about it. Yeah. AJ was in next to Brawl with Abyss. He sent him outside with a diamond hood followed by a springboard dropkick. Then Abyss is crazy, crazy edge off of being as big. And Abyss-like as he is. Well, him and AJ definitely uh, had great chemistry together, believe me, folks. While outside, two years earlier. So, yeah. They still had good good chemistry in TNA, too. You know, he was... That, that, by yeah, that uh, lockdown cage match. Yeah. Yeah, yeah lockdown on five cage. So Raven picked the Sandman as his mystery partner. Yes, the Sandman. Brian said, if I were seeing Punk and Julio, I'd be pissed, too. Good guys, good guys cleared the ring early and then drank a bit. Bad guys got the heat on Raven after he took a good bump over the top rope to the outside. Sam made a big comeback, hit the Hurricane Run off the top. Ref was distracted, so Joe E. Legend, who's still employed, Brian guesses, hit the ring and clomped the Sandman with a gimmick. The fatter red shirt, whose pants were not falling down, whichever one that is, got the pin. I, I don't say this to insult him, but because Ryan Wilson was the more jacked one, I'm assuming he means Kevin Northcutt. <laughs> I guess. The gathering, Punk and Julio hit the ring, made it safe for Raven. They got beat up, did it for Eric Watts. Finally, Eric Watts made his old comeback and ran everyone off. Afterwards, he signed a Pee Wee's Funhouse of Oranges <laughs> match for next week with himself, Raven, yeah. and the Sandman versus the Red Sheriffs and Joe Legend. Eric Watts, Raven, and Sandman as a team against the Red Sheriffs and Joe Legend. Holy shit. Uh, is that really it. that much wilder than Eric Watson, Zandig versus Adam Pierce and Tommy Rogers? <laughs> so, so the one thing, the one thing about Kevin Northcutt is I used to collect football cards. So yes. I always would think of Dennis Northcutt, the old wide receiver for the Browns. Yes, yes. When I was like, I was like Kevin Northcutt. Like I, I would always like, I'd, I'd be watching like you know the Browns versus somebody on TV or whatever, and, and I'd be like, that's Kevin Northcutt. And then I realized I'd call him the wrestler instead of the. And one's black, one's white. <laughs> that too. Yes, yes, that that is true. Yeah. All right, Sting and AJ beat Lex Luger and Jeff Jarrett. Luger was so jacked still, despite looking significantly older than the last time we saw him. Don Callis got a promo for the match saying that AJ had no business being in the same ring with Lex Luger and Jeff Jarrett. Luger took the bike and said he agreed that AC Styles had no right being in there. Okay, now do we think that's an intentional line to get across the idea that he's cocky? 
and still and aloof, or do you think this is Luger not actually knowing his name? I think it's Luger being being a character, yes. Okay. <laughs> being a so character. <laughs> the idea of this match was apparently to give AJ the rub of getting a win over Lex Luger. This would have been great if anyone in wrestling these days had fucking clue one had to give a guy a rub. Their brilliant idea was to have AJ take a beating for so long that it finally looked like he didn't belong in to be in the same ring with Jarrett and Luger. Then, if that wasn't bad enough, he pinned Luger after Sting hit him three times in the abdomen with a baseball bat. Wait, there's more. Not only did Luger not sell these three bad shots, but he also kicked out the instant Styles pinned him to make it look like a fluke. Yes, TNA. He did a wonderful job getting AJ Styles over. Promise he's a problem is over now, as Billy Kidman was following his epic view of Hulk Hogan during the dying days of WCW. God, this is bad. AJ went to give Jarrett the Styles clash afterwards, but Abyss hit the ring and gave him the black hole. Didn't I see that a little earlier? Jarrett then took the mic and said he was ready for Hogan now. He got Raven instead. Security finally the ring to separate him. The show was okay until the rage-inducing main event debacle. Oh, yes, Devin. The age-old wrestling uh, deal where we're going to give somebody a rub. We're going to you know, give them a big win over an established name, and then it's some type of bullshit flash cradle pin that doesn't mean shit. Got to love it. Yeah. Uh, I don't remember if we got this one live or not, but I, but I did – I, I did rewatch this match. It's only like seven minutes long or something. And boy, is it terrible. I mean, Luger can't really do anything anymore. Um, and it really is just AJ, like, making everybody else look good in the match. Um, shock. Yeah, 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 shock. That's basically what he did for 10 years. Um, and it's just this whole period, man. Like, I just remember... They did it for years. They did it on the weeklies, and then they and then they still like continued to do it in future video packages, where they would show Jared attacking Hogan in Japan and blooding him. And I swear I saw that video seven hundred times over the course of like five years in TNA. And this was after Hogan was like already like back in WWE feuding with Shawn mm-hmm. Michaels and Randy Orton and shit. Oh yeah, and cool. they still continued to show that video over and over and over again. Um, Wouldn't you? <laughs> if you were Jeff. <laughs> That's fair. Um, so one thing about Luger, I actually saw him a few years after this at a Adrenaline Rush wrestling show, which was a uh, indie promotion that ran in Cleveland, Tennessee, at the National Guard Armory there, and. Lex did not look well. Like I, I remember him like he, he came out to like clear the ring after the main event or something. And of course he did the whole deal where he took his shirt off and flexed. And I'm going to be perfectly blunt here. It was grotesque. It did not look, it, it, it wasn't no, you know, total package, sexy Lexi shit, man. It was not, it would, it was not healthy looking. Um, it was all like distended was, growth hormone abdomen and stuff. Yes, it was. It was. It was not. It was not a pleasant sight. Um, and like the people cheered, but had kind of like that awkward, like they don't really know, like this is kind of weird, but like it's cool because it's like Luger type, of, you know, reaction. And 
He's 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 one of these all time legends that I saw during during the two thousands at, at at a at a yeah Southern Indie show that just did not look well. The same the same went for Jake Roberts who I saw Jake at the same place in the same venue probably in in and around the same year. This is probably oh five or oh six maybe early oh seven. Um, obviously Jake was not well either. Um, yeah this this so. But this match was not good. Um, AJ doing his typical thing where he has to make everybody else look good. Um, not not a good piece of business at all. No. Well, let's talk about Luger. The return of Lex Luger appeared to have been a flop in just about every way possible. We're a Dave now. Uh, except one. The building in Nashville legitimately turned people away with a sellout of 1,300 fans. No word on pay versus paper. There was a dead crowd, bad match, and execution led to the exact opposite conclusion that was desired, which is AJ going over Luger to show he's the real deal. The observer's response to the show was terrible in volume as far as the show itself went with four thumbs up, 23 down, and 12 in the middle, which usually correlates to a low buy rate. Every person who responded, listen, Daniels and Loki is the best match with 39. Worse was Luger, Jarrett against Sting and AJ, 21. Raven and Sam versus Norcutt and Wilson with 11. The response was barely half the previous week. And that's on a show that included both Sting as well as the first U.S. match of Luger since early 2001. <laughs> Crowd was dead all night, and it was night day there to the Sting the previous week. That's because Luger was there. The storyline aspect was a disaster as well, as the entire show was built around the idea of Jared and Luger saying that Styles was in their league and not good enough. And that just could have made sense had it played out right, even though they just told their loyal weekly audience that the biggest star the company has made since it started isn't a real star, and that the washed-up guys from the past were. It also told people that winning the NWA title and holding it for several months also doesn't make you a star in wrestling. Still, it was the heels saying it, so if he proved himself, it would have worked. The match died because Luger, now 45, and looking to be about 280 to 285, wouldn't bump and couldn't move. Worse, if the idea was to prove the heels were wrong, this match sure didn't do it. Style slowed most of the match, set up Sting. He got virtually no offense in on Luger at all, never got his own comeback. And then for the finish, Luger had Styles in the rack, and Sting ran from the ref, and boy, did that look bad. Hit Luger three times in the gut with a baseball bat, and Styles got three in 10:35. One of those fake wins, like Billy Kidman, uh, where veterans say he put a guy over, knowing the tricks well enough to know that the public only saw it as the guy who won, wasn't really even in his league. And the winner gains nothing from it, and the loser still perceived as the bigger star. Okay. TNA, 2003, referee badly out of position. I'm assuming this is Slick Mark Johnson. Devin, you watched it. Was it Slick? Uh, I think it was Slick. Hold on. Let me, let me, let me pull the video back up. <laughs> but, but, I mean, it, it's just, it's, yeah, I mean, this is the trademark veteran game. That they would do to keep themselves strong when they wanted, they said they would put somebody over and then they feel like actually putting somebody over. And yeah, it's always great in wrestling when you, you know, get your established guys talking about how the young up and coming guy who's been getting pushed hard on television isn't in their league. Yeah, that's oh. also that's that's not the type of thing you're really supposed to cut on a promo unless you're about to get your come up clearly. Like, uh, just bad. And also interesting to read in particular in 2021, 
where this pattern we keep seeing on AEW TV a lot of time is guys being able to get over and losing a lot more than we've seen in American wrestling in a long time. You know, like, did had Dante Martin ever won a match, like, on TNT until a couple weeks ago? Um, that's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a really good question. Um, he, I don't think he had, that's, I, I don't think he had, no. Until the I, 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 yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah. I think you're right. Cause mostly he was winning, you know, obviously the YouTube matches, which goes to show you that school wash matches are important. And, but there's, that's, 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 that's a whole other topic, but yeah, I mean, I, I think you're right. I, I think that was his first, first win. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There you go. It you looks can't... like, it looks like Rudy. Uh, no, it, it looks like, um, um, Andrew Thomas was a ref, Bix. Oh, well, that well, Andrew Thomas, uh, known for being a heel referee in, in the wild side, so okay. probably. Well, I, believe, I believe that's who it is, yeah. Well, he maybe let faces go over here. Jeff G. Bailey maybe paid him off for big business or something like that, so there you go. And Andrew Thomas, right. now, he, wor- he works in AEW in some form now, right? I think so. I don't know what his actual job is, but I, I remember from, uh, you know, uh, Jeff Jeff G. Bailey. You know, mentioning that he worked that he hooked him up with tickets and stuff. So, well, let's go to the torch now. Lex Luger didn't do himself any favors with his peers, and he barely socialized in the locker room before the pay per view. He arrived around four or five o'clock, rather than the standard early afternoon arrival time asked of the other wrestlers. He spent the vast majority of his time backstage in Jeff Jarrett's private office slash dressing room. He said hello to a few veteran wrestlers, but didn't express any excitement about being there. He also made a quick exit after the show. He should have walked around that locker room and thanked every one of the wrestlers for their welcoming him to the show, says one TNA wrestler. It was his privilege to walk right into a promotion we poured our hearts and souls into and get a main event payoff right away, no matter what his history is. Yet instead, he acted all cool and above it all. Says another wrestler, he wasn't a dick. He was decent, but he should have socialized more. I hate when people are here and not playing for the love of the game in a locker room full of wrestlers who are here because they have a passion for this. Even the veterans right here love what they're doing and say what you will about Hulk Hogan, but at least he loves the game and has a passion for it. Lex doesn't. There's already heat on Sting because there isn't a belief that he'll ever do for a T- any TNA wrestler what Ric Flair did for him in 1988. Flair made him, says one wrestler. Let's see if he even tries to make anyone here that same way. Well, that whoever that is had to eat a lot of crow. Yeah. And we'll talk about Luger in a second, because there's more. The use of Luger and Sting has damaged morale within TNA in one respect. It took money out of pocket of some wrestlers. They could track the wrestlers are guaranteed only 26 days a year, but they're told they almost should be used more than that. The decision on who to bring in each week depends on the budget, and Luger and Sting ate up enough of the budget that TNA cut back on several talents who otherwise would have been brought in. The slap of the face to us, said one TNA wrestler. Why aspire to be a main eventer? If a has-been who can't work, it can just walk in here and main event. Kid Cash has been very vocal behind the scenes about being left off last week's show. Cash is among the wrestlers who's accusing management of not booking some of the regular acts so that money could go to, to Sting and Lex Luger. <laughs> I mean, Bix, I understand where these guys are coming from. These are the weekly guys, and they're being screwed to bring in these older names to pop the help try to pop business. Yes, I I 
find it weird that there seems to be the skeptic the skepticism 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 that Sting is there not there to work because I've never heard anything even well, in the beginning of his TNA run that suggested that he gave off that vibe. Well, um, there was fear that it would be like that though. There was that fear. But he's remember this it's is not wrong. this is not big money spike contract Sting. This is Sting coming in because he feels like he owes it to Jerry Jarrett for starting his career. Yeah, and that but, was known at the time. That was not a secret. It's just, it's just the perception. And also, he's he's one of his best friends, like Slugger. Sure. So all it's all that perception that these guys are all the same. Yes. Now, I think within the next year or two, people would realize that. Uh, Real Estate Steve was here for real, but I'm guessing it's the Luger Association rubbing off on him more than anything else. Oh, absolutely. And Devin, I mean, you can see where these, like I said, you can see where these guys are pissed off. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's 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 very, you know, TNA in a lot of ways was basically WCW reborn in terms of having a lot of these older guys come in and and and, you know, get pushed and get all that big money. Um, or, you know, whatever big money TNA was giving, uh, <laughs> and, you know, in, in a lot of ways it was actually worse because it was the same guys who were getting pushed in WCW who were coming in the TNA 10, you know, five, 10 years later, and then getting pushed above even younger stars. So, you know, there, I, I can totally see why there was some animosity and, and, and anger and, all those, all those words that you can use to describe people who are pissed off. Yeah, if only WCW lived as long as Impact has. Good God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> My goodness. Impact will be turned twenty next year, folks. Think about that. If it makes it that. Also, shout out to Dax Harwood for tweeting what all of us would agree with that WCW should have won. Yes. It never, it never would have happened. I no. mean, it, it was, a, it was a fait accompli. <laughs> It was a fait accompli, just that simple. Yes, yes, where someone who probably worked for at least 15 years as a spy for our federal government uh, sabotaged it. That's not a joke, by the way. Well, like I said, WCW would have never, never lived because they were owned by, the, you know, who they owned them. So it just never would have worked. All right, the bad crowd access caused a lot of talk about running weekly at the fairgrounds. When the idea of this promotion started, they were at first going to run tapings all over the southeast. At the time, Dave said it wouldn't work. They needed to run an 800-seat building so they would uh, paper the pack every week because it's almost impossible to get people to buy wrestling tickets these days. Then after the first show in Huntsville died, they decided to run Nashville and pay for the place. It's a 9,000-seat auditorium. It was long before they moved to the fairgrounds as a cost-cutting measure. It worked out well for a while, but they got to get out of there. What was amazing is how many people internally after the show this past week all came to the same conclusion, including Dutch Mantel making the suggestion. At the same time, the costs will rise, and they know how to set this building up. It's like they're going to be able to sell tickets in another city. At least they know Nashville well enough to paper it. I mean, this is... This is the risk you take... When you'd always tape in the same place. I mean, and we saw this once wrestling started moving out of the studios in Continental with Birmingham, uh, UWF with Tulsa, Dallas at the Sportatorium, 
if you got business going, you're going to do okay. But if you have a lull in business, people are going to get tired quick. And you're always in that same town when you could go somewhere else and maybe bring the, bring the show there. And it's a whole new fresh audience and they they will react more than a, a crowd that goes every week does. Devin, where, where do you stand on that? The, the tape in the same city against bouncing around from city to city. I mean, <laughs> there are obviously benefits to taping in the same city. Um, Number one, I think it probably, uh, I would imagine a lot of the talent probably like it, at least in terms of if you're someone who wants to be with your family and sleep in your own bed at night and, and stuff like that. I, I think it's absolutely beneficial. Um, I think it also can create an environment where you have a lot of dedicated fans who are going to come to every show and you're going to have that. Now it's going to be kind of a small niche of fans, but they're going to be super dedicated. I mean, look at look at what happened to you know TNA and 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 the uh, Nashville fans, uh, or you know later on the uh, Orlando fans. Same thing with the NXT fans. Um, you know, and and in some ways, when 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 AEW was running in Daly's place in Jacksonville, you know they they, they gained a you know. You know, pretty much a a uh, dedicated, you know, regular regular attendee. You know, if, if, even if it was only like one or two thousand people, it was it was usually the same people um, most of the time. So, like, out though, it uh, it didn't seem like. No, 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 they didn't, and 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 part of that was I I do think some people probably did travel, and 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 they did you know a good job of of promoting different big events and stuff like for example um blood and guts of course was 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 a huge show and 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 i think they had a lot of people from out of town come to that event so i mean you know they 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 were a little bit different but i i i i think still those that's that's one of the positives is, is is you can kind of grow a steady dedicated fan base even if it's not that big you can kind of you know have those dedicated fans but I I think I think traveling from city to city, you know, the exposure is better. Uh, I would imagine, maybe depending, uh, I guess, on the situation, the wrestlers would probably get paid better traveling um, from well, just, from different places. Well, well so, think about this, okay? I mean, just say you know, they're in Nashville. I mean, that's home base. Sure. I mean, you could you could run Memphis. One yeah. week you could run Chattanooga. One week, I mean, you could go Huntsville. You sure. could go different places. They could have. They could have definitely run it like a territory. You know, just you know, just like uh, you know, Memphis was doing, and, and you know, and, and and going to Louisville and Evansville and all that. Louisville, stuff. Evansville, yeah. yeah. You can you alternate know, it, alternate it out. You know, let, right, right. Let it breathe. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and you're, and you're not too too far, so. I mean, and you're only doing one show a week at this point in time. So it's, right, it's, right. It's something that could have been done better, but I understand why they wanted to do what they did. They, they, you know, the town, you know how to, you know, set it up. I mean, it's like Dallas in the Sportatorium, same type of thing. And um, yeah, I mean, it was what it was. And then of course they eventually moved to Orlando, 
Now, real quick, before I go to you, uh, this is another idea that's been batted around has been to find a new location in Nashville, but in a better part of town with a feeling that a lot of people won't go to the fairgrounds. Dixie Carter's even brought up the idea of building a small arena if a building can't be found. Doing that would make a lot of people breathe easier about it being a long-term commitment. Oh, there it is, Bix. I'm guessing though that Terry Taylor made the suggestion about finding somewhere in a better part of town. Well, this is well. How many? Uh, every this is every wrestling promotion though. Just about yeah. we hear about. I mean, I mean that's just the way it is. Because, I mean, let's be honest. A large percentage of of wrestling fans that go to shows are white. I mean, that's just the way it is. I mean, um, the most infamous one, into my memory, is. Remember when ROH was going to run their first show in Manhattan and it was going to be at an armory in Washington Heights? Yeah. And you had people on the ROH forum freaking out like, oh, God, the last time I went to New York City, there were black people in cars looking at me. And that's not an exaggeration, by the way. That's literally what that guy said. He said he was concerned because the last time he was in New York quote-unquote, black people in cars were looking at him. I mean, that's the, I mean, I mean, that's the way it goes. I mean, that's the thing with center stage. You know, a, a lot of white fans would not go to center stage, you know, as, you know, as WCW was taping there as time went on because of the neighborhood was getting worse and worse than what it was, and that's why they had to basically hire models so they can have white people in the stands that look that look better, quote in the rednecks better, yes. That, that were, but I mean, look better than the rednecks that was in the stands. Yeah. But I mean, we, we we've heard this story, Mid South Coliseum in Memphis, same thing. Um, I mean, well, that, that was that more is, than just the part of town, though. It was and, the part and, of town, and, and, and it was no lights in the parking lot. It was lots of stuff, metal detectors I mean, when those weren't standard at arenas. And this is and this is professional sports as well. I mean, this isn't just wrestling. One of the, I mean, one of the main reasons the Atlanta Braves moved to Cobb County is to placate their white fan base. As a matter of fact, um, the, Turner Field was near the old stadium, and that it's on the connector, which is not you know not good anyway, traffic wise. But then it's over there, and a lot of white fans, a lot of the, a lot of the Braves fans are from North Atlanta or in that area, and or Gwinnett, and they don't want to go downtown for reasons. So when the Braves decided they were going to build a new stadium, they moved it to Cobb County, where it's a much less congested area, so to speak. But it's also not in downtown Atlanta. So there's a lot of that stuff that goes on in all forms of sports and entertainment. So that's just the way it is. But it also only gets mentioned when you're not drawing, too. Yeah, there's that. Well, the Braves are drawing. No, I know. But I'm saying, like, for example, Nassau Coliseum is effectively a stone's throw from a heavily black neighborhood. And we never really heard anything about people saying, oh, we didn't draw, you know, that, uh, well, you didn't have that many bombs there, I guess, over there. But, like, you never heard people throwing that much shade at the Nassau Coliseum's location. Although, 
probably a little harder to do that when right on the other side of it is two colleges. Um, but still, like it, it's always that though. It's like it, if if they're, you're they're, you're drawing decently consistently, you never hear it. Well, of course, because you don't have really a main reason to complain. But anyway, Mike today did mention it being the first special legal report of death of Elizabeth. It had been a very controversial topic before the show as to whether or not that would be mentioned. Dave felt it had to be because of not doing so would be running away from the obvious. So, yeah, there's that, too. The other thing is how the, now the regulars dislike the idea of Jeremy Borash and the others who, are, who cheerlead the taking of the signs. And they all know Jeff's in charge, pushing himself, are just too familiar to everyone. It's becoming like center stage in Atlanta became. <laughs> oh, yes. And the Loki Daniels match was very good and would have been excellent in another setting. It didn't matter what they did. The people didn't care. At first, people thought they all came to see Luger and Sting. But once they did the ring intros, they weren't in that match either. The only big part was a hot tag for Sting and a champ for AJ that Borash actually got going. And Don West tried to pick up on saying that in the match with Sting, they were chanting AJ. That's another thing, Devin. I mean, God knows you've been to plenty of live wrestling shows. You get a, a play, You get a crowd in the building. And they come in there and they just want to sit there and not react. You know, it's like, why the fuck did you pay? Why the fuck did you pay money? Why the fuck did you, if you did pay, why the fuck did you pay money to come in here and not, not react? Yeah, I I, I think, I, I, I think that's fair to say. Um, That's, that's the thing that is common in a lot of indie shows but I also think you can sort of kind of blame the show itself and the performers as well. I, I, I think it's, I, I think it's fair to blame both um, because usually, you know, when families and stuff come, it's, you know, they're, they're, they're usually reacting. Um, you know, sometimes you might get somebody like a Dave Meltzer who sits there and, you know, brings a notepad, I guess. I, <laughs> I don't know. Um, but I, I would argue that, that, that sometimes maybe it's just that the show isn't good and that is what causes fans not to react. But I've definitely been to venues and shows over the years where people are just sitting on their hands and somebody's in there working a really strong technical match and three people are responding. It's, 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 it's not, it's it's not a rare occurrence, you know. It it it, it happens. Um, part of me wonders if running the same venue over and over again with the same wrestlers and the same shitty Vince Russo storylines sort of caused people to not react at all, and they just sit there and they just come out of habit, or they come because they like one or two stars, and it's just kind of a habitual thing, and and it's a thing that they do every Wednesday night. And, you know, there's, there's, they're just kind of, they're zombies almost. I mean, there's, 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 there's a lot of reasons for that. Well, also for all we know, the show might've been more papered than the other ones of late too. Sure. Yeah. All right. They continue the X division barrel as X, Carl Willett, who's now using the X name in his Quebec indie dates, destroyed Daniels after he won over Loki and also destroyed Sanjay Dutt. Replacing storyline injured Chris Saban after he beat Jack Collier. 
Collier brought up using the ring name Dr. Chad Collier. He played a doctor in a cane vignette on Raw a few weeks back. Oh, I remember that. But was turned down. November 19th, we'll have uh, the three-way with Daniel Stutt next, which at last thought up was going to go over the challenge Shane on 26, a show that will likely be deaf for buy rates on the night before Thanksgiving, unless there's something extra special on the horizon. Dr. Chad Collier. Oh, I remember that was a whole uh, thing in the old Death Valley Driver chat room when that went down on Raw or, uh, weeks earlier. What a hoot. Dr. Metal Master. <laughs> Good Lord. All right, Dark Matches saw X beat Johnny Storm. CM Punk and Julio De Niro beat Roderick Strong and Caprice Coleman. What a match. When De Niro pinned Coleman. Aaron Watts pinned John Saxon, who still wrestles on the indie scene. Joe Legend pinned Chris Hero. Conan, Ron Killing, and BD James beat Spider Nate Webb, Jared Steele, and Johnny Curtis. When Killings pinned Webb. Nothing like <laughs> explosion <laughs> featuring three live crew versus some guy, Spider Nate Webb and Fandango. <laughs> what a list of people in these dart matches. Good lord. So you got PCO against Johnny Storm, Punk and Julio against Roddy and Caprice. Airwash John Saxon, Joe Legend over Chris Hero. Yes. What what a wow. I remember My Legend favorite. Hero being quite good actually. Well, I'm su- surprised. My <laughs> favorite my favorite part is that Eric Watts has hadn't changed at all. He's still only working the sea shows. <laughs> He's living his gimmick, brother. Wow. All right, well, let's talk about creative. And we go to the torch. Jeff Jarrett and Dutch Mantel have been writing the TNA shows for a few weeks now. The weekly creative meetings are held Thursday mornings in Nashville and are attended by Jeff Jarrett, Dutch Mantel, Jimmy Hart, Glenn Gilberti, Scott DeMore, and Dixie Carter. Jarrett does final say on all booking matters, and Dutch is clearly second in creative power. Gilberti, who used to write the shows on Vince Russo, is still involved, but only as a contributor. DeMore also contributes his ideas, and he's not nearly as involved in the process as he was when Russo and Coberti were writing the shows. I also didn't realize he was there this early. Yeah. Neither did I. (laughs) Russo is said to be unhappy about his demotion from the writing crew, but keeps in regular contact with, you guessed it, Dixie Carter. Ding, 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 ding. The general consensus is that Russo is being retained by TNA as Dixie's fallback plan. But there are some who say Jared asked for Russo to remain on the payroll due to their friendship. The excuse Russo was given being sent home is that Hulk Hogan wouldn't work with the company if he was involved in the creative process. Russo has been telling friends he believes Jarrett would have sent him home anyway because they but had creatively quite often over the last six months or so. Russo feels, and a lot of Russo's agree, that Dutch is nothing more than a yes man for Jeff, whereas Russo would challenge Jeff on their creative differences. Russo has also been telling friends he watched the shows and has been noting what he perceives to be a drop in quality since he and Gilberti stopped writing the show. Of course he did. <laughs> so, yeah, Russo's not, not even around here anymore, Devin, at least at this point in time. Uh, well, I mean, sometimes it's hard to tell, but... Yeah. <laughs> I mean, not, 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 not quite, not, not quite as much tits and ass, uh, you know, on, 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 on this show, um... Doesn't appear to have been quite as many shoot comments or shoot promos. Um, you know, the run-ins are still 
you know, every week. But I think Jeff Jarrett's always like run ins. So I, I, I don't think that's a, uh, uh, you know, big surprise. Yeah. Um, that, that, that Vince Russo TNA slash impact relationship is an interesting one. Um, that's, that's been a roller coaster of a, uh, roller coaster of a ride for sure. Oh, yeah. All right, there's more to this. There's This is Torch. There's concern that Dutch walked in without much knowledge of the history of TNA, and that Jeff is being influenced greatly by Dutch as he books the X Division in a completely different way than it has been done previously. The X Division should be main event sometimes, never worse than third from the top, but now it's being treated like WWE treats their cruiserweight division, and it's demoralizing, said one TNA wrestler. The work coming out of creative meetings and spreading throughout the locker room is that Dutch is down on Christopher Daniels, Jerry Lynn, Simon Diamond, and Johnny Swinger. One story quotes Dutch as saying he believes there's more money in David Young than in Simon and Swinger. Another version of the story is that Dutch simply feels Young as a money player. Uh, the way the story has been interpreted, the quote has been met with laughter from the overwhelming majority of the locker room as no one seems to agree that Young is a money player and it's certainly not as valuable to the company as Simon and Swinger. How about that, Bix? That's uh, interesting. Uh, the Dutch is uh, extremely high on David Young here. Are we supposed to be surprised that Dutch is high on the guy who can fit in the X Division, but also is the most Southern style of the X Division guys? He's the closest worker in that company, basically to a to a territory worker. Yes. Meanwhile, Simon Diamond and Johnny Swinger are you know gimmick guys. Who can do things, but still, they're mainly gimmicks. Well, not at this time. The, the, here, they're just doing their ECW tag team deal. They're not really gimmicked up. Nah. But, I mean, this is what happens when you change when you change bookers and stuff. You, you'll have guys that were the favorites of the old booker. Sometimes they're going to be phased back while the favorites of the new booker get pushed. I mean, that's wrestling. Mm-hmm. So, and Jeff Jarrett surrounded himself with somebody who's a yes man. I mean, is anybody surprised that a guy <laughs> would do that? I mean, it's wrestling. Yeah, like yeah. They, they they talk about the Jerry Lynn situation here in a minute, which which I think is which which I think is an interesting one. All right. Well, let's move on. Terry Taylor was mainly in director's truck during the pay reviews and isn't intricately involved in the booking. <laughs> so there's that. And now Jerry Lynn, arguably one of the two, three most valuable players TNA during his first six to nine months, has not been used for several weeks. At the time, the wrestlers that were asked to sign one-year contracts, with TNA having the rights to roll it over to a second year at their discretion, sources say Lynn was asked to take a 40% pay cut. He wasn't among the top paid wrestlers to begin with. Lynn moved to Nashville to show a commitment to the promotion, but wasn't ready to sign what amounted to be a potential two-year commitment for the amount of money being offered. Well under twenty thousand a year if you're only used for twenty six week minimum the cut rate offered. Lynn spoke to the Between the Roast radio show and said his TNA status in limbo since he was given the runaround by TNA. Lynn said he was especially upset with being portrayed as being the crossroads of his career at age forty. God, that means Jerry Lynn's almost sixty. Jesus. Being pointed out on television. It looks great. Uh Lynn's also told other rest he was upset when his TNA and NWA World Title match against AJ Styles was in the main event, whereas Loki's NBA World Title match against Styles was the main event. Lynn's match, though, was booked the same night as Raven's hair match, whereas there was no match of such magnitude to die Loki got his title shot. 
nevertheless, Lynn expressed on the radio show that he felt being quiet, professional, was getting him nowhere, so he wanted to express his frustration. There are a number of younger wrestlers at TNA who missed working with Lynn because he was the pillar of experience who helped together the X Division and helped teach some of the younger wrestlers about working. Now there's a feeling among many of the X wrestlers that are young, and there's no one there to lead them to the next level as workers. So, yeah. You, you, somebody like Jerry Lynn, especially at that point in time, is so valuable to a, lo- a locker room of young talent. And here's TNA doing what they do and pissing it away. Yeah, I, I thought I thought it was weird at the time. And this kind of gives a little bit of context to that because I remember him just sort of weirdly like kind of falling, you know, to the wayside a little bit. And and he was one of my favorites along with along with uh Daniels, Loki, and Styles. Like, you know, those those four guys were probably my four early favorites in TNA probably through the entire uh, TNA Asylum years. And, like, it, it was it was weird because, you know, he just like it said, he was, you know, sometimes main eventing shows for the exhibition title and, and having, you know, a, a classic feud with AJ. And, and he was having all these cool matches. Like, like, I think early in the year, didn't he have like a, like a, like a TV feud or a match with, with Hooventude or something? Like, I think so. Yeah, he was he was doing all kinds of neat stuff, and like he was one of the main guys I wanted to see every time we ordered the show. And suddenly he was just kind of waning and almost disappeared at times. It was it was it was strange, and this 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 kind of gives you know somewhat of an answer to what was going on at the time. Um, really weird. (laughs) The age thing is weird because I thought you know Jerry Lynn look you know in in great shape in 2003 i mean he was you know he could he could work with the best of anybody um so the age argument i'm a 60 yeah (laughs) oh yeah 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 i know i know i mean he 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 looks like he's probably what he he looks 15 years younger than he actually is today as 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 an agent and and a uh, producer for uh, AEW, like he he, yeah. he he does not look his age at all. That's that's absolutely no. true. He's probably doesn't. He's he's always been a great hand too. I mean, you know, people people don't give him the credit. Uh, you know, I I, th- I think people in our circles might do that, but you don't hear him praised quite enough because he had the, you know, a very critically acclaimed and in a lot of ways you know, very important series with, with Sean Waltman in the early nineties. And then he had a very critically acclaimed and important series, whether you think it was good or bad with RVD and ECW. And then he had a very important critically acclaimed series with AJ Styles. Uh, and, you know, to a lesser degree, Loki and their kind of, you know, round Robin feud in, in, in the first year of TNA. I mean, he's, he, he was, he was critical to all three of those companies, you know, or, you know, those, those two big companies. And then of course, to the, to the independents. I mean, he, he's not somebody who gets the credit he deserves for sure. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. TNA more than just made any run, I think, because oh, yeah. he's the, he's the glue to the early TNA shows. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. He was, he was the veteran. He was, he was help. I mean, he was helping a lot of these guys work, better i mean because you know a lot of these x division wrestlers all they do how to fucking do is hit their spots you know uh, you know other than aj and 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 maybe daniels you know uh, uh 
Oh, well, I, I guess low key too. you know, kind of the four guys I brought up originally. Um, but, you know, Jerry Lynn was a veteran of those four and, and he, and he was able to have, you know, help he guys like Chris Saban and, 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 and yes, exactly. Michael Shane, all these other guys, you know, a, a strong idea of, of how to work a good cruiserweight style or just, you know, just a good match in general. It wasn't just, Hey, let's hit our spots and, and, and get out of here. He was able to put the match together, call the match, help, you know, help, help them in, in, in so many ways for sure. Picture your thoughts. I don't know if there's really that much to add at this point, but yeah, they don't seem to be appreciating him enough. No, absolutely not. Well, Jimmy Hart isn't rubbing anybody the wrong way behind the scenes. Jimmy's Jimmy, says one wrestler. There's no heat on him. Hart's money man, Murad Muhammad, is about to focus more his attention on the wrestling project now that Roy Jones Jr.'s fight with Antonio Tarver's behind them. Holy shit. There continues to be plenty of speculation that uh, Jimmy and Murad Muhammad will join forces with NWTNA if Muhammad can secure a television time slot for the proposed wrestling project. Okay. Murad Muhammad. When I saw this, I was like, oh my God, I completely forgot that he was trying to get involved in wrestling. Murad Muhammad um, at Eminem Sports. He was a boxing promoter. He was the uh, actually the first African-American to have a boxing promoter's license in New Jersey, 1970s. Um, he promoted the famous prison shows. With James Scott, who was a ranked fighter who was serving time in prison, and they would have fights at prison. He would still fight in the jail, and it was broadcast on NBC and HBO. Was this promoted by Kick-Ass Wrestling? No. But no, James (laughs) Scott. Yeah, go ahead. ahead. Is that the same fighter that that, that, uh, inspired the um, Undisputed movie with Wesley Snaps and Bing Rames? Uh, or is that that different I I don't know if that's I don't know if that was just like I don't think I think that was I don't think there was any inspiration now okay 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 but but yeah but yeah James Scott yeah James Scott was in prison he fought Eddie uh, Gregory who became Eddie Mustafa Muhammad later on and that that was on there and also he had the first heavyweight championship fight in New Jersey in 50 years when Larry Holmes uh, fought Scott Frank he had the highest audience share ever for network boxing event on NBC, which aired in primetime picks. They get a 49 share for Larry Holmes versus Marvis Frazier in 83. A 49 share in primetime. And um, he bounced around. I mean, he promoted Tyson for a little bit. He uh, promoted Vander Holyfield a little bit. He was involved with Manny Pacquiao in recent years. Um, in fact, Manny Pacquiao sued him. But um, yeah, Muhammad Muhammad was around forever. He, he got his start. He was a security guy for Muhammad Ali, and uh, that's how he got started. But he, he also was famous for mainly famous for uh, promoting Razor Ruddick in the early nineties during the Mike Tyson Razor Ruddick stuff. But yeah, so somehow Muhammad Muhammad and Jimmy Hart got hooked up here, and uh, they were going to do a, a, a wrestling promotion, and um, it just fell flat. It's very, very odd, very odd story. But yeah, they were going to work with TNA and there's that. So interesting little note there. 
All right, Dave says the company has a meeting scheduled with WGN in Chicago, but they went read much into that. XWF had a meeting with WGN. What came out of it was that WGN was willing to put them on for something like sixty grand a week. <laughs> now, as we learned uh, with the ECW, though, even though this was smaller numbers, you don't have to pay the whole time. You just kind of convince them that you will eventually. <laughs> because if you do the math based on the reported weekly you know, cost, they didn't pay America One or MSG for like the last year and a half of ECW's existence. Yeah, but they're going to eventually want their money. Well, Paul figured out a way out of that. Well, Paul's Paul. But, uh, <laughs> boy, wrestling, fan, wrestling promotion sure love wanting to get on WGN, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and the, and the, uh, I, see, I'm I'm young as as I've mentioned early on this show. Uh, when I think of WGN, I think of uh, WWE superstars and <laughs> oh from goodness. 2009 to 2000. Yeah, because so, yeah, you 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 were you know basically not around for WCW right, Pro right. Chicago. Right, right. So yeah, I mean that that would have been the wrestling on WGN for a while, but. Uh, Good lord! Yeah, they, they, all these rust promotions were trying to go WGN. It's something funny. Yeah, I'd love to know how much Ryan Barkin paid for the All In pre-show. That was wrestling on WGN. Well, uh, well, let's not forget uh, wrestling with death. <laughs> they got on WGN, which was a weirdly good show. It was a terrible show. Yeah. Which was still in the air. I remember the one thing uh, that the reviews really pointed out was just. How respectful the scenes of like the funeral and like embalming process and stuff were. Yeah, yeah, it was a good show. All right, uh, Elis Skipper. The reason why he hasn't been mentioned is because he never signed a contract. He had people that he let tell him there was interest, although he hasn't been signed yet, but did get a recent tryout. He knew signing one year contract with a second year option could ice him from going to WWE for two years, so he decided not to sign. And TNA decided to get using him. Look, he also didn't sign a contract, but it's being used when he has a schedule break for Japan. He made clear, much as agreeing to TNA, that Japan's his top priority right now. Considering he's earning far more in Japan than he could in TNA, that makes sense. Uh, yes, that's understandable for Loki. Either Skipper, boy, you fucked up. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Good lord. I mean. Take the TNA offer. I mean, even if he went to WWE, I mean, really, what would he have done? This is him seeing that they've already brought Jimmy Yang back and thinking they'll do the same for him. Yep. yep. That's the only thing I can think of. And, and Well, <laughs> yeah. And Jimmy Yang uh, is back at WWE. It's almost 20 years later. Well, it wasn't that technically a tryout for him as a producer is is he signed i would say he's probably pretty much there yeah. and did you see that uh, wait a minute no, wait, 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 no he was signed pd williams oh, was, was a tryout well oh, pd okay. williams was a tryout i think molly holly's still a tryout i'm not sure well they're i guess they're basically there i think I they're all I'll... about to be signed yes as producers yeah yes D'Lo Brown's push is decline because he's taking Red Gold Japan tours has become an issue. Oh, you gotta love these promotions like TNA. They only use these guys once a week, but 
they get pissed off. These guys take their Japan tours. <laughs> God forbid they take they take these tours to actually make them a shitload of money, considering what they get paid in TNA. God, whatever. Dave has thoughts on Jerry Lynn. Jerry Lynn has not been in the building in recent weeks, nor has the program with Doc House and the Retro has been talked about. Changing the bookers. After the exhibition battle roll on November 5th went long, they had a meeting on November 12th and told wrestlers there would be a $50 fine for going long, either in the ring or in interviews. <laughs> Imagine if they had a fine in WWE when that happened. Triple H would have got, uh, yeah, he would have incurred a lot of fines in the early 2000s, Devin. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Those evolution promos that would go to 25 minutes. <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll be talking about that eventually. We sure will. Uh, after all this stuff last week about a name for Tracy Brookshaw, the day, they ended up giving her a name this week, simply Tracy. Wow. They could have saved a whole lot of brainstorming that could have been used for something else if that's all they were going to do. She was out there scouting X-Men. She set up Michael Shane being added to the franchise group. And then she becomes Tracy Brooks. So there's that. They seem to be teasing a three-life crew. America's most wanted Bayface tag team for you. The show from Gauntlet Rumble we talked about and talked about what happened there. And then later three-life crew interview, America's most water came out the challenge. What's well, natural rivalry, Devin, to have the guys that's in the cowboy hats and the beer drinking rednecks feud with uh, the uh, <laughs> the white guy who wants to be black, the black guy, and the uh, the Cuban. <laughs> <laughs> the the main the main three live uh, uh crew thing i remember was was the four live crew stuff and 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 then and then when they split that's that's th- that was in what like oh four oh five yeah that's 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 the main thing i remember about them that that long ridiculous storyline <laughs> only natural nashville to have that type of view Raven and Sam informed the tag team to face Northcutt Wilson, which turned next six minutes with Joe Lynch on one side while on the other for next week. And Jim Mitchell was showing a clip of Revenge on Raven, so he'll be back fairly soon. So there you go. Total nonstop action. Well, let's go international now, and uh, Devin will be back with us after uh, halftime to talk the indie scene, but me and Bix are here for the international part, and... Let's start with All Japan Pro Wrestling, and Nosawa is the guy who would be on the role as Parker Guerrera, doing the tag team with La Parca in the uh, Real World Tag League. It's such an embarrassment they should even call it that. It'd be like 10 years from now if WWE was dead, and they did a WrestleMania using nothing but indie guys, and not necessarily even good indie guys. Aww. Is Dave foreshadowing uh, in the indie re- uh, WrestleMania weekend uh, boom here in <laughs> 2003? I don't know if it's that, but uh, he's being a little bit hard on Osawa there. Well, it's the real world tag league. I mean, th- that's something by name that has, you know, a gravitas about it. And you, the, the te- here's the teams that was in it. Uh, you have Satoshi Kojima and Kazayashi, Takabichi Noko and D'Lo Brown, Keiji Muto and Arashi, Toshio Kawada and Nobutaka Araya, Jamal and Just Incredible, Jamal, of course, being Umaga, uh, La Parca and Parker Guerrera. Um, let's see who else is here. Oh, 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 Gigantes and Bull Buchanan. Big sure you want to tell about who Gigantes was? That would be Jerry Tweet, a.k.a. The Wall, brother. Yep. 
And uh, I think that's actually all the teams. Yeah, so, seven teams. Yeah. A little strange there. but One by one by Kojima and Hayashi beating uh, Jamal and Justin Credible. It, now, remember, the real world tag league always used to be the Budokan, the finals. Mm-hmm. This year, mm-hmm. it was in front of 2,600 fans at Miyagi Sports Center. <laughs> oh. It wasn't even the Budokan. So there you go. But and anyway, also for I'll comparison, just... real quick, let the yeah. previous year's lineup going going down from the winners to the last place team: Taiokea and Satoshi Kojima, Tenru and John Tenta, Mudo and Road Warrior Animal, Doc and Rotundo, uh, Emblem Otani and Tanaka, Yoji Anjo and Matsuya Nagai, Mike Awesome and PJ Friedman, and Arashi and Nobutaka Araya. So PJ PJ Friedman. It does. I mean, it is. It does feel like a drop after the even the previous year. It does. Yeah. So you see where days come from. I think even though Mudo has been around for a bit now, I feel like the first few years of post-split tag leagues, they made an effort to make it feel more like all Japan, whereas here now it's becoming more Mudo's thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Exactly. Also, when you think about what he's been through over the years, how nice is it that Arashi, and not Arashi, why did I say Arashi? Nosawa has this nice stable job booking Noah after all the shit he went through with people trying to frame him for smuggling drugs and stuff. Yeah, I mean, that was a big controversy at that time, but uh, he got past it. Yes. So, good for him. The two Parkers will face Mask of Tiger. Satoru Sayama and Mr. Nihon Kamikaze, Jensei Shinzaki, under a mask on the Budokan show. Uh, that happened. Yes. So there you go. Hmm. And Keiji Minosuke Kojima said to have both secured roles in a James Bond movie that'll be filmed next year because the director of a Japanese movie that both they both starred in will be released next month, and the uh, he was impressed with them. I don't know if this happens. I'm pulling up. Kojima's. It did not. It did not. It did not. Oh, that's terrible. Unless they had extra roles, but no. Yes, uh, at least as far as acting roles in movies, uh, he has one in Maze in 2006, Kojima does. But that's about it. Yeah. All right, let's go to Pro Wrestling Noah. No New Japan during our week. Kita Kabashi has complained there's nobody to set up to challenge him for the GAC title. Biggest challenger is Junakiyama, and they're trying to save that one for around April when they do a Tokyo Dome show. The other big challenge would be Mr. Masawa and Shiro Takayama. With Masawa, it would go against what they said in March about it being their final singles match, and well, this is the United States, and Dave really doesn't think they'll ever do another one unless they are desperate, way desperate. Takayama has political implications because he still holds the NWF title and can't do a job for Kabashi right now. Ah, yes, the Uh, return of the NWF title. Oh, yeah. So Kabashi, basically, uh, his next challenger um, is uh, Takuma Sano. He is the next guy to challenge for the title. Then Takeshi Rikio. And then Takayama in April of 2004. I forgot that Rikio had a shot before the title win. Oh, yeah. Kabashi had 13 defenses of the title after he won it. Mm -hmm. Uh on March 1st. 
This is how the people he defended the title against before he lost it to Rikio. Um, before he lost the belt, excuse me. Um, Timon Honda, Masiro Chono, Bison Smith, Yuji Nagata, Yoshinari Ogawa, Takuma Sano, Takeshi Rikio, Yoshiro Takayama, Ju Nakayama, Akira Tawe, Akatoshi Saito, The Gladiator, Mike Awesome, and Minoru Suzuki. And then Rikio became the champion. So, there you go. Well, didn't someone just uh, tweet gifts of the uh, the Suzuki match the other day? And it's possible. January 8th, 2005. So, almost 17 years ago. Wow. All right, the final tour of the year opened up on November 14th at Cork and Hall. And now sell 2,100 fans. A Steel debuting the opener. And Doug Williams made his second tour in the semifinal. Losing to Yoshinari Gawa. Main event saw Takeshi Rikimaru. Yes, Takeshi Morishima, Takeshi Rikio, and Namichi Marfuji beating Daisuke Akeda, Takashi Segura, and Mohamed Yone when Rikio pinned Yone in 25.05 after a powerbomb. All right, here's the results. Michael Mata Sane Steele over Jun Izumita and Kishikawabata. Akatoshi, Akatoshi Saito over Masao Inoue. Akira Tawe and Takuma Sano over Scorpio and Richard Slinger. Kitakabashi, Shiyoshikakuchi, and Mitsuomoto over Junakiyama, Yoshinobu Kanamaru, and Makoto Hashi. Timon Honda and Kenta over Mitsuharu Masao and Kotaro Suzuki. Yoshinari Gao over Doug Williams. And then Takeshi Rikimaru over Akeda, Yone, and Segura. So a good looking Noah card there. Noah Corkin show tour opener is always fun, and uh, mainly good shows. Yeah, and in general in this era, Noah, I guess I should say Masawa, was really good about how to lay out a card. Notice Kabashi and Akiyama are middle of the card. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, they, they let uh, they let some of the guys uh, who are not the constant main eventers main event, you yes. know? Now, I'm not sure I ever saw any of Ace's Noah stuff. How was he over there? He was good. He fit in well. I mean, it's kind of like watching Modest and Morgan and how they and how they were. Okay. I guess Similar. we should call him uh, WWE coach uh, Chris Guy now, though. Yes. Yes. That is him. All right. Zero one. We have a show at the Shinomaki Citizen Gym on November 14th. They had their Lion King Cup. This is their Young Lion deal. Uh, first match, Taichi Shikari. Yes, Taichi. Over Fuyuki Takahashi. And then Yoshida Sasaki over Akashi Tiger in, in uh, tournament matches. Then we have Jun Kasai over Fugo Fugo Yumeji. Kitaro Kanamura and Tetsuya Kuroda over Tengu Kaiser and one of Bix's favorites, Kurogi Waguda. Naoya Hoshikawa over Vansak Acid. Naoya Ogawa and Kasisa Fuji over Koei Sato and Hirotaka Yokoi, also known as Rowdy, all caps. And then our main event, Emblems, Shinjiro Tani and Masato Tanaka over Shinya Shimano and Tatsito Takeiwa. That sounds violent. Nice. nice show. Nice show here. Yeah, very solid uh, zero one show on paper here. Yeah. Always a fun promotion to watch in this era. Absolutely. I feel like around this time frame, the promotions where you most wanted to watch every show top to bottom were Noah and Zero One. Because they were the best at like filling out the card and making the undercard interesting, I think. Well, the thing, too, is among the majors, 
which is all Japan, New Japan, No and Zero One, all four had different vibes. Yes. That's the thing. You could watch all four promotions, and sometimes there'd be ta- the same talent on some of the shows, but the shows had different vibes, different, you know, mentalities, all kinds of different things going on. And it's, it was fun. Fun era for Japanese wrestling, as we always say. Now let's go to the Indies. And we start with Battle Arts. They ran a show at Cork and Hall on November 11th in front of 700 fans for Yuki Shikawa's 11th anniversary show. Not good, except 700 fans. We have a dart match, which was a Smack Girl offer match. Mask of S over Chiaki Kawabata by majority decision. Big she wanted to uh, talk about Smack Girl for people that may not know what that promotion was. Smack Girl was, I believe, the first all-women's MMA promotion. There you go. So we have an actual MMA fight, presumably, as the dark match of the biggest battle art show of the year, and that MMA fight has a masked wrestler in it. Yeah, well, why not? <laughs> Deep had all those the masked luchadors on there, so why not? Yeah, no, but I mean that it's a MMA fight on a wrestling show. Although battle arts had had scattered MMA fights on their cards over the years. Yeah. Because what didn't uh, the Quentin Jackson uh, Rampage match in Battle Arts was a shoot, right? Uh, I thought so. Which, by the way, has there, like ever been, has there ever been a wrestling promotion that was more obviously propped up by Yakuza than Battle Arts? I think you say that every time I talk about Battle Arts. On the surface, I mean, though, because their guys are so obviously up front and center and it does like how does it even make sense that battle arts was spending money to get rampage right as he's getting popular you know yeah well anyway all right so we have a U style offer match kazuka kubo over hajime hajime moriyama kinotu kengo mashimo and kunio tojima from k jojo beat daisuke sakamoto and sambo ishii also a k dojo guy Katsumi Yasuda over Ryuji Walter, Kitaro Katamura over Manobahara, and Yuki Shikawa and Takamichinoku over Chocoball Mukai and Tetsuhiro Kuroda. Yes, Chocoball Mukai, who uh, he was bringing the hard style in, in every way. Ryuji Walter, that's a name I haven't heard of in many years. Yeah. You remember, you remember Ryuji Walter, Bix? Not that much. I remember the name. All right, Ryuji Walters, Walter Walters, whatever you want to call him, he was a Japanese-born wrestler, but he grew up in the United States and was a Malenko trainee. Really? Yeah, he was a Malenko guy. I didn't know but, that. Yeah, so that's why, I mean, he had the Japanese first name, but he took an American last name. And so. presumably Carl Greco is who got him into battle. Oh, well, yeah. yes, 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 yes. All right, DDT, Club Adam. At them. Up and at them. In Shibuya, in front of 324 fans on November 12th. We have Hero, exclamation mark all caps, over Sayamura Hashi. Then Shokodino, OK Revolution, and Masa Takanashi over Super Uchu Power, Shuji Shikawa, and Yoshiro Sakai. We have Tanamasaku Toba over Issei Fujisawa. Poison Sawada Juli, all caps, and Takashi Sasaki over Sensho Takagi and Yusuke Unakuma. And in a three-way, Tomohiko Hashimoto beat all-caps Kudo and all-caps Mikami in your main event. 
It's an early DDT show. A lot of these kind of run together, but looks fun. Yes, always. We got Pro Wrestling Kakegi, Bix. They had a show at Zet Fukuoka on the room 15 front of 400 fans. Only two results listed. U period, M period, A period, all caps, over Tyra, all caps. And I believe that's now Yuki Tyra, right? Yes. And Cosmo Asterisk Soldier <laughs> and Diablo over Azteca and all caps K-A-Z-E-K's. Wouldn't it be Kaze? So Kaze, K's, whatever. So there's your uh, Kakegi uh, show. It's not like what's now the most legendary uh, piece of entrance music in Japanese wrestling history has the word Kaze in it or anything. Yeah. <laughs> what a promotion. All right, Michinoku Pro. We have two shows from them to talk about. November 11th at Kumamoto Hungam Hall in front of 1411. We have Kazu- Kazuya Yuasa over Osamu Inoue. Kichiro Yukimura over Nobutaka Maripi. Masao Arihara and Riki Fuji went to a double countout. Subo Genjin and Asosan, all caps, over Seiji Ikeda and Kesen Majiro. Then our main event, Great Sasuke, Jensei Shinsaki, and Hayate, all caps, over, yes, Far East Connections, Dick Togo, Ikoto Hidaka, and Macho Pump. Yeah. And, and Hayate we, here is uh, Adeki Nishida, right? Adeki Nishida, correct. And then Oita Perfectual Gym on the 12th, in front of 850 fans. We have Yuasa over Samu Inoue, Yukimura over Maribe, Subo over Asosan, Riki Fuji over Macho Pump. Togo, Mari, Masari Har, and Nakoto Hidaka, Far East Connection, over Hayate, Seiji Kata, Kesu Nimajiro. And then our main event, a great Sasuke and Yoshiaki Fujiwara over Jin Seishizaki and Kazuya Yuasa. We're doing double duty. Hmm. So there you go. a shift in the feel of Mishinoku Pro around this time. Yes. Yeah, a lot more new guys, guys who I guess came through their whatever dojo they had. Yeah, a lot, a lot of gimmicks. That too. A lot of gimmicks going on here. Osaka Pro. The, uh, number 15 for Osaka Festival Game for a 269. We have Goa over Pero. Takaka Fuke over Basara Matoba. Ebison. Or as you may know, Ms. Kikitaro. And Yutaka Fukuda over Super Delphin and Kachimba Kamen. Big Boss Magma and Dio Qualt over Subasa and Black Buffalo. Infinity by DQ. And then Gamma and Miracle Man over Universal Global members, members, but they can kid in Tiger's Mask. So in a soccer pro show, all the uh, guys on the, the roster there, yes. your normal crew. So there's that. Toremon. They ran Kobe Chicken George on November 10th for the 400 fans. We got a dart match on this show, an exhibition match. Susumu Yokozuka beat Masogu Shimizu in your... Uh, Dark match, exhibition match. Then you have Dragon Kid and Kenichiro Arai over Susumu and Geki Horiguchi in your opener. Masaki Mochizuki over Anthony W. Mori. Sua over Second Doi. Toro Washi. Brother Yashi and Shogo Takagi of Itakan over Shima, Don Fuji, and Taru of Crazy Max. Then we have Milano Collection 18 and Yoshino over Magnum Tokyo and Super Shisa. And then a British Commonwealth Junior Waitata match is all caps June. Beat Dotti Shuji, Shuji Kondo, in 1109 to win the championship. Yes, Kobe Chicken George was a venue that Toriyaman ran all the time. They would tape TV there. And one of the most intimate venues for wrestling you'll ever see <laughs> anywhere. I mean, the fans are right there. 
at the rink. Not a lot of room. No, they were packed into that building. Like sardines. Great but, atmosphere, uh, though, for TV. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. That was their, that was like their home, their mm-hmm. home building. And, uh, yeah, very fun TV was all taped there all the yes. time. And as always, I need to correct you. It's not second doy. It's second, second, second doy, doy, doy. Yes. Because he did the baseball gimmick, so they did the whole, you know, today, 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 I, I, I stand, you know, et cetera. Yes. All right, Dream Stage Entertainment. Sadaharu Tanagawa held a press conference on November 16th for an update on the Bob Sap Akabono match, which is officially in the Goya Dome. They have not said the rules yet, but Dave thinks it's going to be MMA and not K1 because Akabono talked about not yet having a favorite hold. And a big surprise, Tanigawa said there would be New Japan wrestlers fighting on the show. What makes that weird is Antonio Noki, who's a lean stockholder and public face of New Japan, is running his own show that night. TBSI, which has New Japan wrestlers all in the contract, may be unhappy that NTV, Noki's show, and TBS, K1, man New Japan guys. He said the show would have eight matches. Kazuyoshi Ishii was at the press conference in the back. This, again, shocked a lot of people. Not that he's involved, still involved with K-1, because him being in the Tyson angle showed that, but that he would make it so public. Weekly Friday Magazine said that right after the original Akabona press conference, he went to a Chinese restaurant to meet with Ishii. Oh, yes. All the controversies of all the different bosses of the uh, MMA promotion in Japan in the uh, early 2000s. Always a treat. Yeah. All the illegal activities. That was going on. Illegal activities. That's how you would describe what was going on with Dream Stage if you were cutting a promo on them in Stampede Wrestling. <laughs> All right, so Bob Sapp beat Akabono by TKO in 258 in the first round. Uh, Shinsuke Nakamura was on that show and got knocked, knocked out by Alexei Indyshoff in the third round. Um, he was the only... Well, no, Masuki Naruse was on that show. Uh, Jan Nortshi, uh he beat and beat not Jan Norshi with a Renekka choke. That show also had Genki Sudo against Butterbean. Where <laughs> Sudo heel hooked him to take him out. Sylvester Turkey, the Predator. TKO, Mauricio Da Silva in 13 seconds of the first round. Francois Bofa, former World, uh, World Heavyweight Boxing Champion, got beat on that show by Yusuke Fujimoto. Uh, oh, God. Toa, Vix. Remember Toa? Yes. Uh, Francisco, Francisco Filo got him by decision. Uh, Ernesto Hoos, he beat Montana Silva. Remember, oh god, Montana Silva. That's another one. No, that's K1 yep. rules, though. That's not ever meant. Yeah, yeah, K1 rules. So, yeah, what a, what a, and Tom Howard had a spot on that show where he got uh, choked out by Christoph Madeau. We should note real quick, just since you brought that up, that, uh, of all of the wrestlers who cross over into MMA in this era, well, in kickboxing, too, in his case. Sylvester Turkey was the only one who looked like if he was given time, he would be really good at it. Yeah. Like, he did really well, all things considered, that he's still a full-time wrestler and doing all this. Yeah. Well, he's a big guy who was a hell of an amateur wrestler, so there you go. Yeah. Oh, and also, Christoph Medu, we should mention, is uh, George St. Pierre's original mentor. Yes. All right. Oh, yes. It's that time, Bix. It's Joshi time. So let's go to All Japan Women 
Nagoya Sports Center on November 13th for 680 fans. We have Aria, Kamika Mekawa over Drake Morimatsu, Dump Matsumoto and Sasori, all caps, over Keo Nomi and Saki Mamura. And then our main event, Nani Takahashi over Amazing Kong. Awesome Kong. Yes. Uh, it shows you just how close to death this promotion is that dumps unretirement after, what is it, 15, 16 years? Yeah. He's not really picking up business at all. No. Well, there's a lot... It, it's a lot of competition, as we're going to. It uh, is, but keep... I mean, she because because I mean, let's look. I mean, here some of their talents then left to this promotion. We're about no, to but talk I'm about. She is the biggest name that could have come back for many of the glory years, especially yeah. having lived up to the retirement for so long. I and know, it's but... just not making a difference, and especially since he's she's someone who could make could work a style that. You know, she had enough shortcuts, and I don't mean that in a negative way in her original style, that I don't think it's like a, like, I think she, I don't know if I've ever seen any of the return stuff, but like, you would, you would think she'd be able to still be Dump Matsumoto, so. No. A to Z. Yes, they ran Fujimi Culture Hall on number 14. We have Mika Nishino over Yukari Kitao, Yumiko Hota over Bullfight Sora, Rie Tamada and Akino. All caps over Gammy, all caps, and Sarah Del Rey, WB Saramato, Marika Yoshida over Mirai, and then Momo Nakanishi, not with all Japan women anymore, and Leona, not Helmsley, or over Sachi Abe. Yeah, over Sachi Abe and Ai Fujita. Remind me, who was the promoter on A to Z since Rossi Ogawa wasn't involved after Arson closed? A to Z, um, oh god, who was, um. It was one of the wrestlers, right? Uh, what, oh, was it, was it Mikakino? It's ho, 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 uh, at this time, it's, uh, it's Hota. She's the booker or the promoter? She's the owner. Okay. Uh, uh, Rossi was in charge for 2001 to 03. Um, so, yeah. Because, of course, this is Arsian. What a new name. Right. But it's a different corporate structure, and I don't think Rossi was part yeah. of it to Z. No, it's Hota. Hota took over from him. All right, uh, Gaia. They ran Zep Sendai on November 16th. We have Del Masami over Mayumi Ozaki. Karu, all caps, over Ran Yu Carlos Amano and Sakura Hirota over Meiko Satomura and Toshi Yamatsu. Manami Toyota and Linus Asuka over Tanama Kensai and Toshi Yamada. And Chigusa Nagai on Ashikong over Shikayo Nagashima and Ayaka Amada. So Gaia still has, like, the, 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 the most top talent. Yes. Yes, they clearly still have the most loaded roster of the women's promotions. And I need a better understanding of what happened to Gaia as far as going out of business and why they collapsed. Because they had that strong run for a few years, but then they just close a few months after All Japan Women does in 05. It's just the way the business. Yeah. It's just the way the. And it's a shame, Are... too, because, like, I saw someone point this out recently, and they're right, like, Gaia needs to be looked at a bigger deal historically, not just because of its business success and how good the wrestlers that broke in there are, but like, and I gotta think that you gotta put Gaia up there as maybe the most successful, if and if it's not close to it, woman-owned and woman-run pro wrestling promotion, right? Yeah, because that was Jaguza's. 
let's get to the real Joshi now. JWP. They ran uh, they ran the first part of a t- doubleheader at Tokyo Cinema Club on November 16th for 300 fans. We have Hiromi Yagi and Kyo- over Kyoko Kimura, Yukashina over Eric Watanabe, Kaben Bolshoi and Arya over Jaguar Yokota and Yuki Miyazaki, Amazing Kong over Kario Yonayama, and uh, Azumi Hyuga and Tsubatsu Kurakagi over Kyoko Hirayama and Etsuko Meida. They have a pretty but, good roster at this time, although they're obviously using talent from other promotions, too. Such as Neo, oh. who had the, the night the nighttime show in front of 180 fans. Yukashina and Yuka Nakamura over Masai Genki and Nozomi Takasako in 2019. Great. The Bloody over Haruka Matsuo. Etsuko Mida, DJ Nera, and Apple and Yuki over Tani Mouse, Yuki Miyazaki, and Kuro Yonayama in 1627. And then the NWA Pacific Women's title, Neo Singles title, Yoshiko Tamura retained her title over Kyoko in a way in 24-47 picks. Why? Why not? Because it's Neo. Imagine being, I mean, you you could have spent all day in the Tokyo Cinema Club watching these great Joshi shows picks. Well, I could have spent all day in Tokyo Cinema Club watching one very good looking Joshi show and the other, that was a Neo show. Never. Let's go to Canada now, and uh, we begin with IWS. They ran the Scratch Bar, S-K-R-T-C-H, in Laval, Quebec on November 15th. We have the Arsenal, along with the Hardcore Ninjas, the Arsenal being one person, over Sexy Eddie, three X's, Takao, and Kenny the Bastard, Kid Kid Kamikaze, over Dan Paisan. Handicap match, Drew Onyx beat the Latino Kid and Latino Mysterio. Wonder Fred over Beef Wellington. The ass Biff, punch Beef Wellington. Not Biff Wellington. Or Wellington Nightmare, Jr. No, Nightmare Manson a Crazy Crusher over Green Phantom and XS69. And then your main event, El Generico over Kevin Steve. So, so early IWS here. What Very young he- Kevin Steen, too. Yeah, well, and also you can tell it's early because it's all the local guys. There's no outsiders at all, you know? Uh, Generico's 19, and uh, Kevin's 19, too. Wow. Yeah. Main eventing. Yes. Now, what's the best comparison for early IWS? It's like... Let me say, almost like CZW meets Hood Slam meets something a little work right here. I don't know. They just did their own. I mean, they just had their own thing going on. I mean, if you and, compare it to something current-ish. Uh, I mean, it was its own thing, though. It really was. Hmm. I can't really think of anything of a current variety. Because there's so much cross-pollination on the NBC. Yeah. It, I guess it would be like uh, some of like some of these smaller southern promotions that only use... Uh, the regional guys. The regional guys, yeah. Don't, they don't bring in big... Like, you know, basically like my uh, promotion here. They'll, they'll bring... I mean, they'll bring in people from all over the state and stuff like that. People that has, you know, names. But they're not bringing in your major... Indie names. In fact, Russ America now is 
starting to uh, I've noticed on their uh, upcoming shows they're starting to use a, uh, a lot of Nightmare Factory kids. Hmm. So Cody's kids are start, are coming in to get experience, which that's that's great. Yep. Yeah. All right, uh, Metsuka, AAA. David Young and Michael Shane will be starting a TNA invasion of AAA. It's being done not as an invasion angle, but simply talent trading. Triple H running a big show on November 29th at El Toreo. The, the Quattro Caminos knock upon with Heavy Metal, Latin Lover, and Michael Shane teaming with Zorro against Jason the Terrible, Mr. Aguila, Leatherface, and David Young. What? <laughs> the famed Los Misionados de la Muerte kind of popularized uh, trios in late 70s in Mexico. El, Te- El Signo at Tejano Negro Navarro back together against three other ancient stars in El Brazo, Puerto Morgan, and Sangre Chicana. Uh, who took it out and headhunters are in another trios match. So yes, the triple A TNA uh, relationship is starting to get hot and heavy now. So there's that. All right, so let's go to Planeta de la Feria in to the single Hidalgo on November 16th in front, on a TV taping. We have India Blanca and Lula Gonzalez over Miss Janeth and Tiffany. El Signo, Negro Navarro and Tejano won by a DQ over Chessman, Jason the Terrible and Leatherface. Charlie Manson, who was the Guerrero, Mr. Aguila over Electro Shock, Mascara Sagrada, this is Cranio, and Zoro. Chessman ran in and framed Zoro as hitting Electro Shock like a team problems between them uh, as a team. Then we had a steel cage match where Maniaco and Mascarilla Merced Triple A beat Picudo and X Fly, the original Mascarilla Merced, with help from Abismo Negro and Supernetico. And then, speaking of, main event, Mexican national tag titles, La Parca Jr. and Octagon retained over Bismo Negro and Cibernetico when Picudo blew fire in Cibernetico's face because Picudo, of course, is doing the Gene Simmons gimmick. Yes, Los Patos Locos. And he's a fire breather. Of course. So, uh, there's your 2003 AAA there. Fun times. Now, CMLL, Arena Mexico, November 14th, was headlined by Atlantis retaining the Tohoku Junior Heavyweight title. That's Mitch Doku Pro's major singles belt, uh, beating Pedro Aguayo Jr. Both wrestlers counted out in third fall, but Commissioner Felipe Hamli announced that this match must continue and they would not accept a draw. So, the fourth fall, Atlantis scored the pin to retain his title. I don't know what the crowd was, but likely it was huge. It was billed as Atlantis' 20th anniversary, and uh, it was 17,000 fans. And since his gimmick in the early 90s was he, it, when he was the elite of los niños, I know children, all the kids were allowing in for just a, one peso. Virus won the CMLO Super Lightweight title for California New Japan wrestler, which is uh, true to this day, Rocky Romero in what was reported as a great match. Then the other main match was Gigante Silva and Pedoff beat Universal dos Mil, Mascar Año dos Mil, and Apollo Dantes. Oof. Which ended up in post-match challenges. It was announced when it was over that Pedoff would be putting up his hair on December 5th against the Mask Universal this meal, which would be a main event on the year-end show, which by tradition is the second biggest show of the year. All right, full results. Brasil de Oro and Pequeño Olimpico over Fire and Pequeño Venecia. Alan Stone, Felino and Safari over Masawa, Nosawa, Masada, Nosawa, and Zubido. Angel Azteca and Ilde Dismarc, Tino and Mr. Niebla to be Arcanado Muerte, Rebe Cañero and Ultimo Guerrero. Then we have Sylvan Petroff of the Capos, Virus, Silva, Rocky Romero, and Lantis Romero Jr. And yes, that Virus Romero match was a hell of a match. Yes, they had some absolutely tremendous matches together. Yeah, that CML lightweight title was uh, super, super, super lightweight. Light- 
Yes. Yes, even the Super Lightweight title was, was good. Good, good, good. Yes, although we should also note the backstory for this match and the match that CMLL originally wanted to happen to get the belt off of Rocky, shouldn't we? Which I don't yeah. think we've told on here in a while. So, Rocky had not been in Mexico for a while, and someone from the CMLL office called the LA Dojo, saying, hey, we want... Well, actually, wait a second. Or did he have another reign after this, now that I think about it? I don't, I don't think he did, did he? Oh, I don't remember. I'll double-check. But there was a thing... I started questioning it because of the other Black Tiger being there, but basically they they wanted him to drop the bell to New Japan's new Black Tiger, not realizing that was Rocky. Yes. Yeah. Because he couldn't be Black Tiger in uh, CML because that was Silver King. But it didn't matter anyway because he'd have to wrestle himself. Yeah. yeah. And of course he would become Grey Shadow in CML. Yes. Later on. And uh, real quick, okay, do you remember who was in the Cybernetico uh, to set up the first champion? No. So it was Habana Brothers, so I guess Rocky Romero, Ricky Reyes, TJ Perkins, Sangre Azteca, Ricky Marvin, Virus, Volador Jr., Super Commando, Loco Max, Tigre Blanco, Neutro, and Sombra de Plata. Well, there you go. Oh, it was when he it was when he won the title back and then was going to drop it. That's why once Silver King was not in the promotion anymore. Well, he's still here at this point in time because November sixteenth, Rena Coliseo, we have Heke and Bacaro over Astro Boy Benente, Explosivo and Sombra de Plata over Guerrero Futuro and Hoco Negro, Olimpico Pantera and Ringo Mendoza over Loco Max, Sangre Azteca and Veneno. Black Warrior, Mephisto, and Satanico, Paul Dantes, Mascarino, Dosimil, and Violencia, and Black Tiger, Super Silver King, Dr. Bonner Jr., and Tarzan Boy, over Miss Niegla, Negra Casas, and Tenebles Jr. So there's that show. I forget, is Tarzan Boy not part of Guerrero's Del Inferno an- anymore? Uh, at that point in time, I don't... I think he still was. I can't remember the exact split date. But okay. He was around. I mean, he wasn't Toscano yet, so there's that. Right. Every, now was Mascara Magica still with them at that time? No, he's not. He's not. He's not even the promotion really. Anymore. That's right. That's right. That's right. And all, this is also the era where we are not seeing that much of the TV. No. Because they had whatever dispute with Televisa about who was doing the production, and that led to Televisa punishing them by not airing the up-to-date shows in the states. Yeah. IBRG, Rena Capon on November 13th. We have Meteoro over Gran Genio, Carta Bravo Jr. and Sirena de la Muerte over Laguila and Supercan, Paramedico and Zono Duc Smil over Multifaceteco and Starter Boy, Fantasy, Mano Negra and Io de Tejano over Commando Delta, Negro Navarro and Toro Irasan by DQ, and Canet, Scorpio Jr., Tarzan Boy, Noto Guerrero as a team over Blue Damon Jr., Tenebus Jr., and Viano's four and five. Huh. Now, there's no way that's the original Supercon, right? I don't think so. Because he's the one who ended up, was actually guilty and went to prison when the whole, all of the drama with uh, Frey Tormenta's orphanage, right? Yeah. So that has to be someone else. 
Of course, the Tercera here is very much an IWRG special. I'm guessing that Zonic, Dos Mil, Multifacetico, and Starboy had a lot of matches together in the first half of the 2000s. Yeah. All right, Monterey. We have a couple of shows. Uh, Rina Colosseo and Monterey. Galatara and Zulu over Rey Hechicero, this, which is the Hechicero that's working now in Rey Sagittario. La Bestia, Terraista, one and two, over Ben-Hur, not Charlton Heston. Dartman, not Liam Neeson, and Maldito. You know, Apollo Chino, Neon, Putro Jr., they teamed up to beat Corazon de Barrio, Tigre Universitario, and Tanina Jackson Jr. We have Bello David and Rosa Blanca over Bello de Guerrero and Gardenia Azteca in a Relevo Suicidas match, which led to Bello Guerrero beating Gardenia Azteca to take their hair. Then we have this match Ricky Marvin, Virus, and Voto Jr. over. The Habana Pitbulls, Bobby Quantz, Enrique Reyes, and Jorge Romero. Holy shit. <laughs> and there is no Monterey TV at this time, too. So, yes, it's... Lo- well, none that nobody has, so this is lost in the ether. Yeah, Good. and wasn't Bobby Quantz Rocco in Mexico? Um, In Seattle, it was. So, presumably, this is Rocco. Possibly. Monterey didn't, they also, bit... didn't they also mess with, with the Ricky and Rocky's names because of that, too? Because I don't think they were Ricky, Rocky, Rocco, were they? They messed around with a lot of people's names, so I can't well, remember. Well, I mean, just those guys alone. And then we have this main event. Higante Silva, Hakimate, Jerry Estrada, and Montenegro Jr. over Apollo Estrada Jr., Corazon de Barrio, Estrella Dorada Jr., Gotovador, and Spider-Man! Wow. And then we go Gimnasio Nuevo León. I'm, 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 I'm kind of pissed off you didn't sing Gato Valador, though. Well, he, I don't even know if he used that song or not. Felino, that was Felino's song. I would hope I he would he, have. I'm pretty sure he did. I would hope he would have. All right, Gimnasio Nuevo León, the same day. Kronos Jr. and Morbius over Regrero and Remuete. Cosmos and Fletcher Azul over Suicida Azul and Warrior. Peloto Negro and Peloto Suicida over Moro Tres and Super Leopardo. Ana de Espacio and Rayos Tapatillos, one and two, over Deluvius Negros, one and two, and Poncho Tequila. And our main event, Everno, El Dandy, and Mr. Mexico over Io de Lismar, Safari, and Sagrado. That's a match. Yeah. What kind of name is Black Pilot? Um... Especially teaming with Suicide Pilot, who is obviously not the California guy. Yeah. Interesting show. Yes. Tijuana. Ray Mysterio Jr. returned to Auditorial Municipal de Tijuana, the building where he started his career under the name Calibre in 1989 on November 14th. It was more his first match in more than a year, and probably his last or even longer in that building, which featured his uncle's hair versus mass match. So drew an overflow crowd of more than 6,000 fans. After originally being turned down to work the dates as WWE has a basic policy of not allowing us to talent do indie shows due to the injury risk, he somehow convinced them with the fact he wasn't going to do much of anything in the match. He worked with his mask on. Because he last worked in Mexico without his mask on. Because he lost his mask. So he teamed up with La Parca to beat Negro Casas and Nicho El Millonario in a match where he did little. The place was packed with children wearing Ray masks. 
and he was given an award by the local newspaper for the match. He also led the crowd in singing Las Mañitas in honor of it being the 38th birthday of La Parca. Las Mañanitas, excuse me. He didn't mask briefly after the match. Technically, by Mexican bylaws, he shouldn't have been allowed to wear his mask. He lost it in the building many years ago during the height of WCW's insanity. A large percentage of the crowd left at the Rays match ended. It's already 11.30 p.m., and so many kids were there. The main event saw his uncle, Ray Sr., lose his hair in a match against the mask of Dr. Wadda Jr. Ray Jr. was in his uncle's corner. The two found the hell out of each other until the third fall. Then a fan, Ray Mysterio Sr.'s longtime rival, The Kiss, who was supposed to retire, ran in wearing a Wadda mask, hit Ray Sr. over the head with a chair to lead to the pin. Showing it just past midnight. What a spectacle. Yeah, and is so is this the last non-WWF match that he works until 2015? Yes. He did a lot more in those matches than he did here. Well, yeah, because he's not on the contract anymore. Well, and also because of modern medicine. There's that too. And technically, well, no, he didn't lose his mask in this building. Dave, Dave here is forgetting the timeline. It was that he lost the mask to Nash. They had scheduled uh, the match with Psychosis for, I think, the following Friday in Tijuana, hoping that the news wouldn't get out. It did. He had to wrestle without the mask. And then they tried to make it a hair match to salvage it, but the commission wouldn't do it because Ray's hair was too short. So he did not yeah, lose an Apuesta's match in this building. They wanted to, yeah, they were going to suspend uh, Benjamin Mora, the promoter, if if he re- went through with that. Yes. So, yeah. So, yeah, he did not lose his mask at Tijuana. He lost it to Kevin Nash and Scott Hall in Oakland. So there you go. All right, let's go to Puerto Rico. I'd be Puerto Rico. We have a couple shows here. Bayamon, number 15. We're at 2,000 fans. We have Stefano over Estructuro. Chablonski over Eric Alexander. Junior weight title, three-way dance. We have Tommy Diablo winning the belt from Blitz, who was the champion, and Paparazzi. Victor the Bodyguard over Noriega, not Manuel or the rapper. Extreme Rules match slash Venom over Chicano. Then we have Ray Gonzalez over Huracan Castillo. Vampiro over Miguel Perez, that's the Suns, juniors. Craven and Glenboy Shane over Bison Smith and David Flair. Yes, David Flair, not every Puerto Rico. And Enrique Banderas over Bull Buchanan. Then Yako on the 16th, we have Blitz over Tommy Diablo, Noriega over Spectro, Vitor Rodriguez over Blazer, uh, Chechablonski and Paparazzi beat Chicano and Stefano as best referee on Anarchy, Ray Gonzalez over Bull Buchanan, By Smith over Ricky Banderas, Craven and Glenboy Shane over David Flair and Huracan Castillo, and then IWA Hardcore title, Slash Venom beat Vampiro to win the title. Thoughts? Uh, how much longer is David Flair in IWA Puerto Rico? I think very much longer. Hmm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's um, it's mission talent this show. Another competition, WBC on the 15th in Guaynabo, with Enrique Cruz over the Enforcer, Pablo Maquires over Chris Joel, Maniac over Brent Dale, WWC Junior title, Alice Montavo retained over Diabolico, Eddie over La Tigresa, Super Gladiador and Vengaro Barrico over Los Broncos. This is two and three, not one and two, two and three. Puerto Rico heavyweight title, Jose Rivera Jr. defeated Eddie Colon to win the title. Universal heavyweight title, Dominican Boy beat Thunder. 
Lightning over Rico Suave by DQ. And then Bronco number one won a cage match beating Victor Jovica in 2003. Wow. So, yeah, WC is, uh, talent-wise, not up to par, for sure. Yeah, at this time. No, 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 no. But, um, anyway, there's Puerto Rico. All right, so, you know, normally we do halftime. And, um... We're probably not having halftime this week because of how long this show in, is ended up being. Because we'll record this segment last. So if we don't have a halftime, you know, you know the deal. Patreon.com slash tweet and sheets. Um, follow us on Twitter at Chris Zellner, at BT Sheets Pod, at David Bix. And we'll have the plug for next week's Tweet and Sheets at the end of the show. So go check that out. But anyway, uh, We'll just take a, a quick little break here, and we'll be back with Devin after this. The Victoria's Secret Fashion Show, sponsored by Dodge. You can take life as it comes, or you can grab life by the horns. Hey, that thing got a hemi? You're about to find out. Can I have my order, please? Dodge Ram with the legendary Hemi. Loved by those who have one, dreamt about by those who don't. Sweet! Hit it! It's time! It's time! Titanium, one of the sharpest metals known to man. Now available in a somewhat more manageable size. The new Remington Titanium Series, the world's only shaver with the sharpness of titanium-coated trimmer blades for a shave that's incredibly close and comfortable. Remington Titanium, it could just make all other shavers obsolete. From Academy Award-winning director Ron Howard. It's beyond four dark. Comes the most powerfully haunting movie of the year. Man took your daughter's pure evil. On November 26th. You're scaring her. She needs to be scared and so do you. What happened to her? Let's go! They will fight to save their family. Opens everywhere November 26th. Tonight, Alec Baldwin interviews Dave. Was this baby planned? It, to the extent that these things are... Can... <laughs> Plus, soccer phenom Freddie Adu, Cindy Lauper, and... Paris Hilton inspired me to make my own amateur sex tape. No. 
George Clark caught on video tonight. Then it's a supermodel's best friend, Craig Kilborn. CBS Thursday will keep you guessing. This CSI will become a suspect's obsession. I'll talk only for the pretty one. CSI. Then, a New York firefighter charges into a blaze to save lives. I can't just leave him in there! Then he vanishes. I never would have made it out of there for one of us, Scott. Now, the search for a hero is on, and every second counts. Somebody there knows more than what they're saying. All new without a trace after an all-new CSI, CBS Thursday. To stop a jewelry heist, one undercover agent will risk his life. We're going to keep some security. What kind of security? The Handler, all-new CBS Friday. All right, Devin's back with us, and let's go to the U.S. indie scene, and we start with a guy at this time who was the supernova of the indie scene in many ways, Teddy Hart. Teddy Hart pretty much buried himself in Ring of Honor with the, his interview with Get in the Ring, where that was wrote about in the Observer the week before him. Both CM Punk and Steve Carino wrote rebuttals to his claims. The feeling is that when Teddy said he always does the backflips after a match of tribute to Owen Hart, it was an admission that he made up last week's story about having a concussion and not remembering anything. The story about Carino and others refusing to work the shows if Teddy got paid to do them was pure fantasy. Many can't believe his lack of tack and bearing AJ Styles, who has tremendous respect on everyone in the indie scene, is a major player in TNA, so this won't help his chances of being brought back there. Because this is wrestling, there are many who think this is a word for publicity. But the last thing any promotion these days needs to do is work its own talent. What is interesting is that people who know Teddy best are the ones who know for sure that it isn't. There have been suggestions made to Ring of Honor to bring him back and turn it to an angle, but even if it could have been considered, Teddy's pretty much at this point made it that impossible. So, let me take that out too. All right, so, all right, Bix, describe to people what's going on here. What is the backstory to all this? Okay. So, Teddy Hart and his guys had recently debuted in ROH. I want to say it was, he did a singles match, I think, with TJ in September. And then they did the first scramble cage match, which was doing the scramble tags, but in a cage with platforms on top. And I think his team was him and Jack Evans, plus, uh, I think, Maximos and some others were in there. And... There were a few things that were controversial coming out of it. The main one, which is not mentioned here, is... Teddy's, that... debut, Teddy's, de- Teddy's debut was Glory by Honor, September 20th against TJ. Right, that's what I thought. Um, and this is his second match in the promotion at the November Scramble Cage show. Or late October, early November, whatever it was. Um, and the really the big sticking point that's not mentioned here is that twice he did dives off the cage to the floor on guys who had no idea he was coming. Yeah, the show was main event spectacles November 1st in Elizabeth, New Jersey, at the Rexplex. It was back seats against the Carnage Crew, SATs, Hydro and Angel Dust, Special K, and Teddy and Jack. Yeah. Um, uh, Since Mike Johnson and OneWrestle.com report, they went so far as Teddy beat was thrown out of the locker room, bags and all. Yes. For what he did. Go ahead. But yes, that was the that was the biggest sticking point though. The the doing the flips after just compounded everything. You know? It like the, the biggest issue they had was with him being unsafe. But I hate to say this, in fairness to Teddy Hart, 
he's throwing up at ringside after the match. Mm-hmm. I'd be shocked if he didn't have a concussion. So I'm gonna pipe in and say I've never seen this match, but I've 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 seen a lot of these guys wrestle, and that match sounds completely ridiculous and sounds like like the typical like insane scramble that they would do in Ring of Honor in those early years. Like I I can I can just see the dives and 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 like stupid crap that they would do. Um because those those tag teams are always, you know, the the uh, you know, I I'm thinking specifically of like Carnage Crew and like uh uh what, uh, what is it? Ring Crew Express. Special K, yeah, 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 yeah Special guys. K, and 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 like all those guys, like they would always have those openers where it was basically just like people doing absolutely insane shit. So like, <laughs> uh, safety doesn't seem like uh, the operative word for a match like this. And, Ted, and, and, and Teddy, at this point in time, like I said, was an indie supernova, and he was the guy. He he was. The star of the Indies. I mean, yeah, Devi Driver. I mean, all that st- stuff was was big time in the in getting him over. Um, all the crazy shit he did for CCW. I mean, he he was a master self promoter, and I mean, yeah, he was he was the the guy at this point in time on the Indies. And crazy again, it's Teddy. So you don't want to give him credit, but. Long term, coming out of this, he's a massive reason why Jersey All Pro became one of the best drawing indies in the country. Because the feud with Homicide is what brought them into the Railway Rec Center and starting to draw those big houses by indie standards, especially Northeast, you know, work rate indie standards. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Now, that said, let me actually read this, okay? I don't think it was just the get in the ring interview. So I'm finding this on online world of wrestling has some stuff from then aggregating a few of the things he put out an open letter. Okay. And it's not long. So I'm going to read this an open letter from Teddy Hart to all ring of honor staff, talent and fans. I'm writing this letter in response to the situation that took place at Saturday night's ring of honor show and my actions during the tag team's trample. I do want you all to know that I suffered a concussion during the course of the match when I was thrown into the guardrail head first. I just left New Jersey this morning after awaiting medical clearance to fly back to Calgary. I do not have much, if any, recollection of the events that transpired in or out of the ring after getting whipped into the guardrail. Again, I do think he legit had a concussion, but that doesn't sound like the type of spot you would get a concussion on unless he took like a flip bump or something. Um, anyway, that said, I want to make it clear that as a man, I will t- I take 100% responsibility for my action Saturday night and feel horrible that my post-match conduct has taken away from what was a tremendous event. I am human and have made, and I'm sure will continue to make, mistakes in my life. I want to officially apologize to all Ring of Honor staff, talent, and fans. And boy, is it very obvious that T- Teddy did not write this. <laughs> well, poor. <laughs> Although, although that that uh, that second to last sentence was was a fact, uh, I will I I have made and will continue to make mistakes in my life. Yeah. As as, as we're twenty years later, uh, yeah, it seems it seems not much has changed, unfortunately. No. Um, if that was my last match ever in Ring of Honor, I want to thank Rob, Gabe, Doug, and all the tremendous talent in the locker room for giving me the opportunity to perform in front of your great fans. I hope 
that time will heal the wounds and I will have the chance to return to Ring of Honor and personally apologize to anyone who I offended. Either way, I will continue to do what I love, which is wrestle, and I'm sure will make more mistakes in my journey through life. I cannot turn back the clock and change what happened. The best I can do is turn this into a learning experience and better myself in my career. God bless Ted Hart. So yeah, like, he's compounding it by putting this statement that seemingly was not written by him. I don't know if we want to guess if it was TJ or Harry or Jason Rance or whoever, but he puts this out and then he does the get in the ring interview where he starts changing things around and being like, Oh, I always do the backflips after the match as a tribute for how Owen used to do that. Blah, 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 blah. Um, and just some of the comments he made in the interview included calling it one of the best matches in the history of professional wrestling. <laughs> That's what Teddy does. <laughs> and of course he said he did a 30 foot moonsault off the cage, um, which led to, I think the thing everyone remembers most about this, which is the CM Punk blog post on his live journal, which is still up and his response. And his response to Teddy saying that God gave him the ability to do 30-foot moonsaults was, there is no God in the cage wasn't 30 feet. <laughs> <laughs> I've, 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 I've read some of those old punk blog posts. Those are, those are fun reads. You mean like the ones where he's very obviously making up that he confronted a state trooper? Uh, I'm not sure if I've read that one. You don't know that one? So... <laughs> I... <laughs> I, so this is it's the most infamous one these days and you'll understand why in a second according to him he's in a car with alice in danger they get pulled over at a speed trap because i think he and danger were they were roommates at the time when he was living in philly right it was him her and brandy uh Mankiewicz, i believe and punk freaks out especially once the Trooper sees that he's standoffish and asks if there's drugs in the car. And Punk claimed he started shoving his fists in the cop's face and screaming, what do my knuckles say? Because of the drug-free <laughs> tattoos. Which, again, does not sound like a thing that actually happened. Anyway, so what What do my knuckles say has kind of, for people who were following all this at the time, has kind of become a running joke about uh, one Phil Brooks. So anyway. <laughs> um, That's funny. Yeah. So, so yeah, he was also talking about, he had, you know, the thing that he, oh, he said AJ Styles gave him a list of moves not to do in TNA. And he was like, I invented those moves. You know, Punk saying, where do I begin? AJ Styles may not have invented the moves in question, but he's been in TNA doing them for over a year, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You wouldn't go with WWF and do the pedigree. <laughs> I, but again, I do genuinely think he had a concussion. Because I don't know if there's that many explanations for him suddenly vomiting after the match at ringside. Because that doesn't happen much. Um... I just wish that we that we could get the old uh, Tepali driver stuff up. It is, it's not available. Believe me, I've been checking as we've been doing this. You just don't understand. <laughs> well, I mean, how that was back then. Where, where Ted, Teddy was posting on there, 
uh, Jersey Kid, Wes Hatch, and myself leading the Teddy Brigade. I mean, that was Rob Naylor's Teddy Hart. Yeah, that's a shame. I, I I don't know the history of that board shutting down and whatnot, but I remember the summer of 2013, and that was a sad day. Well, the board, the board. I mean, this this the board all went through all these different incarnations, so a lot of the stuff got lost in all those processes. That's the thing, and right? Because I, I, I remember eight years ago. Go ahead. No. Right, yeah, I, I just I just remember like in the summer of 2013 when the last really bad board shutdown happened, and and we were in the midst of the DVVR. Uh, AWA project and all those match reviews were lost. <laughs> yeah, and like year, like at least like five years of, of of board history was kind of vanquished, sadly. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, it's just it's just. Uh. <laughs> yeah, but um, imagine but, the yeah. posts we could recover from the likes of Coach Tony K, T. Lawler, G. Gordon Liddy. I mean, there's a, a, a lot of stuff, but I mean, it, but Teddy was, I mean, the the, Ted, the cult of Teddy was part of that, and uh, yeah, I mean, it's just just it's just a crazy, crazy era of independent wrestling when Teddy was the was the guy. Um, I can't think of anybody who has come close to that in recent years, as far as that type of. Um, I don't know. I mean, anybody like that, just to come on the scene like that and just explode and become this cult phenomenon on the on the scene. I really can't think. I really can't think of anybody. It's crazy. Oh, and real quick, uh, just to read uh, the beginning of what Carino wrote on his website. First, I have to say I'm very shocked and very honored that Teddy, quote unquote, Hart would single me and AJ Styles out in his poor me interview on a radio show. I apologize, but I didn't see what radio show it was. In Teddy's horrible attempt for sympathy, he mentioned that I called him a quote-unquote goof and that I threatened not to come to ROH if he was getting paid. I don't think I ever called him a goof. I think it was more like asshole that I called him. For all of his (laughs) in-ring talent, Teddy may be one of the bigger assholes that I've come across in my almost 10 years in this great sport. <laughs> ah, Steve, the whole back. <laughs> so, yeah. Mm. Wild times. Teddy uh, is suspected working angle with Stampede Wrestling based on his notoriety for being on Warner. has been on a great match to TNA and ROH. His family even hired Dave Penzer, who books TNA Wrestling any days as an agent, and is trying to get Ring of Honor and or TNA to work an angle based on his new reputation. At this point, it's a no-go. And wrestling time seems to heal all wounds, so it's probably inevitable when the heat dies down that one of those groups will try something. <laughs> are we are we talking about Dave Penzer, the ring announcer? Yes, we are talking about Dave. That's Pinsler. incredible from WCW and TNA fame. Yes. So. And well, and main event championship wrestling, of course. <laughs> More on that on <laughs> Patreon.com/slash Between the Sheets, but uh, coming up soon. But wow, yeah, Teddy Hart, and well, we have uh, Brian, a little bit more, yes, yeah, Brian Alvarez uh, to have more on Teddy. Speaking of Teddy, and he's trying to offer a pair of his pants on eBay for this is true, one thousand dollars. <laughs> I remember this. Uh, yep. 
I remember it well. And I can't, I think somebody actually paid the money for it. Wow. I wonder if it's that guy who's at all the New York area indie shows and some of the GCW shows who wears the the Teddy jacket that he bought from Teddy. Oh, it could have been any of those people that were on that WWE uh, deal uh, that had the, the the ring gear crap. Oh, like and GWC. <laughs> yeah, those folks that have a whole lot of uh, money, expendable income to dole out on stuff. Yeah, amazing. All right, um, let's go to the indie results now. Let's go to NECW, Sheldon Goldberg's New England of Wrestling at the Framingham Civic League in Framingham, Massachusetts. Number 14, we have Johnny Idol over Mike Bennett, Drew Starr over Danny Diaz, Mercedes Martinez over Nikki Rocks, Mike Osborne and Steve Bradley over Alex Arion and Antonio Thomas, Zachary Springgate III over Frankie Arion, NECW Tag Titles, Sabotage, DC Dillinger, and Eddie Edwards, retained over Brian Fury and Chris Venom, and a submission match for NECW Heavyweight Title, Maverick Wild over Brutal Bob Evans to retain his title. Boy, does it speak well to the New England indie scene of this time, just how many familiar faces all these years later on this show. Yeah. I was was thinking the same thing, wow. And different incarnations of their life. Is 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 uh is Nikki Rocks Roxy Laveau? Yes. Is, yes. is that the same person? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I thought so. I thought so. But yeah, you get young Mike Bennett and uh, MVP, yeah. right? Antonio Thomas. No. Um, no. Uh, oh, Thomas that... Santel. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. What was what uh, what was MVP's bank? That's right. Banks. He was and yes. and uh, he was he was mainly Florida, right? Yeah. Yes. Okay, yeah, okay, yeah, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, so yeah, we've got got Mike Bennett, Mercedes Martinez, the, well, I guess now, he, we, I guess now he's podcaster Antonio, the promised Thomas again. But, uh, you know, Thomas Santel, uh, Latter-day Steve Bradley, Brian Fury, who has been uh, excommunicated, I guess, but had been a well-regarded trainer before last year. You know, Brutal Bob... Yeah. Pretty, again, speaks very well to the New England indie scene at that time. Mm-hmm. All right, let's go to Lucha Extreme. They, uh, even though they had an article on the show a few days earlier in the New York Post featuring a photo of Shocker and pushing him like he's the Hulk Hogan of Mexico. Lucha Extreme Wrestling, second show on the River 15th in the Amazura Ballroom in Jamaica, the Queens, New York, will injure about 150 fans. Days on films, part of the problem is Lucha and Extreme really don't mix. Which is a family show for the Mexican audience who want authentic product and don't care for seeing other styles. Extreme seems today to be a style that was hot when it first started, but it's run its course, except as an occasional entree on a regular show and not every show. The fans who were there popped big for Shulker, beating Ultimo Guerrero in the main event. Just Incredible was advertised, didn't appear. He was from a $600 off to the first show and was only paid $200. And when he in Japan coming up, he didn't want to work for promoters who he felt screwed him. He was also pulled from the November 22nd 3PW show in Philadelphia where he was the champion, and they're crowning a new champion next week. Promoter Brian Blue Meanie Heffron was mad because he said Justin never called to say he was missing the show or returning phone calls. Just scheduled for the All Japan Tag Tournament starting next week with Jamal, a.k.a. OGX, TNA. Because this is Team WWF era. There's no R-O-N-D yet, right? Correct. Yeah. All right, results of the show. Amazura. Zokri over Short Boy. 
Havoc and Papadon over the Outcast Killers, Diablo Santiago and Omar Tortuga. Supreme over Spider. Then our Shikara uh, offer match, Mr. Zero, Ultra Mantis, and Gran Nakuma over Jigsaw, Rorschach, and Hella Wicked. Vic Grimes over the Grim Reefer. Damian Say Say says on Halloween, Mexico's most worn over Aerial Express, Quicksilver, and Scorpio Sky. Then we have Angel of the Baldies over Scorpio Jr. No, I would think that being that there's the whole semi-XPW revival going on, I'm guessing that is uh, XPW Angel. I mean, it could be. I don't know. I thought it was Angel of the Baldies. Uh, it's New York. That's why I thought that. Yeah. Uh, well, there's other people too on the show. Phoenix Star and Taro, friend of the show, Taro, over American Wild Child and Cloudy, Smoke Dog over Mike Tobin, Boogaloo, Eddie Guapo and Lowrider over K Murder, K Pusha and Chichi Cruz, and then our main event, Shocker over Ultimo Guerrero. Dick, this, what a card this <laughs> is! <laughs> this is the only time that Ultimo Guerrero and All Money is Legal were on the same card. <laughs> Possibly, yes. Yes. Okay, so a lot going on here. So this is their first show, right? Because I think they ran two. Second show. Second show. Okay. Well, second and final show, I think, right? Yes. It's such a weird promotion. I think one of the things that hurt them was that they were the first promotion to run this building. And in a pre, you know smartphones and map apps era a a lot of people weren't necessarily going to go out to a show in jamaica not realizing that it was you know right next to the train station um and also for any of you who have ever seen house of glory shows there or anything boy would 150 fans look empty there that is a big room um I remember, I think it was Pete Stein, I think Ray Duffy went, and you know, apparently it was a really good show, and main event was a hell of a match. And uh, they had they had it in mind to do like a uh, some kind of mass home video release, because they weren't using any commercial music. But there's too many matches, too many fly-ins who won't draw. You know, it's just a weird mix. Um... Also, how often in this era do you get a Chikara offer match without Quack? Yeah, it is different. You know, that, that, that's something you don't see every day. Um, what else do we have here? I don't remember who Smoke Dog was, do you? Was that Smokey Carmichael? I mean, it's possible. Um, trying to think what else is of note on here. Okay, so our 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 XPW fly-ins for sure are Supreme Grimes, um, Angel. If that is that Angel, am I missing anyone? Um, obviously the other California guys were flown in too, but not necessarily yeah. for XPW cred. Yeah. Um. Just uh, too much, and it's not like they promoted their shows well either. Well, no, but uh, yeah, quite the quite the, the deal here in the Lucha Extreme era. All right, let's go to the Cyberspace Wrestling Federation in Wayne, New Jersey, on November fifteenth for eighty-four fans. What a show this is! 
Crazy Ivan over Monster Mac in your opening. Sean Sheridan over Romeo Valentino. Oh. Oh, indeed. Hardcore match. Crowbar over Danny Doring. Balls can anywhere match. Sinister X over Julio De Nero. CSWF tag titles. Rob Beckos and Matt Stryker. Uh, teacher Matt Stryker. Over Dan Barry and Prince Nan are the champions by this qualification. <laughs> then we got a number one contender match for the tag titles. A three-way. Havoc and Papadon over Creed and Genesis. And Kurt Daniels and Ken Scampi. D'Lo Brown over Mike Preston. Michael Shane won a three-way elimination match over Grim Reefer and Sharp Boy. And then Ron Killings retained his CSWF heavyweight title, beating Slick Winder Brown. Fix <laughs> <laughs> with a hodgepodge here. Uh, yeah. That is a very, uh, very 2003 New Jersey indie show. Yes. Yes, it is. All right, now let's go to Combat Zone Wrestling. They set their annual Cage of Death show for December 13th in Viking Hall, Philadelphia, before about 475 fans with a show on November 15th, which featured the return of Lobo, White Beater, after retirement deal months ago, and Johnny Cashmere, who walked out a month ago. They had Ruckus turn on Sanjay Dutt to set up a CCW Junior title bout. Cashmere returned and said he had left HIV. Yes, that's HIV, the uh, faction. Well, wasn't it pronounced high five? High five, yes. H-I-J-S-V, but yes. Yes. And had Zandix back earlier in the show, only hit him with chairs as he was refereeing the main event. Cage would have to be two rigs with a scaffold as well. It's a million thumbtacks. <laughs> with a uh, high five, the Backseat Boys, Messiah, B-Boy, and Adam Flash against Team Zandik. Zandik, Lobo, White Beater, Ian Knox, and Nick Gage. Royal match with Dan Moff versus Jimmy Ray, which was a 20-man Ironman match. one of the best bouts the company has ever had. Well, let's go over the results. Uh, Rock and Rebel and Derek Frazier beat Ruckus and Sanjay Dutt. Jude, DJ Hyde, and Niles Young over Corey Castle, John Dahmer, and Sabian. Tony Mamaluke beat Scotty Matthews. Azrael beat Deranged in an aerial assault match. Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, EC Negro and KC Blade defeated the new softcore connection of Zabar and Nick Burke. And uh, the Iron Man match actually was B-Boy. Dave, not damn off. As Jimmy Ray beat B-Boy in a 15-minute Iron Man match. I have a 15-minute Iron Man match. That's crazy. Uh, Mercedes Martinez over Nikki Rocks. Oh, remember Chris, WWE did those with uh, 15 minutes of fame with uh, Miz and Morrison. Yeah, you're right. Trent Acid over Dan Moth. Four-way match. Chris Hero be Alex Shelley, Homicide, and Jimmy Jacobs. And then Double Dog Collar, standing a special referee, Messiah and Nate Hatred of High Five beat Nick Gage, and, well, went to a no contest with Nick Gage and White Beater. Wait, so it wasn't Cage of Death then? No, this sets up, this is setting up Cage of Death. Oh, set up Cage of Death. Okay. Which is, for those who have never seen it, the 2003 Cage of Death match is possibly the most stupidly overcomplicated match in the history of professional wrestling. <laughs> no. You know the one I'm talking about, though. It's the one where yeah, they have, okay. so they have the cage, and it's not as much of the gimmicked-up cage as they do later, like in ROH. It's, two rings, million thumbtacks. I don't think this one was two rings. I'm not sure, but they... It just said it was two rings. But they were hanging... The main thing I remember is... 
they were hanging chain link from the ceiling of the ECW arena. And to win the match, no, it was, no, so it was everyone in the match entered from the crow's nest walking this plank of chain link fence. And to win, every member of the team had to get back to the crow's nest, which they called the starting point. It's the stupid, one of the stupidest matches I've ever seen. <laughs> yes. He's not lying. It was pretty stupid. But, uh, Fun era CZW though, um, love different. I mean, they 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 make mixes stuff of different things, different new factions, you know, some of the same people, but still some different stuff. So it's fun. So there's that. Ring of Honor, Ring of Honor and 3PW, which refuting have basically made up since Rob Feinstein, Blue Meanie, and Jesse St. Clair talked everything out of the Wrestle Convention in New Jersey on November the eighth. How about you know, yeah, just don't run shows against each other. And you'll be fine. <laughs> yes. That's literally all it was. Yeah. Jim Cornette agreed to work more frequently next year for Ring of Honor. The November 29th Ring of Honor show was moved from Wakefield, Massachusetts to Woburn, Massachusetts, Canada Middle School. The original site canceled the date because a rival promoter had claimed they were doing ultraviolet matches. And since it was a school board run building, they didn't want the controversy. So the new building, also at a school, they announced the most violent main event in company history <laughs> with a no-rope barbar match with Steve Kramer versus Homicide and Smojo versus AJ Styles. Amazing. The final Ravens CM Punk match Ring of Honor leading to the first match of TNA at some point fairly soon will be November 28th at Fairfield, Connecticut. Bill does the lottery from hell, which they thinks a new version of Spin the Wheel Make the Deal. They're also doing established stars as new stars with Daniels against Jimmy Rave, Homicide against Sean Walters, and Carino against Josh Daniels. One thing about Ring of Honor is that Gabe Sapolsky has sure learned from the mistakes of WCW and WWE about having a constant freshening of talent in the top mix. Okay. Um, if I remember right, the Raven Punk blow-off is the most ed heavily edited matchup in the history of ROH home video releases. Didn't they cut it down from something like 30 minutes to 10? Yeah, it was a uh, much shorter match, yes. Yes, and with ROH, the thing was, it was never acknowledged that the match was being edited. They just took a chainsaw to it and pretended the match went that long. Mm-hmm. Yes, and yeah. also, One thing... I always felt, too, that... I don't know if this is a Gabe thing or what. There were times where it was absolutely necessary... They also way overdid it sometimes. I remember specifically the Kabashi show, I believe it was. I think it was the opener was Cabana and Claudio. And there was something where I think Cabana slipped on the ropes trying to do like a lucha arm drag or something. And he immediately covered and started like pretending he was checking his pulse, worried he was having a heart attack. <laughs> and it was a cool moment in live. It was like no no one chanted you fucked up. It wasn't it wasn't a big deal. And then on the DVD they cut that out. <laughs> Amazing. This is a DVD product. <laughs> yes, it was. Everything has to be perfect for the DVD product. <laughs> oh, um one one thing about the punk raven food I want to say is I was I was in kind of probably I mean they're obviously still around PWI magazine still around of course um, 
my generation was sort of the last, like like the late '90s, early 2000s, was kind of the last generation of of kids. I think that really kind of got the magazines and collected a lot of them. I could be wrong on that. There 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 could be kids younger than me who did that. Um, but I remember looking in like the old Wow magazines and of course PWI and and there was one or two other ones that was around back then. Uh, my first exposure to Ring of Honor, other than getting the first few tapes with like the Ron Robin Challenge and stuff, was the coverage of the Punk Raven feud in the magazines and being kind of enthralled by that. And you know they'd have like the bloody pictures from the cage and whatnot. So like that was that was kind of an inspiration, or you know that was kind of a I wouldn't say inspirational, but it was a it was a uh, uh, a big feud for me as a kid because I never really saw anything. So it was it was kind of it it kind of helped add to the lore and like mystique of Ring of Honor for me because I was a kid who didn't have a lot of access to my parents' computer and didn't you know I obviously had my brother who but he lived in you know, two or three states away and, and, but it, you know, would only occasionally send me stuff and I wouldn't see, you know, everything that was out there. So this kind of, this sort of introduced me to indie wrestling and made me want to see all this stuff. And of course, you know, led into, you know, Samoa Joe being in the magazines and stuff like that. And it, it it made his debut and in, in, in TNA and 05 a big deal because I had known him from the magazines and heard about him from from my brother and whatnot. So like, but but the Punk Raven feud is is the first feud and and the first sort of thing from the indie scene that made me feel like okay, there's something else that looks really cool that's outside of WWE and TNA that I actually really want to see. And I remember when they were in TNA together as the. Uh, the yeah. gathering, like yeah. it, it was, it was like, it was, it was like, I don't know. It was weird because I wanted to see more out of that because I had seen so many cool, you know, images and, and read so many cool stories from the magazines. And, and they, of course, it being TNA, they never really capitalized on a Raven punk feud that was alluded in this, you know, in, in, in this paragraph Chris just read. So like it, it was, it was kind of disappointing because, you know, they they kind of didn't they eventually split the gathering up and like they had like a tease of Punk and Raven and TNA or something along the lines or, or they did like a few matches or something but they weren't obviously anything as they were the, right. the year before in Ring of Honor but yeah this 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 was a huge hugely uh, influential is a better word uh, hugely influential feud for me uh, uh, in my fandom even though I never saw any of it at the time. I was it, it it was like it was one of those deals where like, you know, kids who grew up in the 80s would see like, you know, a photo of Abby or something in the magazine like this was this was kind of my generation's like, OK, there's some cool shit going on outside of outside of the big, big promotions. Yeah. All right. Um, let's go to FNW. They're in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, on November 16th. We have Hallow Wicked over Jolly Roger, Dean Jablonski over Lord Zoltan, T Rantula over Adam O, Dennis Gregory over Dr. Feelgood, Mike Quackenbush, Gran Akuma, Nicaras over Blackjack Marciano, Eddie Kingston, and Jigsaw, 
the honky talk man of a powerhouse Hughes in a three-way dance for the cruiserweight title Phoenix beat Joey Knight and Kevin Grace to win the title so you got your car guys and other guys on the show so a mixed bag of Pennsylvania folks here and the honky talk man but mostly Pittsburgh guys yeah outside the char guys is 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 that T Ranchula of WCW fame yes that's amazing he's around forever yeah all right, MLW. There's been nothing new regarding Major League Wrestling. There are no show scheduled, and TV's been given up. There was talk of a positive announcement being made this week, but nothing transpired. Yeah, we're getting towards the end of this version of MLW, so yeah, yeah there's that. He runs... Um, he Court comes back with the two nights of tapings in January in Florida, and airs those on Sunshine for a bit, and then that's it. Then a little later in 04, he tries to rebrand and start up H2 with Teddy Hart as a centerpiece, and he was going to work with Torimon and bring in the T2P guys, which, I, I with hindsight, they weren't, I mean, T2P had been integrated into main Torimon by this point, right? Mm-hmm. But I remember it specifically being that they said they were bringing the T2P guys, Um and, you know, this is also where uh, Hero was going to do the uh, Scientology-based gimmick, Heronetics. <laughs> that would have been something. But H2 ends up never running a show because as the first show is quickly approaching, it's not long after the Rob Feinstein perverted justice bust and Tim, yeah. who's the face of the company, starts hyping up a surprise appearance that he's very strongly implying is going to be Feinstein. It basically ruins the show and the promotion never exists, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Lord. Uh, SSW, Southern States Wrestling, Bo James. They ran the Kingsport uh, National Guard Army on the November 13th. TJ Phillips over the Cuban Assassin. Just a sensation over the Cuban militia. Tony Givens went to a draw with Josh Cody to retain his junior weight title. Ricky Morton and Lexi Fife beat Bo James and Chuck Jones. And then Ray Otto won a battle royal. So, Bo, I'm sure you'll uh, listen to this and you'll probably have some type of antidote about, uh, about this show. So, there you go. We'll put you in there. Live action wrestling drew 800 fans on the room 15th in Sanford, North Carolina for a TV tape and headlined by Buff Bagwell, Jimmy Hart, Disco Inferno, Sebby Anderson, and Johnny Swinger. Their number of TV station in North Carolina have six dates for tapings in 2004 scheduled for Sanford. This group was around for a little while, but I don't remember seeing anything from them. No, I always forget. What's the name of the group that became the new WXO that was on TV on Sports South and stuff? I don't remember a new WXO, sadly. They picked up the WXO name. It was very weird, but I forget what, I always forget what they were called. Because they were they were doing TV in this part of the country at the time too. Yeah, I don't remember that. So Yeah. Former wrestler Hardy Boys running mate Marty Garner is now working for The Rock as a personal assistant. I knew this was a, like a big story. Yeah, I forget how they ended up being friends or whatever in the first place, but Rock invited him out, and it wasn't the story that Garner thought it would be more than the gopher job than it was. Yeah, he thought he was going to be doing uh, whatever. I mean, it was going to be gopher position. Yeah. 
Oh, well. <laughs> and they're in Wildside. They're in uh, the arena in Cornelia on November 15th. We have Slim J over Fast Eddie. Caprice Coleman over Sal Renaro. Tag title match. Jeremy V and Brandon P. Feature Shock retained over the Texas Death Club. Todd Sexton and Masada by DQ. Love that name. Uh, while Samway title match. Honest retained over Michael Adrian. Now working as Michael Judas. Jeff Lewis, now working as Neil Koloff, beat some guy named J.C. North. I don't know what happened to him. Murder One beat Skeeter Frost. <clears throat> Seth DeLay beat Jay Fury. And Rayman and Azrael beat Altimore Luke and Gabriel by disqualification. So, yeah, quite a little crew here. And uh, about two years from now, we'll be discussing this on Exile on <laughs> when we get to that era. I've, 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 yeah. I've seen about 80 to 90% of these guys live. Oh, I know you have. I know you have. <laughs> also, shouldn't we be calling him uh, Vice TV and Stars TV star Alter Boy Luke at this point? <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I guess so. Um, MXPW. Oh, yes. I remember this. A TV team for a new South Florida group on the River 14 in Fort Lauderdale drew only about 200 fans with a Dusty Rose versus Barry Wyndham Texas Bull Rope match in 2003. A lot of top indie names like Raven, Shane Douglas, and D'Lo Brown. There was a lot of advertising, including on the local Raw. Well, they had a show at the Omni Hotel in Coconut Creek, Florida. Chaz and Julio De Niro over Dave Johnson and the Vampire Warrior with Luna Vachon. Holy shit, Dave Johnson from the Black Arts back in 2003? With, with Dave Eve, yeah. And Luna, yeah. MXPW TV title match. AJ Styles retained over Chris Saban in... 359, short matches, TV taping. Three-way for the heavyweight title, D'Lo Brown retained over Raven and Shane Douglas, and then Dusty over Barry Wyndham in the Texas Bull Rope match. There aren't that many matches, show. though. Why are, why are those first couple matches so short? It's a TV taping. That's the only matches that's listed, I guess. Oh, you think there's more? Hmm. Okay. I would think so. But Dusty and Wyndham working a uh, Bull Rope match 2003. That would have to be something. Also, Coconut Creek, do we think that Dan Lambert's in attendance, perhaps? It's possible, I guess. Uh, Burt Prentice has pulled out of Northern Alabama and dropped his TV in that region after a show headlined by Jerry Lawler against Casey James, drilling about 115 fans in Decatur, Alabama. Yeah, that's bad. Ooh. <laughs> Ooh. I I, th- I think there was a Burt Prentice show that ran on TV in Chattanooga. That USA Champion USA Championship Wrestling. Uh, and w- and wasn't Ricky Morton one of the big stars at the time? I mean, he would work on those shows. You did you have USCSS? Charles I I I had one of those things. Yeah, that's what I remember, they. Yeah. I, I remember watching it on Saturday nights sometimes. Yeah. It, it, you had that, and you had the NACW in North Carolina. That's that what I was thinking of earlier. NACW. Yeah, so that that those would air on uh, CSS. Yes, that's what it was. CSS, thank you. Yes. Yeah, yes. Casey Steve. James. Uh, you had uh, Aaron the Idol Stevens Sandow was uh, one of the stars of that. But yeah, what a show. Burt Prince. Yes, yes, for sure. Dave Brown, the famous Memphis weatherman who broadcast wrestling for more than thirty years, appeared on the Memphis Chantry Wrestling TV show on the November fifteenth. The angle started with Jerry Lawler talking to Lance Russell, crediting Lance for his being in wrestling. I mentioned when Lance put Lawler's drawings Jackie Fargo and Tojo Yamamoto on TV. Talk about all the good times they had at two previous stations. It says, too bad we can't get the guy on the other station in. Talk about Dave. 
Law and SCDs will go to WMC Studios. On a rival station. On the live show, they went to the studio and Lawler met with Dave, who was there. Lawler mentioned to Dave how he and Lance showed his drawings in 1967 at the Channel 13 studio show and invited Dave to come to the November 29th house show at the Coliseum to celebrate Lawler's 54th birthday. How about that? Wrestling transcends all your TV station rivalries in Memphis. Yep. And how about that thing I found a few weeks ago that I tweeted from Variety that when Lance and Dave made the jump in 77, that got that was considered big enough news, I guess, as a TV station transaction that it was picked up in Variety. Yeah. That was pretty cool to see, I thought. Yeah. Well, they're very important in their market. Absolutely. All right, IWM Mid-South. Seventh anniversary weekend, November 14th, in the National Guard Army in Scottsburg, Indiana. We had Nate Webb over Steve Stone, Tracy Brooks over ODB, Ryan Boz won a three way over Jamie Cox and Stevie Lee, JC Bailey won a false camera match over Ian Rotten, Corporal Robinson and Axel Rotten over Hazaya and Apollo Star. Alex Shelley retained the WXW War Heavyweight title, beating Chris Hero, and Danny Daniels retained the IWM itself, Heavyweight title, beating Jimmy Jacobs. And then the next night in uh, Ultic, Indiana, the community senator, we had Isaiah over Stevie Lee, Axel Rotten over Josh Abercrombie. Who, uh, Bix, who's Josh Abercrombie now? Josh Abercrombie. Yes, he's still Josh Abercrombie. Yeah, you're, I think you. <laughs> I think you were confusing him with Josh Prohibition momentarily. Yeah, pro, momentarily. Yes, sorry about that. Josh is a lot of Josh's in 2013. Daniels. Yeah, Corporal Robinson and Necro went to a no contest with the Lancasters, Jared and Jason. Dan Anderson, I didn't miss with time beating Nate Webb. And Ian Rotten and J.C. Bailey went to a double knockout in a steel cage match at the 43-minute mark. <laughs> okay, now refresh my memory. Was Ted Petty Invitational the week before or the week after? Yes, week, week before. Okay, so for context, going into November... I forget the exact reason. Was it a zoning thing? They had lost their main building and had not Ooh. been running shows often. And they still tried to pull off TPI. And I remember they ran, well, it was this really nice looking high school gym. I forget what town it was in Indiana, but it was fairly empty and it was not the best atmosphere. But, um, I think that was the first of the various IWA in flux scenarios was that thing in 03, right? Mm-hmm. Because I don't think, I, maybe they had one brief, like, we might shut down thing before that, but this is the first one I remember. And it kind of becomes a different promotion from here on, especially as 04 goes on when Ian becomes convinced that he needs to just sell DVDs and starts flying in way too many people and running three show weekends and stuff. They were, be were going to become a DVD product. There you go. My, my question is how, how long was Ian's opening show, uh, opening show promo, uh, <laughs> explaining the situation. <laughs> as long as the JC Bailey cage match, probably. <laughs> <laughs> and my, my favorite is the one from the 300th show in January 03. Where, now, in fairness, it's supposed to be a long thing. He brings out legends that are there to talk and honor 
people who were, you know, injured and couldn't wrestle anymore, like, you know, American Kickboxer and Suicide Kid. But that thing legit went like 45 minutes. Yeah. Not not shocking. I mean, considering Ian would sit there and go, oh, yeah, I almost forgot. And then he would sit there and go 10 more minutes on a spiel about something that he forgot to mention, like he needed to mention it anyways. But typical, typical IWA Mid-South in the 2000s. Classic. Of course. All right. Uh, PWA. This is a church show. At Detroit World Outreach in Redford, Michigan, November 14th, we have Scotty O'Shea, not uh, <laughs> akin to, uh, what's his name, uh, from the steroid trial, oh, Sean, Sean O'Shea. O'Shea. Yeah, Scotty O'Shea beat Eric Young, Joe E. Legend beat Michigan worker A1, not to be confused with the hot sauce, yes, I mean the Alistair, steak sauce. Uh, well, no, he's a, he, was a, he was another border city guy from Canada, Alistair Ralphs. He was in Team Canada shortly after this. Petey Williams beat Johnny Ova in a ladder match. And in our main event, Rowan Animal and Sting over Greg Nemo Valentine and Buff Bagwell. Sure. Yes, it's one of those church deals that was going on this era. Right, because PW, PWA was one of those church wrestling things. But it it seems like the only church style we are being saved match is the main event. Because the first yeah. thing it looked like there were wrestling matches. What was the one that used to be on, you could watch online? I don't know if that was one that actually had a, res, a ring in wrestling matches, though. Oh, what was it? But it's just so awesome, Buff Bagwell, this type of match, knowing Buff Bagwell and, and what he was into. And, you know, he's had a lot of issues. And, and we got, I also got to say, you know, rest in peace, Judy Bagwell. She passed away uh, as the day we're recording this. So, uh, best wishes to the Bagwell family on the loss of the legendary Judy Bagwell. But, uh, yeah, this, I always thought these shows were odd. I know Greg Valentine had his, had some of his issues too, but, uh, it's an odd deal there. But anyway, PWG, yes, Pearls and Gorilla. They ran the West Side Jewish Community Center in Los Angeles on a, in front of 155 fans. On November 15th on a show titled An Inch Longer Than Average. Also, gee, I wonder which PWG co-owner found the Westside Jewish Community Center venue. <laughs> yes. Uh, for this show, we had the Ballards, Shane and Shannon, over top, and t- team with Top Gun Talwar to be Chris Bosch, Lil Cholo, and TJ Perkins. We had M. Dodge Winnie over Jardy Franz. Chris Bosch did referee a match featuring the X Foundation. Funky Billy Kim and Scott Loss beating Team Cheesemo, Disco Machine, and Excalibur. Super Dragon won a Guerrilla Warfare match over Joey Ryan in 31 minutes and 46 seconds. Ugh, there is so much wrong with that sentence. Adam Pierce with C. Edward Vanderpile beat Colt Cabana, Samoa Joe over CM Punk, and Frankie Kazarian retained the PWG title, beating the American Dragon Brian Danielson in 22-32 in the main event. It's funny, Devin, looking at this show and seeing who's on this show and where they're at in 2021 in life. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's an interesting one. Um, I mean, you look at this, okay? We have, all right, we got TJ Perkins who's bouncing around different place to place. Um 
Matt Croft. He's been Impact lately, right? Impact. He's, he's yeah. Impact and uh, okay. New Japan yeah. Strong. Yeah. Gotcha. And uh, twenty Matt Cross, of course, still works. Um, there's Caliber announcing AEW. Uh, Super Dragon, who made his PWG return and come back since. Joey Ryan, uh, sex offender. And appears. We need to be careful, Chris. Alleged, alleged but offender. we know how we feel about that situation. Yes. Adam Pierce, who um, is in WWE on TV, every uh, TV show now. Cole Cabana, of course, Dark Order AEW. Also, Samo- Battle of uh, Battle of Road Agents from the two major promotions. Yeah, oh, wow. Samo- Samo- yeah. Samoa Joe currently on the shelf with injury. CM Punk, well, you all know about him. Frank Kazarian, AEW, and Brian. The Elite Dan- Hunter, Frank Kazarian. Yeah, the elite hunter Frankie Danielson and Brian Frankie Frank Kazarian and Brian Danielson, AW. So yeah. Eighteen years, folks. Yep. And there are other people who aren't here probably because they're at the LXW show. Yeah, Scorpio Sky. Phoenix Star, Zook Ray, Quicksilver. Yeah. Tara. Yep. Actually, was Tara working for PWG much? I mean, I think he did. But this is very early PWG because they launched in 03. Yes. And you can see they are not, they have not found themselves yet. And, you know, at this time, early on, one of the reps of PWG was that it was where you went to see your favorite indie work rate stars have underwhelming matches. <laughs> Boy, that changed. Uh, yes. <laughs> All right. PWI, Pros and Iron. They had a tribute show to Mike Lockwood on November 15th in Laughter, California. As Tony Jones beat Jason Mooney, El Flaco Loco, and Super Diablo beat Apollo Khan and Chet Taylor. Joe Applebaumer over Malachi. Manny Fernandez, Raging Bull Manny Fernandez over Lars Dogger. Big Ugly and Shane Cody over Bart Blackson and Ryan Drago. And Donovan Morgan, Frank Murdoch, and Vinny Massaro beat Hook Bomberry and the I Am Saint, Iron Saint, Sal and Vito Tomaselli. So, yes, that was a nice approach to Iron to have a tribute show to Mike Lockwood, a.k.a. Crash Holly. And I believe it was a benefit show with the money going to his family as well. Yeah, we're about to talk about him in just a second. But first, let's talk about Jesse DeBody Ventura. Dan Creed, what a name, who was the fire residence manager at the governor's residence, has just released a book called Governor Ventura, The Body Exposed, The Bad, The Mansion, the Meltdown. The book isn't as controversial as the title implies, but it's controversial enough that it appears Ventura isn't happy about it. Creed painted Ventura as a gloomy recluse who was often rude to people and spent much of his time watching TV. Shocking. He said Ventura's wife, Terry, was more politically savvy than her husband and called her a compassionate strategist who spent much of her time trying to get Jesse to do the right thing. Jesse was mad in particular. They put in the book a photo of him and his 50th birthday party in a punk hula skirt and flowered headdress. He said Jesse often shunned visitors, and while Terry came off good in the book, her best friend, Mari Reed, was painted as the villain, including twice requesting that state troopers escort their car with flashing lights so she and Terry could make a premiere at the mall on time. (laughs) By the way, I think that's supposed to say pink hula skirt. Okay. Uh, Yeah, that makes better sense. Uh, What also got a lot of publicity is Jesse's son's Tyrell's late-night parties. When this story first broke, it was used as the public reason for Ventura not running for a second term, being mad that his family's private life was being looked so closely into. Creed 
and the entire staff was fired. Some staff members had said things Jesse didn't like to reporters. Well, Jesse was apparently in a bad mood. It's based on reports on the governor's portrait was unveiled on November 13th at the Capitol building in St. Paul, Minnesota. Ventura said to have loved the portrait but never spoke at the unveiling ceremony, leaving it to his PR director, wife, and the artist, Steve Sapello, a.k.a. Steve Strong. Ventura and Sapello were Hawaiian tag team champions in 1977 as two bodybuilder like protégés of superstar Billy Graham, a big draw there in the early 70s. Ventura also gave nasty glares to reporters who came near him, and apparently threw a mic on the floor of a reporter who had it up trying to record him. Shocking that Jesse Ventura would act like this. Shocking in every way. <laughs> Not his profile. So, craziness. He still got done dirty by the Chris Kyle thing, though. Well, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, I, I have no memory of this book being a thing. Yeah, it wasn't as controversial as it, as it promised, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. All right, Mike Lockwood. There was more controversy this week after the death of Mike Lockwood. His family in California was very upset over him being buried in China Grove, North Carolina. They have a family plot in California, but since he was still legally married, you know, he and his wife, Christina, were separated a few months back and not on good terms. She had the call on the funeral and the burial. His family is also upset because he was given a Baptist funeral on November the 12th, even though he is Catholic. There was an altercation between the two families before the funeral, largely a heated argument over where he was being buried that wound up with the police being called, and Lockwood's wife's parents demanding that Lockwood's mother be kicked out of the funeral. The rest of the funeral itself went a little bit more smoothly, although the underlying heat was very much present. His ex-girlfriend from California, the mother of his child, who he was with long before pro wrestling, they're planning on getting back together with attended North Carolina crew of WWE wrestles at the Hardys lead uh, Shane Helms and Jamie Noble attended as well as Donovan Morgan who started with an all pro wrestling and we remain good friends with to the point the two talked almost daily Michael Modest had to miss the funeral due to his Noah tour starting up Steve Richards was there speak, spoke at the ceremony and was his best friend in WWE as well as Dean Roll a sharp boy who was just put with him as a tag team in TNA there were no official office representation, nor according to reports, were flowers sent by the TNA or WWE. Scott DeMore had asked the TV the day before about going as a company representative, but for whatever reason, it didn't happen. There was a lot of negative comments regarding WWE not acknowledging the death on Raw or SmackDown, nor anyone getting a reason why not. I mentioned it last week, and this week is speaking volumes in a negative way about the company. It was rightly or wrongly, it comes across the company's running scared from this one. I only guess Dave can make a lot of trepidation on the subject of wrestlers dying young right now because both USA Today and the Tampa Tribune are working on major stories. And just the proximity of Road Warrior Hawks' death with this death could cause a lot of casual fans to start talking about what's going on. WWE's defense, and it's a valid defense to a point, had been the only drug death on their watch was Brian Pillman in 97. Now, Vince McMahon's on record saying a lot of the wrestling in the 80s made big mistakes and there were tragedies due to it, but things have changed. And a new breed of wrestlers are different. Paul, because he was an 80s star and his issues date back two decades, this would have been an explanation. Crash Holly contradicts that story. When he was not with the company the past few months, most fans would think of him as a WWE wrestler. Whatever the reason, his decision became even stronger as we went on. WWE removed the mention of his death from their website. On the uh, November 10th TV tapings of the International Heat show in Cleveland, which never aired in the U.S. due to heat airing live on the pay-per-view, the slight was more painful. Richards, who also did this at the house shows that weekend, wanted to pay tribute to Lockwood. He came out to Crash Holly's music, climbed the turnbuckles, and used Crash's mannerisms, 
as well as pointing to the sky at several points during the match. When the show aired in the UK, the music was overdubbed with generic music. Announcers Jonathan Coachman and Mark Lloyd never made mention of significance of anything Richards was doing. The closest was Coachman saying, Richards seems to have a little in- more inspiration and focus this week. There was an RIP crash sign that was visible during the match, and it should be noted that there had been many of them at the tapings both nights, but none were shown, and again, that had to be due to a directive. There's no actual verbal mention on Devin Mike Lockwood on TNA preview show on November 12. And there should have been, but it's hardly ignored. They showed a graphic honoring him at the start of the show, and some wrestlers in their own way made a mention. They also, at the start of the show, zoomed in on several signs for fans. A lot of signs were confiscated for being anti-establishment before the show, mentioning Mike. Several wrestlers did something, including Ekbo Fatu and Yuma, when they were both in WWE, wearing a t-shirt honoring him. Raven, who worked me match with him in WWE over the hardcore title, right, wrote Crash wrote Crash on his belly, and CM Punk wrote it on his forearm tape. It was clear by nothing of the sort being on WWE shows that there was a directive against anything more than a black armband that nobody would understand what it was for except those who already knew. At that to the funeral. His mother held a second funeral in Pacifico, California on November 14th where they talked about him growing up on the Hulk Hogan and Jesse Ventura. It was talked openly by people there about his recent problems, which some blamed him being banged up from all the hardcore stuff. To be fair, as no last week his drinking started long before WWE. His seven-year-old daughter, Patty, spoke at the funeral about having an angel watch it over her. The next night, she worked as a ringside manager with Donovan Morgan at the benefit show for Pro Wrestling Iron, which raised $400 for her between DVD sales and wrestlers voluntarily giving up their checks. Lockwood was planning on becoming a partner in the PWI gym. Both on WWE and since leaving the company, Lockwood, who, from all accounts, was not a big spender and saved money from his good years, had worked several shows for the group and helped out in promotions and always insisted on not being paid. That company didn't put together a major benefit show for Patty Lockwood in January or February, with several of his friends at WWE having verbally talked about wanting to do the show. It's hard to say what should and should be done in these situations by promotions. Dave tries and compares it with similar situations sports world would be. Any big name passed away would be mentioned in nearly every broadcast in the country, whether the, the player played for the team or not. A recent major league with little success would likely be mentioned on the broadcast of his team, but an active player would be mentioned throughout the league. Dave Van Eric, who was never mentioned on George Chancho Wrestling, which was the NWA's national outlet at the time, and Brutus of Brody, whose death wasn't mentioned on either NWA, AWA, or WWE shows at the time, which caused a lot of outrage, wrestlers never handled sad reality as well, particularly if there was seemingly no monetary gain. When Jay Youngblood, who was a huge star in the Carolinas a few years earlier, passed away, it was not mentioned on the Crockett television. Dave recalls AWA doing a lot more than he thought when Chris Taylor passed away. They didn't believe they even mentioned the death of Carrie Von Erick and Adrian Adonis, both of whom were major stars of the company not all that much earlier. In recent years, the dreaded graphic became a far too common open at WCW broadcast and WF as well, but politics ended to it far too often. Bobo Brazil's death was not mentioned on WCW because he was in the WF Hall of Fame, even though he was a star who cut across regional promotional barriers. The Sheik, who was one of the all-time great Hill characters in a World War Superstar, was not mentioned on WWE television this year, but was on TNA. He had never been on good terms with Vincent Mann. However, a few were on worse terms with Vincent Mann than Mike Hextrad, who WWE mentioned prominently, did a tribute to on at least four shows, and a nice piece of Confidential, which really gave credit to their organization, which they lost so much of this week. Uh, and there is big... something else we need to mention, too. Uh, for context, that's not mentioned here. Now it's not young death, but still. Six months earlier, um, 
Luthez and Wahoo McDaniel died in pretty close proximity to each other. Given the stature of both, there were a lot of people that were upset that WWE did not acknowledge either on TV to the point that they they ended up running graphics because of the backlash. I want to say, what was it, like a week and a half, two weeks after whoever the second one was? Mm-hmm. But that's also in the background of all this. And Dave is bringing up a deal about they might be scared of something. Well, it's re- it takes a while, but the cause of his death is released, Bix. And what was the cause of his death? The way I remember Dave reporting it, and I'm not sure he actually reports on it until some of the Benoit aftermath, is it was ruled a suicide, but ruled a suicide strictly because of the coroner feeling that what he overdosed on, he he took too much to for it to be anything else, basically, for it to be an accident. In 2021, that sounds a little weird, but, you know, without knowing more, I can't really say anything. When you're at that young of age at this point in time, Devin, and you see some of that Crash Holly dying, and, you know, I mean, all the wrestlers that have, you know, died so far, you know, mainly older, you know, 80s guys, but now you have a guy who had been just on TV passing away. What What is your thought process at this time? Uh, it was, it was weird. You know, it's, it's, it's hard. It's a hard thing to process as, as a, as a fifth grader, you know, it's, it's like, it was, it was just like, it was more strange because I think we had seen one of the, one of the shows he was on TNA, you know, only, only recently. So it was definitely a shocker and it's, it's one of those it's it's just a weird feeling as a kid. You know what I mean? Like you don't really know how to respond to it because you're so young and and you don't really know how to respond to it uh you know mentally or emotionally really at at at, at that age. But it's it's a weird feeling because you know when when you're 10 or 11 years old it doesn't really you know I I was old enough to understand that 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 people do you know do do die young. But it was still kind of hard to, you know, comprehend that this guy who was on WWE TV really just five months ago in the Matt Hardy version one stuff. And, you know, somebody who I watched on Velocity on Saturday nights just that summer and, you know, like I said, saw on TNA once or twice already within, you know, basically that same time period, it was, it was, it was really weird. It just, I didn't really know how to handle it because it was, you know, I mean, I mean, how do you take it? It, it, it just didn't make a lot of sense because, you know, some guy who's seemed like he was, you know, in the prime of his career and seemed fine, you know, as a kid, you know, is, is dead. And, and you don't really know how to, you don't really know how to take that. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, uh, it's t- it's yeah. It's got to be tough. Absolutely. All right. Um, we'll close that with OBW before we had we have had this as the bridge for WF. Um, in developmental, most of the people like Jim Cornette's highest on aren't de- on developmental deals, such as Mark Madness, 
Jillian Hall, Tate Toller, Chris Cage, and Standing Thunder, Wavo Star. Much TV for the next few weeks will be built around a Nick Dinsmore, Johnny Jeter feud, and Cornette's Large are going to let the audience decide who goes heel. Most likely Dinsmore, but you never know. They aren't building anything right now, but are hoping to get a two-hour TV special in the spring as their next big show. The angle started on the November 15th TV show as Giant Jeter and Alexis Lurie, Mickey James, were wrestling Mark Madness and Nikita. They did not Mark Madness, of course, Muhammad Hassan. They did 1972 Bruno San Martino, Pedro Morales angle as Nikita threw powder in Jeter's eyes for a DQ. As Jeter was being beaten on, Dismore made a save. The blinded Jeter then started swinging and Dismore went to hug him. This caused Dinsmore to see to take Jeter down into a vicious-looking ground and pound on him. The other babyface pulled Dinsmore off, but he broke free and kept attacking Jeter. Finally, Jeter cleared his eyes and could see it was Dinsmore pounding on him and was pissed. Larry has lost considerable weight since leaving TNA, and that isn't good, Dave said. She looked tiny next to Nikita, and Nikita's hardly a large woman. John Heinrich did a clean job on TV for Standing Thunder Samoan Drop, which came up with the TV job on the way out. And Dinsmore earlier won a handicap match over Jerome Crony, nerd manager helper character, and Mike Mondo, Crash Holly like small comedy figure who believes he's a giant, and Maurice, the sycophant in the Afro wig in the Ernest Miller Smackdown videos. They're now doing an angle based on our joke about Dinsmore being here. Inspector Impact came out and said that Dinsmore hasn't learned to play the game, and John Laurinaitis is probably going to keep him wrestling at Davis Arena for the rest of his career. <laughs> Nova and the Idol, Aaron Stevens, cut tattoos in a heel battle with Bane and Seven. Bane and Seven were the faces. Bane and Seven have improved since working the past few weeks on the road with Raw. Looks like they're going to feud with Matt Capitelli and John Hennigan. It's Bane smashed Capitelli's hand in the door. So weird reading about OBW from this era. You know, the. This is, you know, you got. This whole mix of the OBW long timers he, still here, the developmental guys are here, and you get these new the new people are coming in. Yeah, I mean it's not what it was like with, when Cena and Orton and Batista and Brock was there. Everybody was talking about OBW, but still, I mean, there was a lot going on. But how much OBW did you see, if any? Uh. Like none. <laughs> yeah, because um, basically you had if you if you weren't living in the area, you basically had to be part of that group that you got the the, the, the tapes. Right, right. Like exactly. Like I mean, I obviously knew of OVW and like knew of its importance. Obviously, with with Cena and Batista and Orton and all those guys. But Deep South was the one that I I kind of I like I didn't watch Deep South, but I I. I was more familiar with that one because it was it was a little bit closer, I think. So, um, yeah, like like OVW was was not, you know, it, it wasn't really something that I got my hands on very much at all growing up. Well, okay, here's a, another question then. When you would hear about these guys in OVW and you know, like hearing all the talk about them, and then they finally show up on W television. I mean. What is that like as a young kid? You know, because I, I know what it's like for for my friends when I would talk about these indie indie guys that were I was talking them up, and then they would show up in WWE and hearing their opinions of them, like this is the guy you're talking about, you know? Because 
they're portrayed as in one way in OVW, and then they get in WWE, and of course they had to get WWE'd. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. Well, so like, I I didn't, you know, a lot of the times when I would see somebody come up, and and all honesty, it was like a phone call to Dylan. Hey, who's this guy? And he'd be like, oh, you know, he did this or that or whatever. Um, and, you know, I won't lie. There was there was that typical, like, John Laurinaitis, uh, you know, Jim Cornette look of guys who are like, you know, well, I, I guess it was more or less you, you had the Jim Cornette guys and then you had like the John Laurinaitis Vince guys who were like, you know, ripped to the gills and stuff. And, and that was, you know, like, I, but also you had, you know, the generational wrestlers and, and stuff like that. And, and the guys were, you know, who had like the athletic backgrounds and they usually did a pretty good job on commentary at the time. Like Jr. was always going to put over Shelton's, you know, amateur background. Um, uh, and, and, you know, Randy Orton, you know, we were going to hear about how he was a third generation star all the time. So that those things connected with me immediately because it felt like a big deal. So I, I, I have to credit them some for that. And then Batista just looked like some huge, like, you know, cool looking bodyguard. So me and, and, and my brother and cousin and, 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 uh, other friends immediately gravitated towards that. So we were actually big fans of the evolution young guys, uh, Batista and Randy Orton, because we, we, you know, we, we bought into the third generation hype with Orton and, and obviously Randy had a lot of potential, right? Like he was, he was already, you know, kind of a star by the end of Oh three during this period, he was, he was showing a lot and, uh, you know, somebody like, uh, Batista was just an amazing presence and, and was a physical specimen. And, and we were always impressed with that. Like, like as a kid, I was definitely impressed with, with that, you know, I mean, I, I was a little kid that was impressive to me. So, um, usually, you know, that's, that's kind of how I took those things. Like I kind of ate the medicine that they were giving me a lot of times, but I also don't think they were necessarily wrong all the time. You know, um, you would get your Rob Conway's or your Matt Morgan's, um, and and Matt Morgan was kind of a uh, uh, kind of both a Jim Cornette and uh, John Laurinaitis type that that I think everybody loved, and that proved to be uh, not the case in terms of his of his quality as a performer. But like you know, you had all these guys here, and and some some were better than others. But you know, I, I'll I'll admit as as a ten eleven year old kid, I definitely I definitely drank some of the Kool Aid sometimes. But again, I I don't think it was. I think I think some of the praise was earned, um, you know, especially with Orton and Batista. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it's just OVW. I, I saw some, but yeah, I mean, it's one of those things. It's like this this thing that you hear about, you mm-hmm. know, absolutely. This, yeah, this thing you hear about, and uh, it'd be interesting if we had like an OVW in today's WWE. I mean, they got NXT, but I'm talking a true standalone developmental group that there's no hands-on from WWE. Right. Period. You right. know, it's just just some promotion that they sent their 
their developmental talent too and let them work there on their own, you know, deal. But that'll never happen. No, no. Ever no. again. Nope. Not again. Well, let's close out with World Wrestling Entertainment. And we go first for the Pro Wrestling Torch. And the press release on, on uh, oh, it's since October 13th, but it's got to be November 13th. Uh, WWE reported third quarter profits of $17.1 million. Maybe it is. No, that's good. Yes, number 13. Um, a huge jump over last year's net loss of $1.6 million. Half the jump in profit can be attributed to a lump sum one on a lawsuit in the Owen Hart harness case and the extra pay per view that fit in the third quarter, which had four instead of three. However, there is still a significant jump of $9 million in profit because of expense cutbacks and international expansion. Also, even though house show attendance dropped from 5,300 to 5,100 compared to last year, same quarter, the ticket price increase is more than made up for it. TV rights fees were also up 18% due to a revised agreement with UPN and new international TV agreements. Overall, it's justifiably spun. It's good news for those company. Although the key areas where most viewers earn the vast majority of their pay are down. House shows the merchandise. Meanwhile, WWE announced a four cent per share dividend on class A and B shares of stock which result in nearly $2 million going to Vincent Mann and over 250000 going to Shane and Stephanie's Trust next January. Vince will earn around $10 million this year in salary, bonuses, and dividends. Okay, the fact that this is the extent of this... Well, it's okay, it is the Torch and not the Observer. I presume you went with the Torch because the Observer version is a novel. Always. And next week we will have an Observer version of this. Oh, boy. From, from 2001. Well, it's 2001, so with all the WCW and XFL stuff. Yes, there's a lot There's a lot of stuff that went into it, yes. That's, yeah. that's why. All right. So there's a few things to go over here. Um, first off, I, I'm, I'm guessing you want me to explain the Owen Hart thing, right? Uh, yeah, but real quick, real quick we do that. Boy, isn't that funny looking at these numbers compared to now? <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I want to say this because... There was an interesting chart, and I apologize because I don't remember who posted it uh, on Twitter a few months back, but it just shows you how much has changed in terms of WWE's, you know, business operations and 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 how they make money. Oh, it because first, and it was the B two B versus direct to consumer chart. Yes. Thank you, thank you, Bix. Yes, the business to business is overwhelming now. It's overwhelming. I mean, it's it's all corporate synergy now. It, it, they basically achieved their goal of basically being primarily a content provider and <laughs> don't really have to put in the effort in terms of creative. And so I think that's part, I don't think that's obviously, you know, there are some concerns to the ratings and the lack of, you know, and the lower attendance and stuff, but that stuff's not really contributing to the bottom line as much anymore. At least it doesn't appear to be that way because I think it was on, on, on Brandon's chart, wasn't it like 80% or something that was, that was business to business. Like it's, it's something overwhelming compared to you know, what I'm sure, you know, this was in 2003. I mean, well, it's just, I mean, especially if you consider the Saudi shows B2B. Yes. Then, yeah. 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 Then they're making like 600 million in revenue almost just from B2B most years. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's staggering. I mean, it's it's incredible. And of course, it, it really kind of is their vision to do that. Right. Like, 
because now guess what? They don't even have to try, <laughs> you know, because because they're going to make their money in TV rights deals. And if you want to include the Saudi deal, they're going to make their money there. I mean, it's it's all business to business. You know, the Peacock deal. I mean, that's like what? Almost a billion dollars in five oh, I years. Forgot that. Wait, I forgot that one. That's another hundred million, mm-hmm. right? So. Yep. Yep. Ay, ay, ay. <laughs> yep. Pretty much. I mean, that's the thing. Yeah. Like, and the th- I think we need to acknowledge, too. There must have been part of Vince McMahon that always wanted something like this because we've talked about this a little before. Maybe not on Between the Sheets. Maybe more like on Exile Hall of Fame shows and stuff. That we had had arguments, maybe that's the wrong word, discussions, about how I felt uneasy about Bob Backlund and Pedro Morales as Hall of Famers because I felt like they were basically the just warm body atop a turnkey promotion in a way that Bruno wasn't. Because WWWF and, you know, early WWF was, more than any other territory, a turnkey operation. You're in these big markets, you run the most repetitive, uncreative booking in the country, and you make cash hands over hand over fist. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's... It's it's always kind of been there, you know. It's just they've they've sort of expanded that vision even more now, and I think that's always kind of been what you know Vince's idea was: is to just be this giant corporate media conglomerate that just dishes out content like like it's you know projectile vomiting. I mean, it's it's not you know there's there's not really. The creative juices don't really flow much anymore, and in a lot of ways, they don't really have to. And like I say on this show, some of the show, I mean, yeah, AEW is like a basically a, a gnat in the side of WWE in a way, because because I mean, they're they're competition, but they're not. They're not Vince. The reason why Vince was so dead on WCW was because Ted Turner, and it's his personal vendetta against Ted Turner. He doesn't have that with Tony Khan. I mean, no. yeah, they'll, they'll they'll fuck they'll fuck with him, but they I mean, that's that's about it. I mean, it's it, it's like they don't give a shit, you know. Well, it's not it's not market share. I think that they're worried about its perception. Perception, I think, is as big a part of it as anything. Ex- well, except for no, the actual biggest part. Is as and Melter said this repeatedly, and I think he's dead on with this. That their demo ratings have been, even when they're not like neck and neck, have been close enough to Raw and to an extent SmackDown that if when they come up for renewal, you look at what you've got and you're like, why am it's either why am I paying this much for WWE? when I could just plug AEW on for less money and get a better overall value in terms of, you know, viewer dollar or whatever you want to call it, or am I going to pay WWE less? You know, that, that's their concern. Let let me, let, no, let me, let me, let me break it down. All right. So I've seen a lot of people lately bitch and moan about the, the NHL deal with, uh, with TNT on Wednesday nights and how the ratings are so far below what dynamite was getting in that slot is simple folks. 
NHL is now it's a legacy. It's a major sports league. The ad companies are are shelling out money in bunches on the NHL this year. I just read a, a thing from a couple weeks ago from Ad Ad Age where it was talking about Disney. They they were getting like over a hundred million dollars in ads, ad money for their new NHL deal. And just that, that that companies are going hand over fist with them. So I got to believe they're doing the same thing with Turner as well. So it doesn't matter. The ratings doesn't matter to these people. It's now the WWE has entered that sphere now, which is unbelievable that they've done. Oh, that. A, I don't know if I'd go that far. Oh, uh, it has. It's amazing that they've done that, that they've entered the sphere where they're now become like a sports league in, in, in the eyes of advertisers. It, they are more than they used to be, but... They absolutely are. AEW overall probably still has a more upscale slate of, spot of you know, week-to-week sponsors, though. You know, they've got uh, the... Con- well, they both have insurance companies, right? I forget who WWE has on SmackDown. But, you know, well, AEW has State Farm. Thank you, Progressive. Progressed. You know, AEW State Farm, AEW. Here's the thing that I always stuck out to me from the beginning with Dynamite. Every all all the combat sports, not just wrestling, and we should get back to O three in a second because we have a lot here. But um, combat sports. You ever notice with whether it's UFC, uh, smaller MMA companies, WWE, any wrestling, any cell phone companies, oh, carrier, I should say, that sponsor they've had for years was even if it was owned by this major carrier like with wwe and uh cricket it was always like a secondary prepaid carrier AEW though has had ads from postpaid i forget if it was at&t or t-mobile or previously sprint but they had that you know and there's others i'm forgetting so regardless just to get now we should get back to 2003 though because i think we've exhausted this side of the conversation Okay, Owen Hart. You want me to explain this? Yeah, go ahead. So, WWE filed a cross-complaint against uh, Lumar, the, you know, harness and, well, excuse me, the shackle manufacturer, not the harness manufacturer. The harness was a different thing. The manufacturer of the quick-release snap shackle that failed, was inadvertently triggered, whatever you want to say, that caused Owen Hart to fall to his death. They were not able to do that initially because Missouri has a law that if you settle, if the if a plaintiff settles with one of the defendants in good faith, then another defendant can't come after them to make up the damages. So the thing was, though, Martha, you know, and with her, Stu and Helen, technically, had settled with them for with the, the shackle company for zero dollars and i'd have to pull up like the exact like uh wwe press release which it's a wwe press release but it does it quotes like the judge's ruling extensively and stuff it's legit the judge found it to be in bad faith and allowed wwe to sue lumar and then what happened was it ended up being ruled that jerry mcdevitt could testify to all this at trial in the Lumar lawsuit, so Lumar settled, 
and between what their insurance covered of the settlement with Martha, Stu, and Helen, and the settlement with Lumar, if you don't count legal fees, which obviously you should, but we don't know that number, but if you don't count legal fees, they actually profited off of Owen Hart's death. Are you surprised by that? I, should, I wouldn't be. Because, but with legal fees, they almost surely did not. You know, it was it, it's a huge wrongful death case where they were trying all these outlandish, not necessarily defenses, but directions they were taking the depositions and stuff in as far as saying it was really Brett pushing the lawsuit because of Montreal, which, yes, people, that's a thing that happened. Um, but that's why this is here. Because Lumar had, you know, not really given good guidance as far as stunt distributors not using it and not making sure that their distributors didn't sell it to stunt companies and stuff, despite various warnings in previous accidents. So that's what happened with that. Now, as far as what else we have here, it, it granted, I know not all the fortunes liquid cash, it really is something how they did this dividend, and it seems like a lot of the time it was just to enrich Vince, but it really wasn't that much in the grand scheme of Vince's fortune. You know? I always found that interesting. Now, granted, the dividend did make it attractive to investors, too, but still, the way the stock is structured, most of it was going to Vince. Of course. But you get what I'm <laughs> saying? It's like, what? what is two million to Vince here, really? Not a whole hell of a lot. Exactly. But uh, anything else here? I mean, the attendance average is interesting to see, which that would go up in the next few years. You know, the Cena era, it would go up to, I think, 6,000 to 6,500, something like that, was the average. Ray. Ray. Good point. I mean, Eddie, the rise of Eddie, too, in the next, you know, over the course of the next couple of years. But Cena, Batista. Batista. Yeah. They re they brought it up to where it, I think maybe it it was higher for a little while, but even as things started to go down, it was still over six thousand. Yeah. Well, what I'm trying. Well, do you remember anybody remember what it was in 2019 pre-pandemic where they were at? Uh, I don't remember what they were averaging, but live events as a division um, lost money for seven of the eight quarters before the pandemic. Wow. Well, <laughs> yeah which so, well, not the fact a surprise. that they've increased uh, you know they increased the production expenses for the for the house shows probably hasn't helped yeah and also that this I mean I don't think they're bulking off that many seats to where they you know because it's not like they're selling out all the time but also they have lower capacities because of the stage and stuff now yeah alright let's go to, to the creative side of things and to Dave Meltzer first Stephanie McMahon hired two storyline consultants, one of whom is named Steve Borden, no relation to Sting, to look over the writing process in the company. If only it was. Neither has a wrestling background, but in this case, it's not really important because they aren't there to write or even evaluate the television show, but to evaluate how the meetings and thought process in developing the show is handled. Basically... Uh, this is like – and college football is good about this. Devin, you probably have heard of these. They, they'll, bring, they'll bring in these, these coaches. They'll bring in these ex-coaches as consultants, mm -hmm. and, and they'll say they're coaching the coaches. That's, yeah. what, that's what their job – when Georgia hired Will Muschamp, one of Devin's all-time yeah. favorites, um, uh, well, he's doing great with us. He was originally brought in to be a 
consultant or coaching the coach. That's his deal. But one of our coaches had to take time off. So he had to take an on-field job. So, but yeah, they, they'll bring these guys in. Same same thing with, uh, same thing with Butch Jones in Alabama, I believe similar. Yep, exactly. So that's what this, so that's what this is. They're, they're guiding the riders. So, um, they are there to improve, come up with suggestions to improve the creative department. Now, Steph Torch says Stephanie returned to TV tapings last week after a hiatus for a honeymoon. She continues to work as a supervisor overseeing the two writing teams for Raw and SmackDown. She hired a pair of Hollywood-based creative consultants to review the company's writing process. They're not going to critique the actual wrestling storytelling, just the process you used to get there. With a focus on communication between various departments and staffs. Suspension within the front office, Stephanie hired a consultants and hopes they will affirm the way she runs the division. Now, one issue that may not be noticed by the consultants is that a rivalry has begun to develop between the Raw and SmackDown writing staffs. Brian Gewertz, Michael Hayes, and Ed Kosky on the main Raw writers. Dr. Tom Pritchard, Dave Lagana, and Don Pataglia on the main SmackDown writers. The two staffs sometimes have a Seinfeld-Newman relationship when they work with each other at other TV shows. Both TV staffs attend both tapings, but each is protective of their turf. Both see the success of their show as reflective of their work and are leery of staffers from the other show hurting their show with their ideas. That may have contributed to some of the heat on Hayes. Since he's a Raw writer and was the most recent person to sway Vincent and doing something on SmackDown that some of the SmackDown writers disagreed with. And real quick, I think that's supposed to be Bruce Pritchard and not Dr. Tom. Okay. I don't think, yeah, I mean, I don't think Tom's ever been on WWE Creative. Yeah, that makes more sense. So, you know, way he got his uh, Pritchards mixed up. There, there, if, if, and if you pay attention closely, um, this is this is mentioned on Survivor Series. After they do some goofy segment during the show, I can't remember what it was. I think it involved Coach or something. It, it might have been the Mark Cuban one. Um, but Michael Cole gets on for for a SmackDown match and goes, and 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 uh, here on SmackDown we actually have. Uh, matches instead of stupid stuff with their announcers the, like that i don't know if that was a, a thing of the writers wrote but I, I think it's an interesting thing of course it's michael cole so it could have been it could have been vince trying to instigate uh, know, that, that, that the that, announcers that. did that though the, yeah they, yeah they, that's they, true that's true they, yeah, yeah that was part of i think that was their little competitive rivalries mm-hmm. you yeah. know that they Fair. that they had yeah also before we move on real quick i like that Wade is unsure of the spelling of Don Pataglia's last name, but Ed Kosky's last name is the one that he spells wrong. <laughs> <laughs> he spells it K-O-S-K-I-E instead of E-Y. Yeah. Whereas Don Pataglia's name is spelled Pataglia. Yeah, I mean, I just think it's interesting that they had the Raw, Raw SmackDown teams together on the other shows. That's Even though they weren't necessarily working together, but still they're there. That's weird. I've, I've always wondered about that. It's something that's come up sometimes on Bruce Pritchard's podcast, which is, I believe, something that he's – I mean, yeah, I mean, he, we heard it at the time. What am I talking about? Like, it was a thing that wasn't always talked about in the newsletters. Well, it's talked about in The Torch, but not necessarily The Observer. I wonder why, Paul. <laughs> um, but – that yeah, like they would be working with each other on each other's shows, but it wasn't entirely official, and I never understood what what the idea was. And then there was the whole thing where Paul got in, Paul Heyman got in trouble for allegedly quote unquote eavesdropping on a raw call 
by just staying no. on the same. Co- no, but it was according to him. I think it was just he stayed on the same conference line, and instead of hanging up, because he knew it, knowing that the raw call would be on there. He would never do such a thing like that. <laughs> Paul Heyman? No. Well, Paul Heyman would never do anything untoward with anyone's phone. <laughs> he would never eavesdrop. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, you would think that the each creative staff would be, you know, just worried about their own deal and that don't need them there. It kind of also makes it sound like, to me, that Vince wanted them to have that you know, dynamic there where they're like going back and forth with each other. Well, I think he wanted Vince probably... the two shows competitive with each other. He wanted a rivalry. He thought it would make better shows. Yeah, yeah. And to well, a degree, he's right, but he overdid it. Yeah, he did. And it, it kind of backfired in the end. So, but anyway, all right. So let's go to another situation and stay with a torch. There's also believed that once it became clear Matt Hardy would be jumping the Raw so he could travel with his girlfriend, Lita, the SmackDown writers gave up on him. It may have had something to do with why he did the clean job to Zach Gowan also. It was as, it was as if he was about to jump the WCW, said one insider. Vince is going to have to keep a close eye on both staffs because not every idea is necessarily intended to help the product. There may be ulterior motives now. That said, Vince has a rep for being more difficult to talk with on weeks when he has his mind on his own promos or angles. Writers have more power to set in motion their own ideas and get them rubber stamped by Vince when he's preoccupied with his own storyline. Regarding there being writers from both shows and both tapings, one wrestler says, there's simply too many chefs in the kitchen. There's too much going on for Vince to keep track of, and that hurts TV. That's why there's continuity issues and shows seem to be so scrambled sometimes. Devin, it sure is interesting reading this because... Now Vince is more hands-on than ever, basically, with the writing of the shows and has been for, for the recent years. And it's more of a jumble mess now than it was back then when he was preoccupied with his angles and programs. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I was I was thinking uh, the exact same thing on, on the on that uh, last quote there. I mean, <laughs> he. <laughs> I, I, I always love the like idea of Vince like raging in a fucking writer's room where there's like 30 writers and like just ripping everything up and like shredding it and then writing something like feverishly on a napkin and giving it to Bruce Pritchard. Like that's 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 <laughs> what I hope happens every week. But uh, it's 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 a total mess. And it seems like. You know, it says there are simply too many chefs in the kitchen. Well, I think they've doubled the amount of chefs in the kitchen, or at least it seems that way. Um, I, I don't, I don't know uh, if if they have more writers now than they did then. I, it doesn't I matter like because I, the one there's one guy that's, that's calling all the shots. Yeah, that's true. That's true. You can you can have 500 writers, <laughs> but Vince is going to do what Vince wants to do. Well, also remember what we heard as far as I think it was before SmackDown went back to. Well, to, went to live on Fridays when it was on Tuesdays still. And the reason I think we all heard as to why SmackDown was a better show, even though Vince was in theory and in practice writing both shows, was that he was rewriting Raw constantly and was not doing that with SmackDown. Yes. Right. Whereas yeah. now he has a few days to rest in between. 
Well, I wouldn't say Ben's rest. You know what I mean. Well, he doesn't sleep, <laughs> but he might rest. Yeah. yeah. He gets something, I guess. But, yeah, it's funny reading about the uh, WWE creative issues. <laughs> Back in 2003, compared to what it is now. <laughs> also, the relationship between the writers and agents. And the agents at this time are Arn Anderson, Dean Malenko, Jack Lanza, and Fit Finley, among others. It's strained. A number of the agents are frustrated with the current power structure because they don't have a formal way to express which wrestlers they feel are most deserving of pushes in the big picture. Meanwhile, the writers are frustrated because the agents have so much influence over their work on show day and they are able to make last-second script change suggestions. Sounds like a problem the creative consultants might want to look into, Wade said. Sounds like a clusterfuck to me. Yeah. Uh, I, this is all so confusing to me. I mean, I just, I don't know. Like, I mean, I get that it's hard to run a wrestling show, I guess, but Jesus Christ, like <laughs> there's, there's so many, you know, there's, there's so many hands in the pot. I, you know, it's, it's probably frustrating for everybody. That's why the be- the best, the best wrestling is when there's that one clear vision and they're they're the ones in charge. I mean, you can have other other people involved, but there's that one clear vision of somebody that's you know doing a advanced booking and, and on their mind and, and and set up that way, and you know not making major changes every week during during the show, whatever you know. Yes, right. and if this person happened to use to post on message boards with us, even better. <laughs> well, <laughs> but even then, well, even then they changed too. I mean, we've heard stories of of AEW making changes, you know. But that here was and there. the change, though, that Tony is the last word. That's, yeah, but but still, and they that changed, and that he's more just the booker, and that the EVPs aren't really the bookers with him anymore. Yeah, but, you know, there's also direction changes as well, but it's not like WWE, which is just, you know, insane with it. So, All right, the two brands continue to develop their own identities behind the scenes. SmackDown is seen as a more serious locker room, more of a sports team atmosphere. Meanwhile, Raw is more individualistic, less close-knit from top to bottom. Gee, I wonder why that is. (laughs) In SmackDown, wrestlers suggest ideas to others on the roster. Whereas on Raw, wrestlers are more exclusive in their cliques. And there isn't a lot of cross-communication between the various cliques. Gee, I wonder why that is. <laughs> Neither is necessarily better than the other. In SmackDown, there's a sense that if you don't take the advice of top-tier wrestlers, it can work against you. Whereas on Raw, the top wrestlers aren't as interested in the offering face-to-face critiques or suggestions. Gee, I wonder why that is. There is also a different feeling because Raw is live and SmackDown is taped. There's definitely a pride Raw wrestlers have in knowing whatever they do makes the air, and a resonation amongst the SmackDown wrestlers is that their matches might be heavily edited depending on time constraints. That's a big point that never, ever got talked about. The difference in live and taped in the, in the eyes of the wrestlers themselves. You know, mainly what you'll hear about is either they did they make the show or didn't make the show. Never about how much their match was edited. 
or what segments got knocked off? Well, there is one thing you'd hear about more as the years went on, which was that there was the feeling, and I think legitimately so, if you look at, you know, comparing SmackDown live reports to the TV reports over the years, it seemed like maybe people were noticing them more if they were at the taping and they realized they were missing when they watched on TV. But it did seem like there were more messed up spots on SmackDowns than there were on Raws. Well, yeah, but and then a lot of whether it's a they, subconscious thing that, or whatever among the wrestlers, I well, don't they know. Knew, they knew it was taped. Yeah, but you know the thing is now, and we have something like the, the thing about between the big difference between the two now is that yeah, they're both live, but one's three hours, one two, and so you have a guy like a Chad Gable who. Could hardly ever get on SmackDown, and and now he's on Raw every week, you know, having matches. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. the big, biggest difference of all these days. That's 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 very true. Like, uh, like I remember watching, you know, Raw, and like there were there were undercard guys. You know, this was this was back when Heat was still on TV. I would have to watch Heat to see some of my favorites. You know, uh, I, I would have to see Heat. Uh, I, th- I think uh, Dustin was out by this point. Um, but you know, if, if I wanted to watch a gold, you know, a gold dust match, I had to go to Heat. You know, uh, I, I thought I you were talking about your brother Richards. for a second. No, no, no. Um, well, velocity for the SmackDown guy. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, you know, um, a lot of the, you know, a lot of the cruiserweight matches, tons of underrated cruiserweight matches. You know, the the famous Akio Paul London matches, the Rey Mysterio Jamie Noble match. Like a lot, a lot of the more lauded uh, and and praised uh, SmackDown cruiserweight division matches happen on Velocity, and you know that that was that was the you know destination where you had to go and check those matches out um, because these guys didn't get on TV a lot. You know, it was two hour shows, um, and you know especially with Raw and 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 you know we'll 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 talk about it here some you know. Think about it. Evolution takes up, you know. Oh God. You know, fucking forty, forty-five minutes. You know, <laughs> you know of of, of a uh, what, like a ninety-five minute, you know. Yeah, because Raw's two hours. Yeah. It's not yeah. three yet. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So I mean, like you know, they're they're taking up forty-five minutes out of ninety-five. You know, a lot of the time. So I mean, it's it's it's. <laughs> I mean, it was it was hard to get on these shows, and it, and it's definitely a different a different game now with, 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 you know, the more content, you know, so it's, it's, it's easier for guys like a Chad Gable to come in and have a 10 minute match. Exactly. If I'm, if I'm one of those guys that that's in that type of slotting on talent wise, I don't want to go to SmackDown at all. I want right. to raw. Cause I know there's a better chance of me getting on the TV. Like a perfect example, like guys like uh, Garza and Carrillo. Oh, and, 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 Ricochet, and Ricochet. Well, that's, and don't forget they ha- like it. It's such an afterthought, but they do have main event too. Yeah, so that's another yeah. another another uh, uh, that's, avenue. <laughs> yeah, that's that's true. But and you also have to point out, and I hate to say it because I love Roman, but we all know this: his segments take up a ridiculous amount of SmackDown now. So it's it's hard to get it's hard to get it on SmackDown, right? Like it's it's because you know you got to have Paul Heyman, you know, go my tribal chief, you know, forty seven times. <laughs> you know, it's it's it's. It's tough. Yeah. All right. Well, let's go back to 2003 and let's talk about Raw. 
So let's go to the November 10th Raw from the Fleet Center in Boston in front of an estimated 6,000 fans. Positive the show is that it built Survivor Series well. The negative is there wasn't much in the way of good wrestling. And the main event came across that one of those city-killing nitros from 1999. Lita was up for a few seconds for Orton, Triple H, and Batista came out. Triple H looked enormous, as if he'd gotten even bigger while on his honeymoon. They bullied her, and she got out of the ring. Austin came out and ordered security to boot Triple H out of the building, which guaranteed the main event run-in. Oh, yes. This is, uh, I know, Dev, this is one of your favorite areas of Triple H. Oh, yeah. Uh, he, he, is, he is gigantic, isn't he? Yeah, and this is this is the period where he was, like, uh, like was wearing those, like, almost briefs type. Yes. <laughs> Like, <laughs> you mean he was wearing he his the... customs tights? Yeah. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Um, and and I think this was like, wasn't this the period where I I, I literally just watched the show the other day, but I can't remember. Was he clean shaven here? Um, he yeah, I don't think he had the Ole Anderson look anymore. No, no, he he was he was he was clean shaven here, I believe. Um, because I I remember there was a period here where he was trying to be like. Oh, like he was really trying to be flair, like big time in terms of his look. And this was this was like the peak period there. Um, I I, I want to point out uh, Triple H spent about two minutes on the microphone degrading Lita and, and, and pulled out a dollar bill and goes, I'm going to give you this dollar here. And, and uh, if you know, if if you don't take it, I'll make you strip or some horse shit like that. So that's that's <laughs> that's the that's the wonderful specifics on that segment. Of course there was. Of no, course. No wonder was. she felt pressure into doing sexualized things in WWE. Where? It's like yeah. she had that idea somewhere. <laughs> well, she also did that stuff in ECW too. But again, yeah, it was worse. She didn't WWE. do the live sex celebration in ECW. No. <laughs> or she didn't have the ginormous implants either in ECW as well. Uh, RVD pinned Christian at 520 after a frost splash. Crowd was quiet, but a good match. Coach came out and booted Lillian Garcia, who was made to look like Hillary Duff. There was that time <laughs> where th- they could pass for family. I mean, th- there is a resemblance there between. Yeah, this was this was this was, uh, and of course Hillary Duff was big at the time because Lizzie McGuire was a huge show when I was a kid. So there's 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 relevance to that comment. Isn't this yeah. also around the same time as the? Uh... Was it a WWE.com segment where Josh Matthews asked like five questions of Brian Kendrick and one of them was Mary Kate or Ashley Olsen and he answered and, and Hillary Duff and then Josh Matthews said Matthew says, actually that's the correct answer. <laughs> <laughs> this this would probably be in, in, in the same period because Kendrick was in was in the uh, company in 03, so this is probably around the same time. Yes. Well, I hope, uh, it, I hope it was in 03 because she was 16. Oh, God. Oh, Jesus. I don't think it's uh, that much late. Well, remember, uh, unfortunately, this kind of thing was very acceptable in this era. Oh, there is That's that. That's true. Yes. Yeah. 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 Wait, how, old, how old were the Olsen twins then? Oh, they were on her. Uh, let's see. They were oh, seventeen. <laughs> so I'm not that much older. <laughs> One year, yeah. So 
Yeah, it did it. Yeah. Uh, all right. Remember uh, all the creepy countdown clocks and stuff? Oh, God. Oh, the Britney Spears thing. That's the most famous one. Everybody was counting down to it when she turned 18. Oh, yeah. Oh, Jesus Christ. Well, I remember the, another famous one was Tara Lipinski. I mean, when she was in the Olympics in 2000, let's see, how old was she have been? Uh, 2000. Tara Lipinski. Okay, she was. She hadn't turned 18 yet. She turned 18 during those Olympics. Like people were losing their minds. I was seeing that online too. So it's a, it's a different era. All right. Uh, Rob Conway and Renee Dupree, La Resistance, be Hurricane and Rosie in 307. When Conway pinned Hurricane, just swinging that breaker. Conway and Hurricane were good, but it fell apart when Dupree and Rosie was in. Much really of the show. Liked the Con- I really liked the Conway Dupree team, though. Yeah, they got I better. They good chemistry. I thought that, Conway I thought that helped was the, him. Yes, Conway helped him. It was Dupree was a you know he's greenish, but he's a good enough fundamental wrestler that you have people him have and Conway remember, as the team that it works. Go ahead. People have to remember Dupree was like nineteen or twenty at the time too. Like he was, you know, he, I'm pretty sure he wasn't he like not even like twenty one yet. He was, he was 19 uh, when he started in developmental. I think he's He's old. 19 here. Oh, he's Jesus. Not, yes, he is. You don't yeah. turn 20 until December. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he was he was super young. So uh, I, 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 I've i always given Dupree a pass during that period because I'm, you, you, we forget how young he was. So he was, you know, that, that he was so green. He was learning literally on the fly. No, he well, had my, been my, wrestling for yeah. a few years. He started wrestling when he was 15 for his dad, but... But the, thing, the thing is, how, how do you screw him up? That's all, I mean, God Almighty. Yeah. But they did. Uh, much of the show was hyping Team Austin versus Team Bischoff of Survivor Series. Bischoff threatened to fire Alina unless she played ball with him. <laughs> Bischoff had a good night as performer, Dave said. Jericho gave a pep talk to Team Bischoff. And, he, and just as he was finished, Orton showed up late. Orton basically told everyone that if they were in trouble, he'd save the day. They're pushing out the other rest of the heels even hate Orton. Probably some reality to that one, they said. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm sure there was. Next, we get Val Venus with what Dave called two tacky-looking women. Wow. And they're wanting a double date with one Lance Storm. So let's go to this clip. And Scott Steiner looks amazing here in this picture. We also start on a freeze frame where all of the heels are looking disgustedly at Randy Orton leaving the room. <laughs> Steiner's in fantastic shape here. He's leaned out a lot compared to where he was. Chris Jericho looks drunk. Shocking. <laughs> I loved uh, Scott Steiner at the time, by the way. I was a huge Scott Steiner fan at that period. Oh, he was, he was something else. All right. Are you sure we should be doing this? Yeah, it'd be fine. It'd be fine. Oh, sh- no, no. Sh- Should we explain briefly who you felt that he had a resemblance to in this era? Who, about Venus? Yes. The Milf Hunter. And boy, does he have those vibes, especially <laughs> in this segment. <laughs> yes, the Milf Hunter, about Venus. Yes. Uh, but I tell you what, I, I I liked him better with the short with the short cut than he did the long hair. He yes. definitely—he looks more like a male porn star here than he did when he was about, you know, nineteen ninety-eight about Venus. Yes, anyway. I mean, he looks like he ought to be—he also like he ought to be rolling with Seth Gamble. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> legend. So 
listen, we're going to give Lance the surprise of his life, okay? All right, come on. Hold up. Why are they supposed to be looking tacky? What is he talking about? You. You'll be hanging out with me. And you, I'm going to hook you up with Lance. All right, come on. Now listen, Lance is a real great guy and he's got a real big heart. Heart, okay. Just wait right here, okay? Don't move. Yo, Lance, buddy, come on out here, man. I got a surprise for you. And close your eyes. What do you got, Val? Oh, jeez. What are you doing? Lance, buddy, these two lovely ladies will be hanging out with us tonight. Thank you, ladies. Lance's heart, that's not the only thing that's big. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> <sighs> oh, okay. Oh God, I forgot about that. <laughs> so the, I guess I forget if Lance said he thought this might have been the origin of it. Well, okay. So Lance had recently switched to trunks from having worn long tights for most of his career. Yes. And according to Lance on Figure Four Daily years ago, there one night. Like, this might be the first night he has the, sh the you know, short trunks on. Wrestlers are jokingly complimenting him on the size of his bulge. <laughs> and Lance, being Lance with his weird cross between aloofness, self-righteousness, and whatever else you want to call it. And he admitted that he shouldn't have snapped back like this, but snaps back. Well, maybe it's because I haven't shrunk my balls doing steroids like all of you. <laughs> oh, and I guess somehow that led to the Lance Storm has a huge dick gimmick. Which it turns into the Lance Storm loves to have fun and dance gimmick. Correct. So, do... do, do... Do people know? I'm, I'm assuming most listeners probably know the origin of this thick, like like the very beginning of this landstorm stuff, right? Which uh, the, oh, the oh, the, as far as the boring lands. Oh yes. no, boring lands. Uh, yeah, uh, like 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 basically explaining why his character evolved into this. Oh right, because we so, well, we covered earlier in the year, or whatever the Austin thing too. Yeah, with the right, like, right. boring yep, and the yep, sleeping. Because, and, yeah. Yes, yes, exactly. Because those were. Very popular segments with with me, my brother, and my cousin. When we were kids. We thought they were absolutely hilarious. Um, now I remember I was ten years old at the time, um, but we thought first of all we loved Austin because we always thought he was funny, um, and you know GM Austin was always you know there for the comedy and and in a lot of ways. Um, we loved those Landstorm segments. We thought it was the funniest shit. Um, wow. The segment that started it all, where like Austin called him out in the ring and called him boring, like yeah, that's what we play. Yeah, that, yeah, that, that, that's that's one of my favorite segments, like of the entire year on Raw. Because let's face it, 2003 Raw sucked, but that segment was <laughs> highly entertaining. Um, one of one of my favorite uh, silly segments from that era. Have you gone yeah, back I, and read his columns about the Death Valley Driver 500? <laughs> uh, <laughs> no. Three fourths legit, brother. You'll always be remembered as that. Three fourths legit. But any, but, but anyway, yeah. So so Val Venus has already found out how big his dick is. 
So that's why Val's trying to hook him up. He's trying to, you know, this he's is playing like the week. second week of it, I think. I think the I think yeah. the previous week is the first week. The previous week is Val Venus finds out that he has a giant cock. And yeah, so, so, so it's, it's, it's game on. Yeah, and they, you know, he can bring his ladies around and, uh, you know, they could tag team them and stuff like that, you know, run trains or whatever. So, Good Lord. So, I mean, well, he's a porn star. What do you expect? So, Are you saying that his favorite Bow Wow Wow, wow song is Sexy Eiffel Tower? <laughs> may, it may have been. I don't know. But, um, <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, the, the, it made the Lance Storm entertaining, but that way, and, and let's be honest, I mean, Lance was not there to be pushed on his wrestling at this point in time. He was there to be a character. It's kind of like, look what they did to Dean Malenko, you know? They turned Dean Malenko into like a James Bond uh, type guy who was well, having sex. Well, he was more of a creeper that thought he was James Bond. <laughs> yes. I mean, Dean Malenko of all people. So they, they had a track record in this. But Dave, Dave hits it right here. The moral of the story, if you haven't paid attention, besides the fact that all women are there for no reason but sex, is that baby faces have big dicks and heels have small dicks. Wait, who's the heel <laughs> with the small dick? Well, do, remember they always would make fun of like Triple H or stuff like that for for small dick. There would be faces that would make those cracks about him. That's not what Zach Arnold told me. <laughs> but anyway, Molly and Kim, Gail Kim, beat Lena and Terry Runnels at two thirty eight when Molly pinned Lena using the ropes. Presumably, Molly will lose the title to Lena, so this will all make sense. The gimmick well. here, yeah. <laughs> We'll talk about that as we go along. The gimmick here was that Terry showed up with nothing but a jean dress, apparently misses the buttons up top, and was told by Bischoff that she was wrestling, and she was scared. Lita told her she'd do the work and not to worry. However, most of the bout was them beating on Terry Ronalds, who did a good job of trying to work with four-inch heels on. Coach, playing heel ring announcer, announced Lita and Terry at a combined weight of 310 pounds. That was funny heel stuff. Really, the purpose of this was for the dress to fly up and show Terry's butt with nothing but a tiny thong, then rip the dress up after the match, leaving her in her panties with her bra hanging out. Yeah, that's basically why the match takes place. Yeah, <laughs> although, honestly, I would I say mean, that the camera work on NXT these days is more prurient than it was on Raw then. <laughs> that's that's probably true. Um, the thing that popped me most about this match was was uh, um, Molly Holly working like the traditional match, like while this shit's going on. She always like, had her dignity. Yes. <laughs> now, Gail, though, has there even ever, like in this era, is there a bigger flop through no fault of the wrestler than Gail Kim's first WWF run or WWE run? <laughs> let me, let me, let me say this about Gail, because I think you have a point there, Vix. When she debuted on the June... I believe it was the June 30th Raw. And they put the, the belt on suddenly, yes. Like, as a kid, like, I liked Trish and Lita. They were my favorites, which was, you know, a lot of kids' favorites at the time, and a lot of men's favorites, too. Um, and, like, it made no sense to me, like, that this new girl would show up and win the title. It was really weird. 
And the thing is, I thought she had a great look. Like, like I thought, like, the Matrix look was really cool as a kid because I had seen the Matrix. And I was like, oh, cool. You know, she looks like, you know. She's Asian. You know, so they, they don't have it. They don't have anybody well, like Well, and at the time, she also stood out because she didn't have the implants yet, if I remember right. There's that, too. Yes. But go yeah. ahead. And, and and so it was, but it was so weird because like she won the battle royal, and I remember watching it live, and like it, it was like, huh? Because it, it, and another thing about this raw is my cousin taped this raw on VHS, and I've seen this raw like a hundred times. So I would like when I would be bored and stuff on weekends, I would you know turn in like the raws and oh the like all, one all tape the that you forgot to tape yeah, over uh-huh. thing. Yeah. Yep. 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 And so I'd watch it sometimes. And, um, like, so I've seen this battle royal hilariously probably like 20 times. And, like, the crowd has no way, like, they have no idea how to react. It, it, like, it was really bizarre. Like, and then they just, like, she had the belt for what? Like, not long at all. And then they turned her heel. Yeah. They they turned her heel. Well, well, they turned her heel to set up the the, uh, Lita's return to the ring, right? Because she, because Lita finally got back from a neck injury, something like she finally that. Was yeah. yeah, yeah, and then and then they had the Lita and Trish versus Gale and Molly tag feud. Yeah, um, and on top of everything else, if you were someone that was online and reading the Gale Kim hype coming with her coming into the company, you're disappointed as hell because they didn't let her do any of her shit. No, <laughs> yeah, I mean, like you know. It, it's but this period is just I mean this this match is a perfect example of it the whole match was basically so everybody could see Terry's ass you know it yeah, wasn't, it, it wasn't it. about the work it wasn't about you know it wasn't even about the characters you know yeah, it, absolutely it, <laughs> exactly that's exactly what it was yeah. but that's two three WWE excuse me yeah, and just another reminder why Gail Kim clearly considers her legacy to be impact. Well, right. I mean, <laughs> shit. She was there forever, too. I mean, she had, you know, a, a couple of, you know, decent runs of WWE, but impact is where she spent most of her career. Absolutely. And she was treated a whole lot better. So. And, the, and WWE never let her be herself, even in the second run. Mm-mm. She had to, you know, she had to go to superstars to have any sort of like match that she wanted to have, and even then, it was, you know, very limited. Yeah, she just came. She came along at the wrong time. It, oh, I mean, and of it, course, well, and of course, we need to mention too, on top of everything else, to show what the direction of the company is with women at the time. You both know it, but we should repeat the story Jim Ross tells, and. Nobody get on Jim Ross for this because I feel like when he tells it, he makes it clear that he doesn't like that he felt he had to do this. He's trying to sell Vince on signing Gail Kim, and Vince is like, oh, "God, I, I I don't know if they'll find Asians attractive." <laughs> and and Jim's like, "Well, you know, Vince, they have Asian themed porn sites now." <laughs> really? Oh God. <laughs> <laughs> That's how he convinced Vince to greenlight signing Gail Cam. Ah, well, they got blurs all over their dick. No, that's not what we're talking about. But um, <laughs> and then, oh, like, imagine you're Gail Kim and you know that you're working for this company. You know, when during the second run, where Angela Fong is in developmental, 
And then she, Angela Fong won't get called up and then gets cut because she, quote unquote, looks too much like Gail Kim when they look nothing alike other than both being East Asian. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, my. Uh, yeah, that's like the, well, that's like, you know, uh, the old wrestling territory deal. You can only have one black guy in the territory. Or Dusty. You don't have one, you don't have one Asian. Oh, Asian check. And to be clear, it was allegedly Dusty that would say that uh, you didn't need to have the black wrestler quota if he was there because he took care of it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. All right, so Shawn In Michaels fairness to Randy Dusty, Orton. it seems like he matured on such issues over the years as he got older. Well, yeah. Shawn Michaels pinned Randy Orton in 643 after reversing Orton attempt to give him a side slam on a chair, and it said Orton took the bump and the super kick. Dave's not sure what that accomplished because Orton losing to Michaels kills his legend killer gimmick. And it's all like Michaels needed that win. Yes, I, I remember being very frustrated this was a match at the time that was, they had the book for television and put and job Randy Orton already. God well, it didn't hurt it didn't hurt him. It didn't hurt him, but still. Here's the problem with this match. They they could have just ended it in a fucking DQ. If if you recall, they had this long they had this long build for Orton and, and Michaels at Unforgiven. That yeah. I think Randy won. I'm pretty sure Randy won at Unforgiven. Yeah. Um I, I I I'm pretty sure he did. Hold on, let me look that up. But like and it it's like and then you put him in a fucking seven minute match to build to a to a Survivor Series tag and you have him lose? Like and it, it's it, it was dumb. It was dumb. And you're right. It didn't hurt him because Orton because they did so much other stuff well with him. But it was just like it was dumb. Yeah, it's the shit they do. It makes no sense. No, no. All right. Now we're not going to play this unless I'm. You know, you guys no, really want to. We have twelve pages of to go to. So. Yeah. Yeah. All right. It's... So anyway. Uh... Shame it, Man and Kane had a meeting at a Chinese restaurant. <laughs> uh, a quiet discussion, as Dave says. Uh, Kane explained the reason he tried to electrocute Shane's testicles is because he wanted to make sure Shane could never have any ch- kids. He didn't say so, but Dave thinks he was trying to preserve the wrestling business. He asked Shane if he accomplished his goal. Of course he didn't. Undertaker was brought up on all this. The segment seemed like it took a month. Also, everyone knows that Shane's wife is pregnant. Because <laughs> Declan's born in the next few months. <laughs> so, this Kane Shane feud, all time favorite stupid feud ever. I mean, <laughs> totally absurd. Like, every, like, some, some of the greatest segments in the history of Raw in terms of just complete insanity. There's a famous one where. Where where they're brawling and and Shane, I think I think it might be Shane. He sets a dumpster on fire and puts oh, it yes. a slamming dumpster. Yes. yes. There's 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 of course where, where which was referenced here where Kane electrocutes Shane's balls on the steel steps, which is one yes. of the funniest things I've ever seen. <laughs> um, and this segment, which is also hilarious, as they sit here and talk like they're two mob bosses in an episode of The Sopranos <laughs> before before a gang war. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 their unforgiven match was crazy. Of course, the match we'll talk about later uh, in, in this show from Survivor Series is is another wild one. Just one of the most memorable feuds of the era. 
totally insane peak ruthless aggression era WWE horseshit. <laughs> it, that's that's the best way to put it. Absolutely. All right. So uh, the Dudleys beat Scott Steiner, and Mark Henry by DQ in seven fifteen when Steiner hit both with a chair. There's a strong push on this side to get Henry over as the world's strongest man. So everyone's supposed to sell big for his moves. Unfortunately, both Steiner, now due to his injuries, and Henry, because he's Mark Henry, look bad here. Oh, come on. Jericho, yeah. I mean, 2003, Mark Henry hadn't started getting the real love yet, though. No, he got... It's the beginning of good Mark Henry, but very few people are appreciating it. Yes. Yes, he was that that Goldberg match is very good. Um, he this was right. The, the, this is the very beginning. Bix is right. Like he didn't become great till 2006. But this was this this run, this three or four month run through the Booker T feud. He was good. Yeah, this, this is when all that's starting up. Uh, yes. All right. Uh, Jericho was browbeating a woman backstage. Stratus was watching this as. Uh, Stratus was watching this as man as this man was acting like a total ass clown. When he realized she was there, he nervously asked her for a date after the show. Despite seeing what an ogre he is, she accepted. More the story is that even the nice girls can be conned easily by assholes. Well, at least they can cut a good promo. No comment. Well, hey, Dave's right. I've seen plenty and I've seen plenty of nice girls get conned by assholes. So, ah, oh, the infamous battle of the sexes feud. <laughs> yes, this is the closest thing to Degrassi we we have in WWE, though. I will say that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the, the Christian, the Jericho Christian Trish love triangle. Yes, it's very Degrassi-ish. All right, uh, Booker T got a message while in the locker room that read, "I still remember." For the rest of the next match, Lawler joked it was from his parole officer. Uh, So Booker and Jericho... (laughs) We should note that it doesn't excuse it, but the reason that the Booker T teen armed robbery thing suddenly becomes a thing in 2003 is literally is that that's when Smoking Gun discovered his rap sheet and the mugshot, basically. Yes, and and that made the rounds. Yeah, I mean, because nobody really knew about it. I mean, I mean, they may knew about it, but nobody said would talk about it, say anything about it. I it the- don't remember ever hearing a word about it until that smoking gun story. Damn that Mike Barton for putting that out there and Billy Gunn. Mm. Anyway. Uh, Booker and Jericho on 351 after a Bosch roll up out of the corner, but they at least recovered enough to make it work. They doesn't know what was wrong here, but there are real problems with this match. It seemed their signals were crossing several times. Coach should announce Jericho won by DQ. All the faces and heels for the 10 man were in the ring with the faces cleaning the house. Coach ended up taking a 3D, which meant Hillary was bad ring the <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I, I forgot uh, the Hillary Duff thing for a second, so I thought that Dave's uh, word perfect auto corrected Lillian. But anyway. but the thing the, the thing is, uh, we've already seen that pitch uh, that little uh, Jericho thing from the show. Jericho was just drunk, nothing new. Or as he <laughs> would say in his books, drunkaco. <laughs> exactly. But anyway, main event. 
Goldberg, limping and selling, beat Batista at 211. When Triple H interfered to bring up a jackhammer attempt, Bam smoothed the finish a lot. And it wasn't heel heat, but the we don't appreciate a two-minute main event with a cheap DQ finish heat. They tried to send the people home happy. So after Triple H did a pedigree and laid out Goldberg, Goldberg made his whole comeback with a low blow and spear and running both Triple H and Batista off. Oh. I was pissed, man, because like they they did this really cool deal with like Batista and Austin a few weeks before, and so here's the thing: I was a big Batista and Orton fan, like even at this time, and I really wanted to see this Goldberg Batista match. And I remember being really pissed off that Triple H had to get his fucking big nose involved again. <laughs> of course he had to be involved. Just, I mean, it's it's Goldberg and it's uh, you know, evolution business. So, of course, he had to get his nose in there. So. But anyway, there's Monday Night Raw, a show for sure. All right. Uh, Raw ratings. Uh, 3.71, 3.38 first hour, 3.82 second hour, 4.61 million viewers. Yeah. I'm sure everybody would love for those types of ratings now. Yeah, not anymore. Yeah, g- j- anywhere, basically, okay? Especially cable. No, uh-uh, no. That's, that's the world of streaming, though. That's Absolutely. And Monday, night, and Monday Night Football for all money. Yeah. yeah. Well, they have Monday all Night right. Football here. Yeah. But again, it's it's just different. Hmm. And Monday Night Football this time was still on ABC too, so it was on national television. It was on the networks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Brian Danielson, American match at the Raw tapings in Boston. They did a gimmick where he they announced him from Boston to get a bay face pop as he faced Arch Kincaid. Poor Arch Kincaid does not get to be introduced from Boston. <laughs> uh, they, it, the crowd ended up turning on the match because he was working a technical holes-based match. And if you're an unknown, the crowd had little patience with him doing his style of match. <laughs> 2003 WWE fans, folks. That's the way it was. We don't want to see that shit. We want tits. I mean, that's what, exactly what it is. All right, yeah. uh, Steve, Steve Richards came out to crash all his music and after the wind fell to his knees and nearly broke down. Victoria had to console him. Rico mentioned Crash Hall has passed away in a pre-match promo, but it was more designed to get Richards over as a babyface. Lance Cade and Mark Jendrak worked international heat as subtle heels. Maven also worked as a subtle heel and doing a job for Val Venus, apparently getting ready for his turn. Again, it's a damn shame that we never got the uh, Jendrak, Maven, Randy Orton heel group uh, that... W- would have been amazing in this era because they were the, the those were the three dudes that hung out together and Triple H had to say I mean tells a story basically have hey he had to save Randy Orton from uh, from himself and, and hanging with those guys because they were uh oof. there were there were uh, so many stories that were floating around in those days of those three and what they did oh my god speaking of a fun what, uh, what the next paragraph? Yes. yes. A funny story is that after the Raw show in Boston, several wrestlers as well as many fans went to Kaloons, which is a Chinese restaurant that Shane and Kane were having dinner at, and where Boston fans know at the WWE events you'll find wrestlers there. So about one AM, Orton, Jendrak, and Maven 
did an angle in the restaurant where they faked the fight with Orton and Jindrak with Maven trying to break it up. Almost everyone there thought it wasn't real, according to the report we got. Some police must have been on as well as they took Orton out and he was holding his face while Maven tried to calm him down and Orton started yelling at Maven. When Maven walked away, Orton ran after him and tried to tackle him. Then Jindrak brought that up. Maven then refused to give Orton a ride back to the hotel. Anyway, the wrestlers didn't congratulate each other later on on how they pulled one over on all the marks at the restaurant. <laughs> you know, I was going to bring this up, and then I saw that it was actually mentioned. Because it was that week. Uh, that's incredible. That's amazing. So is Kowloon's actually, like, legitimately, overwhelmingly good Chinese food? Or is it just that they treat the wrestlers very well? It's a legendary let's, restaurant, Paul. Let's, let's see. Let's see if I can see it. I mean, it's it's a legendary. I mean, they're they're known as America's premier Asian dining entertainment complex. That's their tagline since 1950. But they're closing. Oh no! Yeah, they they they, uh, they close they're closing it down. Um, August uh, August 2001 or 2021, excuse me. There's a post about them closing down after denying they were closing in January. Hmm. So. Yep. Well, that's a shame. It's, it's kind of like what's the what's the restaurant in Baltimore? Uh, Jimmy Seafood. Yeah, Jimmy's. It's kind of like the it, you know what Jimmy Seafood is to Baltimore. It's what that is to Boston. Okay. So. Or De pa Well, this one was owned by a wrestler. De Palos in Buffalo would be another one. But let's just say that uh, it's a good thing there was no social social media back in these days for Orton, Jindrak, and Maven. Oh, God. Oh, sweet Jesus. All right, SmackDown reports from November 11th at Continental Airlines Arena in East Rutherford, New Jersey, in front of an estimated 5,500 fans. Report was this was not a good show. We have a dead crowd most of the night. Jonah Adleman from Tough Enough 3 did a dark match team with Chad Wicks and losing to Shannon Moore. Matt Hardy switching Raw is going to put him in the permanent velocity hell. It's, it's Sean O'Hare. What? Yeah. Fans remembered Andelman. He got a good reaction, which is interesting because in their dark matches and house show bouts in recent weeks, fans had not remembered Matt Capitelli and John Hennigan, who won tough enough. There are two velocity special good matches as Charlie Haas and Shelton Benjamin beat uh, Shofunaki and Dragon. Ultimate Dragon. Dragon. Yes, because we have the ROA special match as Spanky and Paul London beat John Walters and Brian Danielson. That, yeah, that is a quite the velocity match there. I uh, I checked those out. The, those uh, those both are pretty good. Uh, velocity of Honor, I guess. That, that there you go. Oh wait, you're telling me that a match that Daniels, uh, excuse me, that Kendrick and London had with Danielson was good? <laughs> and John Walters. Well, you can't win them all. <laughs> John Walters, the poor man, Josh Daniels. <laughs> you think Gabe had any input on uh, how that match went? He told uh, Walters and, and Danielson, you know, some things. Don't make my DVD product look bad. <laughs> <laughs> all right, SmackDown. <laughs> SmackDown was a weak show overall, although the wrestling wasn't bad. As Kurt Angle beat Nathan Jones by disqualification. When Matt Morgan interfered, as Angle got the ankle lock on, Bob Holly made the save. Angle did a great job with Nathan Jones, but not great enough to make Jones like a good wrestler. It was interesting because Jones would have been such an incredible superstar in another era, 
But that big guy's have to be able to work, and he's going to be exposed and not make it. Holly approached Paul Heyman for a match with Brock Lesnar for the title. Paul Heyman said that Holly is in, uh, medically cleared to wrestle until Sunday and ordered Holly as quarter from the building. All right, so next we have Vincent Mann, who he's having nightmares. So let's go to the clip. And of course, he's joined by Sable because it's 2003. Mm-hmm. And if you don't remember any of this stuff, don't worry. It seems like wrestling fandom in general just has a memory hole for 2003 WWE. Uh, basically 2000s WWE, but go ahead. Especially 2003. <laughs> He's massaging his temples. <laughs> his hair looks wonderful. <laughs> this is so cute. Come on, look at this great picture of you and your dog, Rocky. I got a lot on my mind. Come on, Sable. I know, but just look. look. Have you noticed she wears the same exact outfit every week? <laughs> That's Pretty true. She, she so does Vincent Missouri wears the same color suit on every SmackDown. What's the, in the book they're reading is the what? I think it's supposed to be a family app, a photo album. No, it's a WWE book. Oh, is it? It's the WWE uh, um, anthology or something like anthology. Oh, un- is it unfiltered or WWE unfiltered? Un- yeah, or something, something with like oh, the book with all the photos. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, yeah, there we go. Come on, you have to remember when he was a puppy. How sweet. Oh yeah, the hell of a dog, Ruckus. You know, he kind of reminds me of you. So cute. Look at that face. Yeah. Yep. I like to play with these. Kind of a tough dog. What kind of book is this? You show me this book, huh? You show me this book. I'm That's sorry. all I've got on my mind. I didn't mean for you to see that. I'm sorry. Look. It was Undertaker. I know that deep down in my soul, I know I'm protected by a higher power. I know that. Last night I had this nightmare. He's a higher power. I was dead. Yet my brain was alive. It's like I'd been buried and, and and I first heard these gnawing like sounds. And I realized it was the maggots. I realized the maggots were eating my flesh trying to enter my body and they all came rushing up to my head and poured through my eye sockets and ate, they ate my eyeballs and then <laughs> tried not to with all of my might but I swallowed st- I'll gaggle with these damn maggots and, and they <laughs> then went down to my abdomen and began to eat my insides <laughs> and finally I was able to excrete them and I rid them <laughs> from my body, but and, well, the stench was overbearing. It was horrible. And then I realized I, I couldn't move. I, I just laid there in that stench. And then the maggots began to eat that fetid feces. And as soon as they did that, they started crawling back up toward my head. They poured right through my eye sockets again. And the process went over and over and, and on and on again. Oh, God. And then finally, I, I awakened in, the, in a start. 
and realized it was just a dream. That's all it was. It was just a nightmare. But then the, there was that stench. And, and then when I was in bed, I looked down and I had soiled myself. <laughs> I don't know what this means. I don't know what it means. What does this mean? <laughs> what a segment that was. Oh my God. <laughs> Holy shit. So Dave, uh, so Dave said, I have that nightmare too, but in that nightmare, it's that pro wrestler is going to die. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Who wrote that? I mean, I wonder who's the one responsible for writing that. Now I'm sorry to wonder if whoever was responsible for writing that is the one claiming that I shit myself in uh, Devin's father's presence a few years ago. <laughs> Vince during this, I mean, Jesus. <laughs> I, I mean, there is someone on the writing team in that era that we know really doesn't like me. <laughs> and we'll leave it at that. <laughs> but Vince read that with such conviction. I mean, he was he was invested in that. He loved that. But he why does tell. he think it's feces? I know this isn't the only time, but... <laughs> <laughs> oh god does that oh, do, <laughs> oh, does that mean Luca Brazzi slept with the feces not the fishies <laughs> ah, I excreted them from my ass <laughs> I soiled myself <laughs> And oh, yeah, Sam still now. wants to fuck me. <laughs> Akio. Oh, yeah. Akio, the new name for Yang and Ryan Sakota being uh, Jamie, Jamie Noble and Ray, and Ray Mysterio Jr. made the save. Paul Hammond ordered a media match. Holla holla. Which ended with Tajiri interfered and Noble got pinned. Said be the best match. As Akio worked most of the way, and he's working the team. That was unique, pinning a weak challenger on TV for his title shot. Unless, of course, he's winning the title. So then a police officer approached Los Corretos and tells him that Eddie's wife's sister was in a car accident. Is Eddie married? Chavo wants him to stay because he got a title match. Finally, Chavo tells him to go, and he talked with Heyman. Chavo got a title match moved to the pay-per-view. Bashers came out and they went on doing a handicap match at Pinchavo. Later, it was from the Bashers had paid off a guy to pose as a police officer to swerve Eddie. That, of course, the story wasn't true. Yeah, this I think was the first time that Eddie was actually acknowledged as being married on television. <laughs> Amazing. How, how many times did they do the like swerve or like somebody somebody calls or, or, or like or like you know somebody pays off the cops or or, or 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 like hires a fake cop to tell somebody that like somebody's in a wreck that 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 was a trope that they did a lot during that era it was a trope that went for many eras i mean ole anderson 
did that deal in in Georgia in February '84, where it was March '84, excuse me, where supposedly the, uh, somebody came up to him and told him that he got a phone call on the back from Brett Sawyer, who had been fired, but nobody on TV knew that. But he hadn't been on TV in a couple of weeks, and only had a call from Brett. So Oli goes and takes the phone call from supposed from Brett Sawyer, and as he leaves, the Road Warriors are wrestling at the time. They're wrestling Jay Youngblood and Pistol Pest Watley. And Oli leaves, and that's when they take and, and paint up Jay Youngblood with white paint, you know, because he's an Indian. And Jake Roberts comes out there. Jake's booking. Jake Roberts comes out there, and he's tossing a quarter in the air. And he says something. I can't remember the exact line. He says, you sure could make a phone call with this quarter or something like that. And then Gordon Soley has this look on his face that, yeah, he realized that Jake Roberts was the one that made the phone call. So, yeah, this stuff was going back to then, you know, when they, they would do something. they did it a lot in, like, the yeah, I mean, they late lot, 90s, yes. early 2000s era. Oh yeah, it was a, it was a trope. Yeah, a yeah, trope. yeah, they did multiple Absolutely. times. Memphis would do it too, as well. They did shit like that. All right, uh, Bradshaw pinned A Train with a clothesline from Velocity. <laughs> <laughs> lots of boring chants. Lots of people left for the bathrooms during this one. And next, Sable's worried about Vince, so she brings in Father Frank, and they're gonna pray. So let's go to Vince and his prayer session. Vince looks tired here. In 2003. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Excuse me, Mr. McMahon. I can't help but notice Please. how stressed out you've been lately. And I'm really concerned about you. Who the... Who is this? This is Father Frank. To be quite honest with you, Vince, I'm really worried. And I was thinking that possibly Father Frank could help to relieve some of the tension. How did she find a priest that quickly? They're in Boston, Chris. I'm going to leave you to yeah, a you're right. to talk for a while. And please remember, he is a priest. Is it me or does her delivery make it sound like the priest is going to fuck Vince? No. <laughs> and 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 they're actually in uh, uh Bix, they're actually in East Rutherford here, but I'm sure there's yeah. I'm sure there's a huge Catholic population in that area of New Jersey. Oh, well, um, I've, I've, a lot of Italians up there, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm I'm sure it's a It's North Jersey, yes, it's New York City. Yeah. <laughs> and it's New Jersey. It's it's the best of both it's... worlds. Vince is just incredulous that there's a priest standing there. Look, look at his face. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> do you know who I am? Yes, I do, Mr. McMahon. I'm Vincent Kennedy McMahon. <laughs> and you're Father Frank. Yes, I am. So glad to meet you. Let me too. Won't you have a seat? Thank you. Now then, of all people, 
a priest to try and help me. Um, well, let's see. You're not here to perform last rites because that means you'd be somewhere else, not, not here. Um, so you're here to help me. Yes, of course. Then how do you intend to help me? Maybe, uh, maybe you'll pray for me. Yes, I will pray for you and with you. You will? Yes, of course. Go ahead. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be... Can I interrupt you just right there? Um, do you always pray with your eyes open, or are you just mesmerized for my presence? Well, no. I always do, yes. I say, I'm sorry, I was just curious, go ahead. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will... Can I just stop you right there? Um... Would it be more appropriate if, if we prayed on our knees? Then let's, let's, let's try that. Oh, let's get on our knees. Okay? Let us pray together. Oh, okay. Is this guy an actor? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in I'm just not feeling this. I, I don't know what's come over me. I, I'm not feeling it. I mean, if you can, if you can pray a little harder, I, I, I think that you know, <laughs> from the depths, I mean, come on, pray really hard for me. I think I'm feeling. <laughs> Go ahead, let's try that. Yes. Okay. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. I'm sorry. And I don't mean this to be disrespectful, you see. But you're praying for the wrong man. No, no, my son. Oh, oh, I am oh, praying you, for your soul. Oh, well, you see, you should be praying for the Undertaker. Yes, not me. You see, I, cause I, 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 I've already heard the calling. And the reason you should be praying for the Undertaker is because Survivor Series. I'm gonna stand before the Undertaker. Just as I'm standing before you. And when I send the Undertaker into that grave, I'm going to bury the Undertaker. And I'm going to send his soul down to the depths of hell. Hallelujah. You know he had to be loving that. <sighs> my my mother, who's a uh, devout Episcopalian, uh, I'm sure would love that segment. 
All right, so thoughts. Is that guy an actor or not? I don't know. <laughs> he's either he's either a great actor or someone who's never acted before. He's either doing an incredible, like, weirdly mannered performance, or he's just some guy who they're having playing a priest and who can't act. And it's very hard to tell which. <laughs> I can't tell either. I loved I, I loved his like very matter of fact delivery of No, I'm praying for your soul. <laughs> and I like how they was doing the Lord's Prayer too. And uh also he no, also I, has very like No, Mr. Bond, I I want you to die energy too. <laughs> oh man. I, I, I wasn't watching SmackDown this era, so this is, I mean, where, uh, I was saying Oh, right, this, this is, is the era where you were boycotting it because Stephanie was fake in charge. Well, that, no, not really. I mean, I just... Yes, I, I just it didn't... was. It no, tell I, the truth. No, 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 that was a gimmick <laughs> fix. Come on. But I, I was working gimmicks back then. But anyway. Um, but no, I just didn't watch it. And so, yeah, a lot of this stuff I, I just, I'm seeing for the first time, and it's insane and makes me glad i didn't watch it so oh my god but yeah you know vince was getting off on uh oh to, a, get... to a priest oh come on it's how vince feels about religion and shit oh, <laughs> oh and speaking of vincentism by the way we're recording this segment as nxt is on and you know vince has sway over nxt when trevor lee can't be hairy anymore you oh, mean Cam cameron grimes yes Yes, he has shaved off his hair. Well, his his body hair. Yes. I mean, there's well, he's, some he's, there. He's, he's shaved it. He's shaved it now. He's hairier than the average WWE superstar, but that's about it. I'm surprised he still has hair on his chest, though. So at least they did they did allow him to keep keep it. A little some bit. of it, yes. But he. But uh, I mean, he doesn't look like the same. Well, he still has the hair and the beard, but he still he looks different. Yeah, he doesn't have the pronounced sweater. He's wearing a light sweater now. So anyway, he's but yeah, more yeah. Uh, average week Jerry Lawler than Jerry Lawler. We played that segment <laughs> from a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. But anyway, all right. So yeah, Vince and uh, his god complex. Uh, Dave noted that people were in the segment at first, but by, by the five minute mark, there were a lot of boring chants, a lot of the wrong kind of booing. Apparently, this was a brutal segment. See, Dave is given the run down the taping um between that segment and the Ernest miller videos this meant that cr the crowd was down to about four thousand by the time the, they got to the main event in the ring yes dave does talk about the Ernest miller video but i'm Devin, i'm gonna go to you for that one uh describe the Ernest miller stuff here so it's basically like they're they're in a limousine and they're like he's got some he's got some guy who's like you know the guy with the fro that 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 was mentioned earlier. Uh, in OVW, uh, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and and they're like, I don't know, like dancing and partying with a bunch of women in a limo or or, or something like that, and just basically hyping up kind of like the new version of the Ernest the Cat Miller deal that they were like, I guess trying to trying to hype up at the time. Yeah, as late as this time in two thousand and three. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like. Like if 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 people remember, he was he was doing like Ernest Miller was doing commentary on Velocity and like O two O three, yeah. Like 
uh, at this point, Bill Demont was 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 doing color on uh, on Velocity, but so yeah, they they brought they brought Ernest Miller and and you know had him doing this uh, you know 2003 version of 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 his sort of traditional you know cat gimmick. Yeah, it was weird. Yeah, very weird. All right, John Cena, Chris Benoit beat Brock Lesnar and Big Show. When Cena pinned Big Show, they didn't move a chain. Benoit had Lesnar in the crossface at the same time. This was very good, but it was Benoit and Lesnar who stood out. Long matches, the whole thing took 17 minutes out of television time. Cena cut a great promo at the start, but wasn't focused on the way to make a new star in the ring. He comes off as just another guy. After the match, Cena turned on Benoit and gave him the FU. Dave guess that's, he's supposed to be unpredictable or something. But the crowd wound up booing Cena, which is hardly a desired response when you just turn someone who needs to be a red-hot babyface. There's a lot of controversy about the finish of the show. Dave Lagana wrote the show with Benoit Cena shaking hands at the end. But Michael Hayes said that Cena should lay Benoit out after the match. Attempting to position him as a new Austin. Hayes suggested this the day before Raw with the agents and the writers, and nobody agreed with it. But he went to Vince privately at 6 p.m. before the show and convinced Vince it was a good idea. They said that makes Benoit look bad and weakened Cena's turn badly and the crowd went dead. There was a locker room feeling after the show that Vince was lost to be convinced of that. And he and everyone are concerned about Kurt Angle. That TV taping ended at that point. The biggest news is that after a lot of politics and complaining because it didn't work live, the decision was made to edit out Cena's FU on Benoit to the two that won the main event. This pitch to make Cena an unpredictable guy like Austin was too soon to turn and Benoit straight to the point the fans booed Cena for doing so. They should have also had that Vince's interview with Father Frank. It was some of the worst TV of the year. All right. Um, so, Michael Hayes is on Raw. He's one of the main Raw writers. Here he is trying to screw up the John Cena turn. Isn't that something, Devin? It's interesting, yeah. Uh, I've I've actually heard this story before, and in fact, it was a pretty. I don't know. I've I've heard it. I've heard it before. I, it was it was uh, you know, seemed like it was probably talked about a good bit at the time. Um, yeah, I, this this goes back to the writers sabotaging the other writers' room type deal, and and Raw writers being on SmackDown, SmackDown writers being on Raw. Um, I I I don't know why this went on um i don't know if it necessarily hurt either guy but they never really followed up on it well it was all, it was only there live in the building that's what i'm saying it was only there yeah live. yeah yeah it was, it was it was only it was only live in the building because i watched smackdown you know a couple of days ago and you know it, it didn't show that because it was you know obviously after the show and it didn't it didn't make sense yeah uh, it was it was it was weird yeah. like it, it it's it's just a, it's just a, it's a strange thing to do. Um, I, I don't know what the reason for it was. Although I will say it was an interesting month for Michael Hayes, uh, considering the Triple yeah. H Stephanie wedding and and uh, now him pulling some politicking here. So, um, yeah, like <laughs> weird weird situation. Um, I will say this though. SmackDown was really interesting during this time because they had three people that they were sort of elevating, you know, because, you know, Angle was a top baby face and, and, and Lesnar was a top heel. 
But they sort of had Benoit, Cena, and Eddie all at the same level, and they were all sort of being pushed at the same time and all being elevated. Benoit was kind of a different situation because he had been up and down the card, you know, really since he arrived. Um, but, the, you know, they were really going forward with the Cena push after the face turn. And, you know, Eddie, of course, was doing his slow burn, uh, you know, with, 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 with the slow burn of the Chavo breakup. But um, a really interesting period of SmackDown where these three guys are actually getting, you know, a lot of TV time, getting pushed. And, you know, it's kind of like it's a, it's almost like a shoulder to shoulder thing where you where you're not really sure which one comes out on top at the end and and of course they they did a much slower burn with Cena in 04 and and Benoit jumped to Raw and 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 became the top babyface there for a little while and of course Eddie got the top babyface role um out of the three of those guys and and uh, Cena Cena got another year to get to get even more hot but it just just a really interesting period where they have those three guys kind of jockeying and and being being all sort of positioned to do some big things um all all at the same time yeah uh, it's a weird weird deal but that again i think i tell you i think this got off on that type of thing though so there yeah oh yeah oh yeah for sure with with those with the riders uh, uh you know fucking with each other absolutely they uh, uh they did an added match for the live fans as Brock Lesnar challenged Bob Holly to come out and got a title match. Holly won by DQ by a low blow in three minutes. Crowd booed the ending. Booking killed the crowd. Which started out hot, ended up leaving early in spots. Fans were surprised into Bob Holly, which mostly should be to just wanted to see so what you get pushed. Both of his interviews were disastrous, coming a week after him doing an amazing promo. People were mainly dead during Undertaker's promo, where he once again mentioned Bret Hart as one of the people Vince has screwed. Jamie Noble wore a black armband for Mike Lockwood. It's the one of the referees, man, been Brian Hebner. It really took the wind out of the sails of the crowd when they realized Eddie wasn't wrestling. Since this match was only one advertised, and all the television ads for the show surprisingly mentioned only one name, and that was his. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> and this isn't even a market where you'd be expecting them to lean on Eddie yet. This is a New York no. market show, which is yeah. interesting. Yep. Um,. Hmm. I wonder if I wonder I wonder if they were promoting it to test to see how to test to see how he was in outside markets because this Uh, is late 03 maybe there was already evidence that he was a draw oh they had already yeah by then they knew and by by November Mm -hmm. they know they're strapping him up soon yeah I I think they know Benoit's getting the other belt at Mania at this point too yeah yeah so much shocking that on Raw, apparently SmackDown from a lot of reporters I mentioned on Death by Lockwood. Dave really can answer the questions a while, but it came up rather classless. So he worked for the company for four years during his most popular period, which we talked about that earlier in the show. SmackDown did a 3.7 rating, 4.2 a realistic rating, estimated 6.03 million viewers. Based on those figures, and keep in mind the overnight indicating an average or slightly below average rating for the show, it would have been the second highest rating over the past year and the highest among teenagers in more than one year. Okay. So just as a reminder for everyone, I believe when Dave says realistic rating, he means out of the number of homes that actually get UPN. Yes. Because normally with a network TV rating, it's out of the whole country. But if you're on a little uh, weblet or netlet, like they were called, like UPN or WB, especially in this era before the UPN to WB merger into CW, there are lots of places that did not get UPN. 
Uh, Chattanooga, Tennessee was one of them. Because mm-hmm. uh, I've, I've lost uh, last year when I was on the show, I mentioned that I had to watch SmackDown on. That's right. Yeah. On, on Saturday nights at eleven thirty-five. Right. That's right. Right. That's... Some places Fox affiliates mm-hmm. carried it and stuff. That's correct. Yep. In, yep. It was, it was the Fox out. affiliate for a while. Yep. That's, yep. You sure did. I remember and that now. Also, it's this is these figures we have here. A reminder that people outside of in the Observer did not pay much attention yet to the actual viewership number. Because, you know, in terms of ratings points, SmackDown and Raw are very close. But SmackDown has like a third more viewers. And I don't think people realized how big the difference was at the time, for the most part. Well, you would hope so, because they're on VPN. Yeah. Yeah, on broadcast television. At a time when that still made a difference. Yeah. Yeah. All right, uh, the trooper that... uh was involved in any Guerrero angle was Fred Sampson of the IWF in New Jersey. So there's that. Largely to spectacular old school Survivor Series match as we move on to Survivor Series now. Uh, involving the Raw brand, supposedly in the career of Steve Austin, the performance of Shawn Michaels, Survivor Series hit a chord that few shows hit. The bloodiest WWE pay-per-view show in recent memory was highlighted by the apparent leaving of the company by Austin. The negative is that they're going to do the same well too often. It's Mark, the third straight pay-per-view. The main figure in the company's career was apparently over. Two months ago, it was Jim Ross and Jerry Lawler, only have a return barely a week later. In addition, Bill Goldberg's career was also put up. Last month, it was both Vincent Mann and Stephanie McMahon. For the third time in recent memory, after the invasion angle, and also in a three-way team match involving Triple H, Chris Jericho, and Austin events have had their careers up more than once as well. Her television career is supposed to be over, and once again, she'll be back very soon. This time, it was the biggest star of them all and did create what was a touchy moment of the two older stars with a bloody Michaels after being screwed, apologizing for letting Austin down. In the case of Austin, this marks his third storyline departure in two years, with the first one not being scripted, the second one with Bischoff fired in the day after Mania a couple weeks before he came back as general manager. It was one of those moments where you could have heard a pin drop as Austin talked about starting his career in Dallas and ending it in Dallas. It's a dangerous road having to do these stipulations monthly to have a strong enough angle for a pay-per-view, particularly when they're not adhered to, and fans are going to stop caring. And I like Mick Foley in 2000, and he needed to end up coming back, although it was not the original plan. They doesn't think there are many believe that it was, it was the end of Austin. Good point is that it's clear the company has a lot of long-term focus all the way through WrestleMania. Already teased as Undertaker, who despite denials, he's going back to his old character. The rest of the angle progresses exactly as his plan months ago, and he has let his hair grow out, which seems to indicate the plan hasn't changed. That's Undertaker versus Kane, and Brock Lesnar versus Bill Goldberg. There's a talk of other Raw versus SmackDown matches for that show, with the idea that many will be special this year by giving the all-new matchups. The first Raw versus SmackDown meetings will be in the Royal Rumble, which at this point is planned to be a dual-brand Rumble, with the winner getting a title shot. Plan seems to be for Undertaker and Shaman Man to be off for a while, Undertaker's departure for a few months, a sure thing. Triple H will be very limited for the rest of the year with a movie filming next month. The scheduled work around shooting, including the December 14th Armageddon pay-per-view in Orlando, which at this point is scheduled to have a Goldberg versus Triple H and Kane versus Kane main event. Okay, real quick, is this the Chaperone or the other movie that's exactly like the Chaperone? No, it's not Chaperone. It's, no, it's 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 probably. Oh the no, latter. it's Blade Trinity, it's Chap- isn't it? Yeah, I forgot he was in Blade Trinity. Yeah, it's Blade Trinity. AKA that movie where 
it's very obvious that none of the co-stars are talking about Wesley Snipes in interviews because they hate him. <laughs> yeah. Um, Armageddon in Orlando on the 14th scheduled to have Goldberg's Triple H came in event. That's meant to be confirmed by next week. But Rob Van Dam versus Randy Orton for the IC title is now on Raw. There's also a Goldberg Triple H rematch. The old roulette wheel stipulation to be had for the November 24th show in Salt Lake City. Triple H took the approach to making Goldberg as strong as possible. From a storyline standpoint, he did. It should make him seem like a bona fide champion. In addition, with Triple H putting Goldberg over so strongly twice, it would make Goldberg come off as totally unprofessional to everyone. So not agree to do his first singles loss to Triple H when the time is asked. They not only kept the match short by the main event standards, but put Goldberg over clean with a spear and jackhammer combo, despite his being injured, as well as lots of the interference from Ric Flair, Batista, and Randy Orton, who were all laid out. It was a slow-moving match, not particularly heated, but really the Austin deal had pretty much let the crowd emotionally spent, and none could follow it. Triple H said be fairly well healed up from his latest groin injury, but the nature of such an injury means any training is going to aggravate it. So he clearly wasn't in his best shape. Goldberg got the worst slow since the story of the match required him to sell in the ankle, and he did limp and sell the whole way. And we'll talk more about that when we get to the match. Despite a brutal show in some parts, in particular the gore and the McMahon-Undertaker match, as Vince apparently cut himself way too deeply, it was like a water faucet of blood coming out of his forehead, and the shame McMahon Kane stunt show, just about everyone came out relatively unscathed. Vince needed stitches in his forehead, and Undertaker needed stem in his arm. That match was shortened in schedule. You know, time was running low on the show, one match remaining due to the injuries. It was a major risk with good-sized open wounds, and an ending of the match that involved fighting in the dirt. Kane interfered to give Vince the win and set things up for WrestleMania. Uh, also, also, this is at least the second time in 2003 that Vince gaffs himself way too deep on a pay-per-view. Because he did it in the Zach Allen match, too. He bled a gusher at Mania, too, right? He he bled a lot at Mania, but it wasn't like either of these matches where you could tell he messed it up. Right, right, yeah. This this one was bad. Oh, boy, this was bad. Yeah. All right, so the show on November 16th at the American Airlines Arena in Dallas drew 13467 excuse me, paying $723,455. Preliminary indication from a number of sources indicated a significant increase in buys over the previous two shows. I expect this is a major and a probable, probable increase over the 350000 figure the show did last year. There was a late change to the show. As the Jerry Jamie Noble Cruiserweight title match was moved to heat, so they could add a skit involving Dallas Mavericks owner Mark Cuban, a wrestling fan from childhood in Pittsburgh who actually went to the same high school as Kurt Angle, has previously appeared on OBW television doing a terrible skit with Kenny Boland and John Cena. It's one of those deals you hope makes Sports Center and hope exposes a new star outside the wrestling environment, although Dave didn't hear any media mention. Cuban first got into it with John the Coachman, where he brought up coming to see Austin, kicker at Bischoff's ass. This brought up Bischoff out and led to an in-ring confrontation. After Cuban shoved Bischoff down, Orton gave him an RKO, and he did quite the professional job of taking it. When it comes to moving an advertised match to Heat, they should probably do a brief recap of the match and the high points of the pay-per-view. You could be done in less than a minute. They didn't think anyone's going to be that upset about the match not airing, even though it could have been with time, which one's going to get. The second best, best match on the show, conceivably. Now, everyone who watched pay-per-view also watches Heat, and if they would, almost the entire West Coast viewership, aside from dish homes, so the pay-per-view won't be watching Heat because it goes head-to-head. I this is really the only part of the this that this gets brought up. So let's go ahead, Bix, and let's play the Mark Cuban angle here from uh, Survivor Series. Oh boy! And Mark Cuban was this is Mark Cuban like really getting on the scene at this time. 
I, I, I will say this real quick. The Jamie Noble during match on Heat is actually pretty good. They do a cool spot where Jamie Noble like blocks the mist and gets a really good near fall with the uh, Tiger Bomb. So yeah, we'll be talking like, about that. It's coming up. So yeah. Boy, we've had some strange con- confrontations tonight, haven't we, Jr? Wait, wait a minute here. Now what? Oh, speaking of strange, what is he doing here? Uh, Oh, but look, look, look at look at what he's wearing. Fix this great. Here's a guy that should volunteer for enema research. Enema research. He's got a neck brace on, Jr. He got a little banged up. A little banged up on Raw last week. But what's he doing here at Survivor Series? Seeing a modern WWE show with the building sold it up. Seen any modern wrestling show with a building so lit up? Yeah, and shooting the hard campsite too. Now, I know that everyone's concerned about the brutal physicality. Oh, screw this! I'm skipping ahead. Well, skip to yeah, it's just skip to uh, to cubes when you come to down. Mr. Blog Maverick. Okay, here we go. He's in the crowd. So. And he has Chuck Taylor's haircut. <laughs> He's always had the haircut. Well, he doesn't have that haircut anymore. Wait, ladies and gentlemen. Now what? I just bought a... I also like how Coach has the neck brace secured in a way that makes it obvious he's very not, very obviously not legit hurt. Because <laughs> oh, it's so lopsided <laughs> and uneven. Yeah. Sitting in the front row, the Dallas Mavericks owner, Mark Cuban. All right. <laughs> Holy shit, I never realized how much he and Dan Lambert look like each other. <laughs> they do. Fat face dipshits. <laughs> I got a little bit of time. Do you, do you mind if we get a quick interview? Is that cool? You'll have to give me a second. I'm sorry. Coach is like Mark, taking over the show Great now. to meet you, man. It's great to meet you. We've had some great action all night already, but I got to ask you. You're used to seeing great action. What are you most looking forward to later on this evening at Survivor Series? I'm looking forward to watching Stone Cold kicking Eric Bischoff's ass! <laughs> well, Mark, Mark, I hate to tell you, but that's just not going to happen. So why don't we try a second question? Something, something you know more about. Would you prefer WWE referees or your best friends the NBA referees. All I can say is all referees suck. Oh. There's no such thing as a good referee. Bishop, what the? Coach, if you don't mind, let you let me handle this one. Go right ahead, boss. Go uh, Wayne Bloom. Here, I have no idea. What happened to the coach? Hey, you mean Wayne Wagner? You got something to say. Why don't you be a man and step up into this ring and say it to my face? 
<laughs> Look at this. Bischoff is uh, thrown down the gauntlet to the owner of the NBA's Dallas Mavericks. Now, wait a minute. Don't get out of your element. Talking about Castro either. No. You know, you may think you're something big around here. You may think you're a big man. But you know what? Tonight, I rented this building. Which means it's my building. Which means one of two things can happen. Either I can have security come out here and haul your ass out. Oh, come on. Or better yet, I could do it myself. Uh-oh. This shop is acting like a cell. His ass by Rick Cuban. Hey, 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 wait a minute. Randy Orton. Oh, Randy Orton, the, the legend killer. Where the hell is David Stern? What do you need him? That was an NBA level flagrant foul by the legend killer Randy Orton. I don't, I don't think he can do that, can he? But he, he just did. Get Randy Orton. That guy's an NBA team owner. Now Bischoff is a South Texas jackass. And he's not even from South Texas, but he's acting like one. And Randy Orton, the audacity of this. Oh, he's so proud of himself. Look at this. You all right? Well, Mark Cuban, the owner of the Mavericks, coming tonight to enjoy Survivor Series here in Dallas. And Gets assaulted. Well, I, I was enjoying this for a minute. Look at Mark Cuban knocks Eric Bischoff right on his rear end. And everybody in the American Airlines Center was loving it until, like you said, the legend killer shows up. Ooh, look at that. Great bone. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Referee hits him with conduct. Randy Orton should be a. He should be ashamed of himself. He should be fined or something. What an arrogant, cocky son of a Why is it that every member of Evolution <laughs> at this point wears gear that seems designed to show us that they're not Jewish? <laughs> well, look at Triple H here. Look at how you, you pause it. It does. Oh, my God. Woo! Are you going to have fun? Stop! Whoa! Oh. The champ cannot get weak in the knees yet, girl. Oh. He's got to go out there and fight. He's got to fight. But we will do this. We will drink a toast yes. to the new world's heavyweight. I'll tell you what, Nate, you worry too much. You worry too much because this match tonight is just a formality. Okay, whatever. Isn't this the era where Warrior is constantly calling him Puffy Man in blogs?
<laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, of all people, yes. But here's the thing. Here's the difference between 2003 WWE and 2021 WWE. If this, if that angle happened now. Oh, that would be everywhere. Everywhere. All the all ESPN would be having all day long on all their shows. Okay, yeah, you would be seeing so much about it. And back then, like Dave said, there there wasn't a whole lot of press about it because it was WE. And now their their corporate footprint is so huge. Anytime they do something like this, it's a major story. So yeah, that's the di- that's the difference between even then and now. And how they become in the corporate world. I'll say this: Mark Cuban's got to be one of the better like uh, celebrities who shows up because he was he was really good in the uh, Sheamus angle in two thousand nine, where he got like but, didn't he take a table bump. He gets it. I mean, he gets it. He's a That's huge the thing. wrestling fan. Yeah, uh, but he, I mean, he, he gets it. That's the thing. I mean, he is. That's him. I mean, he's always cutting promos. He's all he's got charisma. I mean, you you just see him. Yeah, I mean, that's just him. He he works in that environment. Absolutely. But anyway, all right. So back to uh, the show here. Uh, Dave gives the rundown uh, about what happened, and then the idea of elevating Orton and Cena as two new stars continued as both were final survivors in their respective matches. However, the impact of Matt Morgan's arrival probably a year too early wasn't effective as he was pinned by Kurt Angle after Angle Slam as a decision made to only protect Bob Holly with a DQ elimination. To the company's credit, it was the only DQ finish on a show that had 23 total finishes. That's pretty good. While the Morgan things in the long run can be overcome and will if he turns to a major league level performer, if you look at most of the defective characters in company history, particularly the Giants, they were all put over strong, Undertaker and Kane in particular, from the start in an impact situation. He protected because of his next surge on November 18th. It was a lot of the shine when he was in there getting clean wins with both the new Giants, Matt Morgan and Nathan Jones, for being pinned clean by Brock Lesnar's F5. The question of who to put over, Christian Waugh, house show programmer Lesnar, or John Cena, the star who just turned, ended up with both, as Ben Wally's crossface get Lesnar to tap out in the next fall, and Cena used the chain shot in FU to score a pin on Big Show in the final fall. The negatives there trivialized and beaten Lesnar as he's lost too often on television where beating him is nothing special. You know Benoit made him tap, no emphasis put on it when it was over, and they still had to continue the match. The last impact is Cena putting the FU on show, which lessened the impact of Benoit's win. That could be salvaged a commentary on in interviews on SmackDown, but should have been talked about at least by the SmackDown broadcast team, if not both teams. A few times, the rest of the show, if they're hoping to get a viable minute program out of it, is if Benoit's peak with the company was three years ago. It was just the ending of a fall. In the opening match, they never talked about it again. Later, when they brought Lesnar off a pro- promo designed to get the You Tapped Out chance directed at him, Benoit's name was never mentioned. It was Goldberg who confronted the team's potential Mania match. It should be noted that Mania's thing stand will be the last match of Goldberg's one-year contract. Dave's feelings any clean win over a world champion should be played up huge or should result in a top shot at the next opportunity. While Lesnar versus Benoit's headline house shows for the rest of the year, the TV image storylines don't even discuss house shows. And we're told Lester's next program will be with Bob Holly and not Benoit. It's not been decided, but there is a chance for Brock and Benoit at the Royal Rumble since the Holly program is expected to start now. Devin, what are your thoughts on the uh, creative direction here? Uh, well, it really didn't. Uh, uh, obviously, Benoit's peak with the company was not three years prior. It was about three months later. Yeah. Um, and 
a lot of people hated the Bob Holly feud at the time. I liked Bob Holly when I was a kid, so I liked it. <laughs> um, and I mean, the match wasn't much or anything, um, but but I did like the feud. I, I thought I thought there was actually a really good storyline. Um, the Benoit stuff on TV was really good. That that Benoit match in December. I don't remember what episode it was, was, was a great match. I think around this time is when he debuted the Brock lock, if I'm not mistaken. Um, I think that's when he debuted. It was maybe in that match itself. I think he had like a great match with Ray. And then he had the match for the title match with Benoit in December of 03. Um, but, uh, you know, I mean, it, it, it was cool that they were giving Lesnar different challengers, but I also agree with Dave here in that, you know, Lesnar tapping out. First of all, he tapped out, which is like, like always put over as bigger than getting pinned. And two, it wasn't the final elimination of the match. And three, it was totally forgotten about. It, it wasn't. They didn't put it over strong enough um, at all. That was that was that was honestly probably my biggest pet peeve with that match is that, is that they didn't really put over Lesnar tapping here. No, no. All right, we'll talk more about that as we go along. All right, Heat. Jamie Noble lost to the Jerry in 413 after a kick to the side of the head to keep the Cruiserweight title. With Akio and Sakoda did run-ins. Highlights were Noble getting near fall with Tiger Driver and putting the tarantula on Tajiri. After the dispatch above for Tajiri's buddies, Noble came off the top and was met with a kick, leaning to the finish. A little better than usual Heat match. Which, Devin, you talked about the match a while ago. Talk about how much you liked it. Short. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was, it, it was, uh, it was definitely one of the better, like, w- like we always watched Heat when I was a kid, like before the shows, um, you know, you know, to kind of get the hype train going. So like, this was this was fun, uh, and and it and it uh, it surprised me at how fun it was on re on on uh, on a rewatch. This was this was a good match. Yeah. All right, uh, Bob Holly, Kristen Wall, John Cena, Kurt Angle, and Bradshaw. The Brock Lesnar, Big Show, Matt Morgan, Nathan Jones, and the A Train at thirteen fifteen. Holly attacked Lesnar for the bell sound and threw down referee Brian Heather being disqualified actually before the bell sounded to start the match. Bradshaw pinned AJ eight A Train with a clothesline in twenty seven seconds. Show pinned Bradshaw to choke slam in forty eight seconds. The next several minutes were spent working on Cena. Morgan in particular did not stand out in any way as he didn't look big next to Big Show or the juiced up Nathan Jones. Angle finally tagged the end round while first pinning Morgan in 9-11 with angle slam. Jones tapped out the ankle lock in 9-31. Lester pinned him in F5 in 9-43. Benoit made Lester tap to the crossface in 11-53. Show chose slam Benoit only to get hit by a chain by Cena and pinned after an FU. Cena didn't look all that comfortable with 470 pounds of uneven weight across his shoulders. Benoit Cena shook hands when it was over with. Two and a half stars. Yeah, Bix, Matt Morgan, I mean, Dave brings up the fact that he thinks they brought him up too early. And, he, you know, we talked about Rene Dupree. Matt Morgan's another guy who, in another era, another time and place, they could have drawn some money with him. So they bring him and Jones up here, do this weird match where they're completely undermined even before it happens because their size doesn't stand out. Then they're both taken off TV. Then they're brought back. Or wait, or is this Jones' second run and Morgan's first? This was Jones' second 
in Morgan's first, I believe. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So then Morgan eventually comes back with the stuttering gimmick when his strength was considered his promos. And that's it until he goes into TNA and shoots his quote-unquote DNA into space and goes off and (laughs) saves the children or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But yeah, I mean, it's just... this is the thing about this time period, especially with the SmackDown side of things. You had these people that they bring out there, put on SmackDown, and they'll give a push to for like a, a few couple of weeks or so, and then they just fade fade down the cards. Devin, I mean, it's 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 wild going back and looking at this. Yeah, it's it's weird. Like, here's the thing: I actually like this match because they worked at fast pace, and yeah, the like <laughs> the eliminations were. Obviously, Rust in a lot of ways, and I didn't like the idea of Jones tapping and Brock tapping and not and and neither being made a big deal out of. But in terms of the pace of the match and and them like working like a hot opener, I actually like this a good deal. Uh, and I also I'm not sure if you want Matt Morgan, Nathan Jones, A Train. I mean, A Train's a good worker, but you know he he hadn't been to you know Japan yet, so. Which is which is where he got you know pretty good. Um, Bradshaw, I don't think had gotten fully fully good yet, in my opinion. Um, so like, there's an argument to be had that this match probably should be short. Not to mention Kurt's you know minor neck surgery that he had and and stuff like that. So I mean, th- there were reasons for for why this went short. But I mean, yeah, I mean it was it was a fun match. Um, but at the same time, it was like I don't even know. It's 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 a it's a situation where they had this whole group that they were putting together. You know these 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 big guys, kind of like this Brock was leading like this group of big monsters, and then all it was was just for them to have a thirteen minute match at Survivor Series, and then nothing else was thought of it. Like because because yeah, they right. built this they built this group up for like six weeks, you know. And they just, yeah, whatever. Afterwards, it was like, okay, moving on. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. <laughs> Crazy. But anyway, um, so next we have uh, Molly Holly retaining the women's title, pinning lead in 648 at the ring her head into the exposed metal, doing, undoing a turnbuckle. Key moves for Lena missing a moonsault, and Molly doing the Molly Garound finisher that Lena kicked out of. Lena is most charismatic the Raw of work has increased greatly due to Fit Finley in a year plus that she's been gone and it's noticeable. What are your thoughts on that, Devin? Uh yeah, this was this was not a bad match at all. I mean it wasn't it wasn't really good. You know, they didn't have I mean but everything was fine. Like you know, Lita didn't look like she was gonna fall on her head on a moonsault, so that was good. Um and and the uh the Molly go round kickout was actually really well done, and 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 the crowd kind of got a nice little pop out of that. Like this was, this was definitely better than you would think. But I, I mean, it's not something you would go out of your way to see. But it, you know, it was it was a fine little match, and I mean, it's 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 got to be you know noted. Obviously, Finley was a huge help. Oh for, yeah, for for these for these ladies because he you know if. He was the only person who was sort of giving them any idea how to work a match and, you know, any, any sort of input on how to put matches together and actually have some sort of excitement in the ring. He definitely deserves credit here. 
And their execution all got better in this era, too. Oh, oh, absolutely. For sure. For sure. Yeah, Bix, I was going to go to you with that and talk about uh, Finley. Finley, he made such a difference in how that uh, that division progressed in this era. I mean, it's, it's, it's invaluable what he brought to them. Mm-hmm. And they gave him this uh, women's trainer slash agent gig as a rib. Yeah, and look, and look what he ended up doing, you know? Yep. Yep, 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 yep. They made their company better. <laughs> Amazing. Um, can you beat Shane McMahon in the ambulance match at 1334? Almost none of this was in the ring. They were at ringside where Shane hit Kane with a TV monitor and did the elbow from the top rope onto Kane on the Spanish announce table. Shane looked like he was not loopy from the bump. They went backstage and the live crowd didn't like it especially when the picture went out twice on the big screen. Shane beat the hell out of Kane with a kendo stick and backed an SUV into him, knocking him through a glass window. He called for the ambulance, but Kane revived. They ended up coming back to the entranceway inside the arena and brawled all over the ambulance. Shane's head cracked the window in the ambulance. Shane smashed the door hard on Kane's head after the first smash wasn't so hard. Kane's forehead ended up cutting a little hard way from that one. Kane did a float over DDT on the floor, which appeared to take two tries to get down. The big spot was shanking off the roof of the ambulance with a drop kick into the garbage can while Kane was on the floor. They set up a crash pad, and while I got the holy shit chance, it was kind of funny seeing the pillow stuffings come out of the crash pad on landing. Finish saw Kane using a very well-protected tombstone on the floor on Shane and put him in the ambulance. Dave thought people were surprised that Shane lost so cleanly. We tell of each other, but it wasn't a good match. Star and three-quarter. Oh, yes, a early shame at man spectacle, Devin. And little did we know at this point in time that this would become a regular occurrence. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, like he he hadn't he hadn't been like this was, you know, uh, again, this is this is one of my favorite feuds because it's so ridiculous. Um. This is not as crazy as like the Kurt Angle match, right? But like, this has some crazy stuff. The ambulance door smashing on Kane's head is insane because the second one, Shane just goes full force and completely clocks Kane's. I mean, it is like, it 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 made me audibly yell. Like it was it was brutal. Um, yeah, this was this was pretty ridiculous. Typical. Typical Shane spectacle. Um, I actually don't have a problem with them working the match outside of the ring. It's just that the backstage, you know, they, during this period, they're always going backstage and doing shit. Like they, they did it way too much during this period. That was, that was, that was definitely a downside, you know, but. If they're there alive, of course it is. Oh, 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 absolutely. But, but, but the SUV spot was fucking hilarious. So I'll, I'll, I'll have to give them props for that stupidity. Mm. Something I never noticed till just now, though, and it's not exactly good booking. I mean, they're they're on different shows, but still, that's part of the problem. Shane and Vince are both in. Put your opponent in the thing to win the match. Matches on the same show. <laughs> yeah against, against brothers against Taker and K I, and I don't think the idea is for it to be like symmetrical is it uh actually I mean Kane does Vince, help Vince win the main event win the buried alive match but yes but I was but I don't this, think it's supposed to 
call back to this. Uh, I don't think so, but there is a segment on Survivor Series where she, where where Vince and Shane interact, and Vince goes, "What about that? A father and a son, both wrestling the same show against two brothers." Like, so there's 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 a segment on here where where, where Vince sort of brings that up. Um, but maybe that, yeah, that's the thing. Uh, yeah, well, let's talk about that. I mean, you have those moments that you would have on these dual branded pay-per-views that you never get anymore because everybody's everywhere, you know, at the same time. Oh, when you I would have watching like, Snitsky. The Raw Smackdown. Oh, yes. Well, I mean, not just that, but just, just the other, like the Raw Smackdown backstage meeting where somebody bumps into each other and it's supposed to make you, you know, want that future matchup whenever the time is right. You know, they would do that type of stuff or, you know, guys who used to be friends or tag partners and, Hadn't you know been on the same show as the other one in years and stuff like that? I do miss that from these uh, from these type of deals. That was cute. Yes, yes, I agree. And of course, they 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 they, they do that in this show with Brock and Brock and uh, Goldberg. Yep, yep. Set, which sets up Mania down the line, absolutely. And of course, Snitsky and Heidenreich though were the best examples. Of well, Royal Rumble two thousand five. Yep. Yeah. yeah. <sighs> All right. <sighs> Uh, all right, so uh, the Bashams retain the SmackDown tag titles over Chavo and Eddie in 7:31. The Bashams have new S&M ring attire. As mentioned last week, Chavo the Chavo Eddie things being booked like Brett Noah in 9394 for a slow burn. Chavo's man on heat that Eddie got taken in by such a bad actor. Although of course Chavo was also taken in at the same time. During the match, they didn't tease anything bad. Big spot was Eddie doing a frog splash on Shaniqua. And Chavo spanking her. Bash just on the verge of getting good when they went home. And only negative is they didn't have enough time. Finish was Chavo giving Doug a tornado DDT. And in doing the move, Chavo kicked Eddie. Danny did a switch for Doug, which Chavo didn't see. And Danny held the ties for the pin. Eddie was mad at Chavo afterwards, but they left together. The match they did on TV have been much better. Two and a quarter stars. My favorite thing about the Basham's bondage gimmick is how when Cornette laments linda miles existence he's like she had a bad attitude she didn't respect wrestling and she had no idea how to be a dominatrix <laughs> well he would know uh, yeah I, I, it's one of the more self-aware things he's said <laughs> um yeah he's an expert in that in that field and by the way i hope people don't think that's a shot no, it's not. It's not. He's happy. I'm glad that he's open about that kind of thing. Yeah, it's not shy. Good for him. Good trip. for him. Yeah. All right. So our uh, it's a big Survivor Series match. Team Bischoff, Randy Orton, Chris Jericho, Christian, Scott Steiner, and Mark Henry. Team Austin, Shawn Michaels, Rob Van Dam, the Dudleys, and Booker T in 27-27. In hindsight, this should have been last because so much time was devoted to it and nothing could follow also came out and got by far the biggest reaction of the night. Steiner did a band overhead belly to belly on Van Damme. It was just a fracture for being dangerous. He did then one off the ropes, but turned him enough to where it was safe. Booker pinned Steiner in 728 when Stacey Keeper distracted Scott and Booker at the bookend. Henry immediately pinned Booker in 757 with the power slam. The next few minutes were spent with everyone selling the idea that Henry's the strongest man in the world, bumping big for him. That's a new company doctrine to try and old school the Henry deal like the old time strongest man wrestlers where the foes would oversell. 
And then the three people that beat him. That's Dudley's game of 3D and RBD game of Frost Splash. And everyone piled on top in 10.03. RBD was next out as Chris Jericho shut them off the top rope and Orton pinned them with an RKO in 12.06. Jericho pinned Devon in 13.49 after flying clothesline. You should remember that at this point, Michaels hadn't tagged him once. So it was clear they were saving him for a big finish. Christian pinned Bubba after low blow and the unprettier in 16.53. This left Michaels against all three men. Christian catapulted him in the ring post. He big-time blade job. Shades of the 1980s Buddy Rose-Doug Summers match juice. Michael Super Christian out of nowhere for the first pin in 2028. Data's in the vocabulary to describe how awesome that finish was. But, but Michael's had a sense of timing and positioning that few wrestling in history have ever had, and it made this very simple move amazing. And yes, we're watching I just that right happened, now. Yes, yes, to cue it up to the right spot. And I, I always loved it when he did it like this where he would super kick the guy and just exhausted collapse onto them. This was, this was, I think this is probably Sean's one of his two or three best performances in his comeback. And I'm not a big post comeback Sean fan at all, but this was easily one of his few best performances. Well, and I don't mean this as a shot at him, but tights and full head of hair, Sean, was much better than assless chaps balding Sean. And I yeah. don't know if it's that he went on a big athletic decline, if if he was on something and went off of it or what, and that he had to adjust his style or whatever. But the first year and a half or so of his comeback is much better than the rest overall, I think. Yeah. Yes. 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 You can Absolutely. see the physical changes start to manifest here because he does not look as jacked as he did earlier in the year. Right. No, but he's still wearing the old HPK tides. Once he started going off of that and then transitioned to the assless chaps, oh yeah, absolutely. Which also, do right. you realize the level of knee braces he needed when he's oh, a guy that either that was happy to wear knee braces over his tights before? Yeah. Alright, so Michaels and Jericho were in there. Um... They traded big moves. Great few minutes. Jericho used a lion saw, but Michaels got his knees up. Michaels went for a super kick, but Jericho caught and went for the walls. But Michaels reversed it to an inside crate on 23.58. This left Michaels and Orton. Jericho cracked Michaels with a chair shot in his exit, leaving him for dead for Orton. Orton went for the crossbody off top, but nailed referee Chad Patton. Orton like he hurt his wrist on the landing, and with his luck, when it comes to injuries, Dave was thinking another big push going by the wayside. Bischoff threw a kick at Michaels, which led to Austin throwing Bischoff out and giving Austin a stunner. Austin beat Bischoff to the back, but Batista ran in and then Michaels with a powerbomb leading to the pin. The post-match was tremendous, as the audience was in stunned silence and Austin gave a very short farewell speech while humble Michaels kept whispering, I'm sorry. The emotion here was so different three years ago with Foley. People said it was such a good match, it was well done, but what was missing here is you could see deep down nobody believed it. They tried to do a happy ending spot after all this is done, with Coach coming out surrounded by security guards. Also laid out all security guards, gave him a stunner, said the final stunner for Coach. He didn't walk out, leaving two beer cans in the ring. Symbolic. Dave, thanks for what was done on TV. It's a farewell gesture on Raw when he walked out last year. Four and a quarter stars. And by the way, well, too, with the blade job, this is one of those you can see it coagulate blade jobs. I guess we need to play the Austin speech, Biggs, so... Let's go ahead and uh, cue that up. It has its own chapter mark, thankfully. So did I click the right thing? Because something happened with my 
chapter things. Here we go. All right. Yeah, you're right. Now what? I don't have a clue. Off to the music, obviously. Duh. Like that's the beginning of the match again. Oh, wait a minute. Fans on their feet. Here in the American Airlines Center, they know that. Well, you said it yourself, JR. There should be a better way for Stone Cold Steve Austin to go out than what we just witnessed. And I think I think it's only fitting that he comes out here and and at least said goodbye to the fans in his home state of here, Texas, and everybody, not just in the United States, but fans all around the world that are watching. They deserve one last look at the rattlesnake. Well, okay, for once, that is the Stone Cold Truth. Wow. I just, uh... Like bad news or relative. He's offering so much to our business. Look at that. Look at that. He sees, he's looking down at that mat, and he sees Shawn Michaels' blood. His entire team, they fought their hearts out. It was a piece of the Boston's carcass is spread around the world. With his issues of his neck surgery, well documented, the, the risk he took coming back for the fans, and, and now it ends here. Oddly enough, in his home state of Texas. Man, what's he going to say? Good question. What do you say? started my career in 1989 right here in Dallas, Texas. And I wasn't looking for it to end the night. And I ain't happy about a damn thing. But if it's gonna end, at least the one thing I feel, and I don't feel good about a goddamn thing, but I feel justified that it started in Dallas, Texas. And it's been a hell of a damn ride. And I appreciate every single thing that you people have done for me. So I am, excuse me, I am feeling at least somewhat justified 
that it ended in Dallas, Texas. There's been a lot of ups and downs, and it's been a hell of a ride, and there's been some good times, and there's damn sure been some bad times. And you ain't gonna hear Stone Cold Steve Austin say this a whole lot, but I'll go on the record and saying, I love the shit out of you guys. this post-match interview. So here I am. Oh yeah, and I, I decided to bring a couple of friends with me. Guys, go ahead. You see, go ahead, guys. Security out here. Well, remember when Austin <laughs> said the first face he wanted to see oh. after this match was coaches? You see? Yeah, I remember it. But I don't think Austin thought he was going to be losing. You see, Stone Cold, these security guards... They've come along to escort your ass out of the building. But, boys, 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 before you do, before we do that, I've got just one question for you. Just one. How does it feel, Stone Cold? How does it feel to know that you are through? You are finished. No longer ever in the WWE at all. Oh. Oh, the right hand. Wait a minute. Can you do that to security guys? Austin's oh, got nothing to lose. It doesn't work here anymore. Stone Cold kicking the hell out of the security guards. Cleaning the ring up with them. I don't know if this, well, I guess, like you said, I was going to say, I don't know if it's a wise move or not, but it doesn't matter, does it? And look who's left. Ah, look who's left. How fitting is this? Austin without a job. Are you going oh. somewhere? Oh. Are you going somewhere? I won't talk to you. I'm sorry now. I won't talk to you. Get out. Get out. Jonathan Coachman. 
Okay. I was keeping an eye on this, knowing how much Coach has talked about how he got concussions quite often when he got physical. It is very obvious he has no idea how to protect his head. No. On the rest. I don't know how much training they gave him, but like you can see when he takes the back bump coming off of the stunner that he has no idea when to tuck. He's tucking at the wrong time. And then when he rolls to the floor, he doesn't have his elbows out or anything to protect his to protect himself when he hits the floor. No. The one thing you can say about that bastard, he he was really good at playing that role that he yes. plays. Where you want to see him get the shit kicked out of him every time. And the thing the guy, I mean, he he was a fucking sports anchor. I mean, and he and he goes to WWE and WWF at the time. I mean, he's just you know just an announcer, and the way he transitions into that character is pretty amazing to look at in hindsight. He was something else, and uh, I mean, Devin, that's a good way to send. This should have closed the show. This honestly should have closed this show. Yeah, because it, the the heat was left, and I mean, there was no heat left. Like. <sighs> The last two matches were had really no response at all from the crowd. Like everybody was worn out from this. This absolutely should have closed the show. The closing shot should have been Stone Cold said it on the two beers. Um, but maybe they decided they didn't want to close the show with that because they knew he was coming back in four weeks. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he did. Who would have thought that, that Vincent Mann would be in the death match death slot as Vincent Mann began to take in the Buried Alive match at 59. There was really nothing they could do here after the last bout. Vince bladed big after the first punch. The man, this match had no heat despite all the blood. There were literally puddles of blood both in and out of the ring. Until he got the shovel from the gravesite, hit Vince with it. One thing about Vince is that he doesn't ask people to take it easy, Otto. Undertaker dragged him out of the ring to the gravesite. Somewhere in here, Undertaker's arm was all cut up. Vince made a comeback, throwing dirt, delivering a low blow, and shoving Undertaker into a grave. Undertaker came back, and Vince had the, had Vince in the grave, went to the tractor that was there to shovel the mounds of dirt, but it exploded. Kane came out and kicked Undertaker into the grave and saved Vince. This was not the miracle Vince pulled with Stephanie or Hulk Hogan, that's for sure. One star. Are we saying that Vince is better at carrying Hulk Hogan... And his daughter, then, or is yeah, it more like Vince's Vince is calling was calling those matches, and he's not calling this one? Look at Vince's face; he is the crimson mask. Look how look at the puddles on the on the mats. Yeah, yeah, it's it's bad. Vince bled really bad. This has to be his worst blade job. I think this is worse than the Zach Gowan one. Yeah. Well, in the Zach Gowan one, well, here here here's the distinction though. Here, he's doing okay enough to keep wrestling. The Zach Gowan one, he knew he fucked himself up and had to go home immediately. So we're seeing it pour more here, but the Gowan one was probably worse. Okay, yeah. 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 It's pouring, that's for sure. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) All right, um... But yeah, I mean... Jesus, look at the blood on the announcer's table. Oh it was. It wasn't good. It just wasn't. It wasn't good. You know. It was. It didn't achieve what they needed to achieve, Devin. 
No, no, it wasn't. It's, this was bad. Like, and when and 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 we can we can probably like when when Kane comes out, there's no heat to it. Like, it's really weird. Like, because when when he comes out, like, you know, there's the explosion and he shows up, and then like they bury Taker under the dirt and. Then there's like no music and it's really, I, 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 it was really quiet and weird and the crowd's tired and there's like, they don't really get the desired reaction. It's very bizarre. Um, yes, yes, it is. Yeah. It's, also, when Taker had Vince by the rail and was punching him, you could see van, fans cringing because Vince's <laughs> blood was flying onto them. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, oh, who knew I do the callback to uh to five years earlier here with the that's right. Cast. I I uh, I noticed Holy that too, Vix. Yep. Look at how bright that blood is on the mats. What the fuck? <laughs> I mean, two go- just gigantic puddles there. I mean, that that literally looks like a puddle of water in the parking lot after rain. And this is the owner of the company. <laughs> Barbarian geeking, owner- blood and guts. Look at that. We got creepy shot Triple H. Yeah, went too far, but <laughs> oh, I want to try to see the explosion or something. Yeah, yeah. The finish. But Oh, this is this is a spot where they where they mentioned back uh, uh right uh, right where we were, uh Bix, I know I know it's in a later paragraph, but where Vince like says something to Taker when like right before Taker's arm shows up being cut. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was it was it was a weird moment where Taker was like in the grave and Vince is crawling around, like saying something. I think he's like yelling at him to get up for another for the next spot. Yeah, wow. right here. Good lord. Yeah, just crazy. But anyway, so there's your Vince spectacle. We had a Shane spectacle and a Vince spectacle. Imagine. That. <laughs> and then there's a the main event. Bill Goldberg Holy shit, he did not protect Vince at all when he threw him onto the Mound of Dirt. <laughs> no, he did not. Like, there's Bill no Goldberg. way Vince didn't get a concussion there. Good lord, what the hell is this match? Bill Goldberg pinned Triple H 11-44 to keep the Raw title. Goldberg speared him before the bell. He beat on Triple H to give him a press slam, where his bad ankle gave way. Flair gave Goldberg a knee drop and beat him in his ankle. A funny spot was them getting all mixed up doing a half-crab spot. Triple H now Goldberg with brass knucks that the Earl Hebner was squashed in the corner. When, and then when Goldberg kicked out, Triple H dropped an elbow on Hebner. He went for the sledgehammer, but Goldberg got it and went wild. And then Flair, Orton, and Batista. This gave Triple H a shot at the pedigree, but Goldberg powered out. Goldberg teased hitting Triple H with a sledgehammer, but he set through another ring, pinned him at their spear and jackhammer. If they didn't him like this, he'd done big business for him. Two and a half stars. Yeah, I mean... They did what they needed to do, but it was basically kind of too little, too late. Yeah, it was, and not to mention this. This is this is this is a this is a personal aside, but I fucking hated Goldberg as a kid. Like I hated him in two thousand three. Like me, Dustin, and 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 our cousin Bren all hated Goldberg. We hated Triple H too. So this was like our least favorite feud of the year. He, he we, they they didn't know how to use Goldberg and it no, made him hate, it made him hateable. It made him hateable. And like the thing is, great story. We had you know like those uh, like those ticket raffles you have at like you know Southern Indie shows or like fifty fifty raffle. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we had a ticket raffle, and you know we had one every week, but there was like a bigger show, and they had a big ticket raffle, and uh. 
our our cousin had had it and he won uh he, they it was like something up like you know one one big prize would be up and so we were furious because he he especially was because he won a uh life-size cardboard cutout of Goldberg with the world heavyweight title so what we decided to do with this life-size cutout was and this was during, you know, 2003 when, when Goldberg was, was, was around. Uh, we decided to put the life-size cardboard cutout of Bill Goldberg inside our cousin's room and literally throw pins, pins, uh, pins and pencils, scissors, video games, and everything and literally insert them and break and, and let them – and basically create like an art uh, project out of the cardboard cutout of Bill Goldberg in our cousin's bedroom. Uh, yeah. So there was a giant cardboard cutout of Bill Goldberg in the early to mid two thousands in our cousin's bedroom that had like Need for Speed Underground two and like uh, a giant thing of scissors and and spoons and pins and pencils through his eyeball and. That's that's that that was our uh, that's that's how much we liked Goldberg back then. So that that's that's there my little uh, 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 story about how we thought about Goldberg at the time. Yeah, not lied by the kids, absolutely. <laughs> well, let's talk about the finish of this match. The tour said the finish of the match was supposed to come for the cane run in, but the bell ringer sounded the bell too early. When the ref turned too soon and saw Orton interfere, which he wasn't supposed to, which he wasn't supposed to see according to the layout of the match. How about that? Amazing. Shawn Michaels is extremely diligent when it comes to stretching his back and applying heat pads for his matches, trying to reduce the chance of injury. He retired several years ago due to chronic back pain, but was able to ease into it back into a regular schedule over the past year or so. The wrestling industry has a lot of traditions, but stretching before matches is not one of them. One veteran wrestler says one reason that while it may not have been important at one time, but it is now, it's because in the past, wrestlers warmed up in the ring for 10 minutes before taking their first bump. Whereas now, when the first minute, wrestlers are often doing top rope flips and taking bumps over the top rope because of the shorter TV matches and fast-paced style. Rob Van Dam is one of the few wrestlers who spends 20-30 minutes stretching before his matches, and his credit is one of the reasons he's been so injury-free most of his career. That's very interesting, Bick. Some very interesting uh, thought there. I never really thought about it like that before. Well, RVD's only big, big injury was the broken leg, right? Yeah. I mean, has he ever had a single major soft tissue injury in his career? No, not really. <laughs> Credit to him. Um, clearly, doing the DDP yoga and working it in has helped a lot of guys since this time, too. And, yeah. you know, good on Sean for it's adjusting. It's interesting that the yoga and stretching is helpful, but it seems there's a correlation with CrossFit and injuries. Hmm. Um, that's that's that's. <laughs> the, I, I know that's a debate to have, but I'm I'm on the side of I don't know if that's the best form of exercise to be doing. And so I think that's Seth and Becky. Yeah, <laughs> but you know Seth Rollins has had a bad injury before. We know Cesaro's had bad injuries, and he's a big CrossFit guy. I mean, I, I mean, I don't know. I've actually done. I actually did a little bit of CrossFit in college back when I used to be in shape. Haha. Um, <laughs> you know, if, it, like I don't know, ten years ago. Um, but yeah, that stuff's really unnatural, and like 
it's I don't know. It's it, that it even seems... by like regular like weightlifting standards and stuff, it's that the form is terrible, right? Yes, yes, yeah, yeah, absolutely. The form is awful. Like it, it's not natural. It's not safe. Like it, it, it doesn't. It's yeah. It's not. And of course, you know, they're applying this stuff to their matches, and you know, when 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 things go wrong over time, you know you get these soft tissue injuries and, and they're bad ones at that. I mean, that's, you know, there's, there's, there's arguments and discussions about the, you know, the positives and negatives of CrossFit, but I've always kind of thought that, that it's, it's an interesting discussion to have because there's, there's, there's an awful lot of uh, bad injuries like that lately. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All also right. interesting when you think about it too. I mean, granted, they're all early in their careers to different degrees, but still early in their careers. That being that they had this CrossFit gym to themselves, and also, you know, some of them I know are still at it. That none of Rollins' students have uh, have gotten any bad injuries yet from doing CrossFit or anything. But fingers crossed on that. Right. Uh- all right, more from Sunday. Vince, Sean, and Undertaker each received stitches after the pay-per-view. Vince and Sean from Blading take her hard way. Taker suffered a hard way killing his right arm, and he and the shovel fell into the grave. Well, that's how it happened. Vince, during the pay-per-view, actually kneeled over to check on Taker and paused if something was wrong. There you go, Devin. When Taker climbed out of the grave, a moment later, he clutched his right arm, his arm and chest and leg were soaked in blood. The injury wasn't any more serious than a gash, though, but it was said to have been really nasty. So there it is. There's, your, there's the answer to your questions. There you go. Vince was just seeing if he was all right. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Yep. Kurt Angle underwent an MRI test last week after his left hand went numb and he experienced a sore neck. He attributed the symptoms to a chair shot he took several days earlier, but nevertheless, it was a sign he might have been having more neck problems. There was initially concern the problem could be serious, but when MRI results came back on Friday, it revealed a bone chip was impinging on a nerve. He required surgery this week. But nothing nearly as serious as a major surgery he had in his neck after WrestleMania earlier this year. He isn't expected to miss much ring time. As we would learn further, you know, as we got more details on this, uh, the chair shot literally undid the surgery that Dr. Joe had done on him a few months earlier. Yes. That one chair shot to the head. Wow. Mm-hmm. As I think we've discussed before, that surgery was probably fantastic if you were retiring from wrestling. Yep. It was probably, you know, and, you know, there have been advances in the less invasive spinal surgery since, too. But if you were going to keep wrestling, you couldn't do that. Like, has an angle gotten like 20 plus surgeries from Dr. Joe? He's got a lot. Don't know how many all together, but he's got a lot. Yes, and I, and I mean, besides also the rehab and getting his life in order, it does seem like Kurt just... It seems like he's just doing a lot better in general now that he's not wrestling anymore. That's what it takes for some people, absolutely. Alright, there's concern that with Cena that his turn will hurt him based on how Eddie's turn has gone. Eddie was being cheered by fans who enjoyed his character right before he officially turned. Once he turned, his character changed from cocky and confident and clever to a lost soul with no confidence. There are a few eyebrows raised by the Ray when Cena, regarding Cena, when he wasn't the focus of the final second of the angle that concluded the SmackDown during which he had returned earlier. This is one of those instances where 
I think part of it is just trying to balance pushing both those guys at the same time and some some wires were maybe crossed a little bit and and there's I, I think I think I think that might be part of it. Um well, the thing is about, you know, the turn, though. I mean, that's what happens when you turn a heel who has gotten over and you start and you make him a baby face. Right. He's not he's not he's not that cool guy anymore because he's sure. not the heel. You know, it's kind of like when it's kind of like when you you know legalize marijuana, you know, you legalize marijuana and and make it legal and it's all, you know, it's easy to get blah, 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 blah. The danger factor's gone now. You know, the fact that, ooh, I'm doing something that's considered illegal and, and, and like that, it's gone. The danger. I th- I thought they did a good job, though, going into 04, where they sort of evened out both characters and they were a little bit more – I mean, they were both clearly baby faces, right? But they, but they kind of both went back to – like like once Eddie won the title and, and once Cena, like – you know, Cena never really changed either. You know, at least at least in 04. they they both were still kind of the same character, um, but they were just babyface. I think. Yeah, um, but it's still. I mean, and, and Cena was able to 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 make it work, but there have been others that who could. No, well, right, we've, right, right. We've seen that. Sure. Um. That continues to be head scratching, still a torch. Continues to be head scratching WWE circles over how poorly Rey Mysterio has been used the past few months. He was a top merchandise seller and is considered by virtually everyone to be a special talent with big money charisma. He's been treated as an opening match wrestler and put in matches that haven't highlighted his strengths. Surely to draw this conclusion, it was possible Kurt Allen brought Lester may become the Triple H of SmackDown and that they protect their turf and snuff out any threats to their spots, says one WWE wrestler, who believes perhaps Rey was getting a bit too popular. For Angle and Lesnar's comfort. In this era, one thing you notice that's a strength of the torch over the Observer is that Wade will just see something like this, which is not necessarily something that's like in the news. And he'll just ask wrestlers and people in the office and creative and stuff, hey, what's up with this? What's up with that? But you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, you don't get it from the, you do not get this from the Observer. No, absolutely not. Um, yeah, it's always interesting when he has these little tidbits in there, you know. I always like it when I see him in the notes, for sure. So, But yeah, I mean, R- Ray was cycled down the cards. So he would get back up, but still. Yeah, he was, yeah. R- Ray was cycled up and down the cards for pretty much his whole run. <laughs> um, you know, that was kind of his, his sort of role was to be cycled up and down. Um, like... He was big when 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 Heyman was writing the show, and then he was he was really cycled down for the majority of two thousand three. He didn't really get he didn't really get brought back into the main event spotlight until the Eddie Feud in '05. Really, basically, yeah, yeah. And like you say, it was just, he bounced around. Uh, but he had stand power, so he was able to to, to uh, you know. You know, tough it out, and he would get rewarded in the end. Uh, this is from Figure Four Weekly. The guys are being told to start calling stuff in the ring as opposed to scripting out their matches completely advanced. For some of the older workers, it's a good thing because that's how it used to be. And uh, for some of the young guys though, who are brought up choreographing everything, it's going to be a major change. Yeah, I mean, this doesn't last long, though. 
before they go about the choreograph and everything. No, and like we always say, the issue is not laying out a match move for move. It's being able to improvise in case it goes wrong. Correct. Like, yeah. if you feel like you can have a better match by doing that more power to you, it's just the issue is whether or not you can recover if something gets messed up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Um, Foley, that's Dave, has handed a potential match Triple H and or Orton in some of his speeches of late, as he's been touring college campuses. Of course, Triple H versus Orton was the plan at one point, but Dave doesn't think anything is locked because he's heard other names mentioned as possibilities from Triple H at Mania. Foley sees negotiating to do Mania and could wrestle a match every six months or so if asked. When looking back on his career, his thoughts on what he would change is, for many, many years, I thought every paying person deserved the best match I could give them. I should have taken a little easier at those high school gyms and armories so I'd have a little fuel in the, left in the tank when I hit the big time. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that's probably true. And you know what, Devin? That's probably something that a lot of these independent wrestlers need to think about today. Uh, yeah. Um... <laughs> I see crazy apron bumps no matter what show I go to uh, and people doing crazy dives to the floor and, and all sorts of wackiness. Um, yeah. People, people would, would, would be best to learn, uh, you know, maybe, maybe dial it down a bit sometimes. Um, you know, you can I, do it, but don't do it all the time. Yes, yes, all the time. I mean, they're doing it every weekend, man. It's like, you know, have have a quote unquote house show match, right? You know? Exactly. Stick it up. And there's some some of them do that, but there are a lot of them. I mean, they go full force, and 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 God bless them for their you know wanting to do that for the crowd or whatever, and wanting you know to entertain the audience. But you gotta think about yourself sometimes. Yes, you know? for sure. <laughs> yeah, uh, I've I've we've seen too many injuries on the Indies lately. Yes, for well, for years we've seen too many injuries on the Indies. So, and they ain't on no contracts on the, in the Indies. So, yeah. Nope. All right. Um, in media, Pierce's angle's been pushing the idea of Benoit's a headliner hard, believing he can handle the position. He said he thinks Benoit's good enough on interviews and considering him the best wrestler active in the company. Well, there's that. So, and Benoit was a hell of a wrestler at this point in time. Absolutely. There's no lying there. WWE's also a $2 million ad campaign to promote SmackDown. And then this past week, Sports Illustrated showed Tori Wilson's face, her top half in a bikini top, and Stacey Keebler and her butt in a bikini bottom and didn't push wrestling at all. They're using that ad in Entertainment Weekly and have a new TV ad set up for running on Adult Swim on the Cartoon Network and all over TNT and TBS with a tagline, Smack Your TV. The TNT TBS ads are part of the deal where WWE purchased WCW as they promised to buy millions in advertising over the next several years on the two stations. I remember the Smack Your TV stuff for sure. Absolutely. That was like all over the place for a while. <laughs> Like, yeah, th that was all over the place. I, I definitely remember that tagline. Um, and I s sort of remember it basically involving Tori and Stacey, too, like in terms of like, you know, tr trying to get that 18 to 34 male demographic. As, yeah, exactly. Bix. I was, was going to go to Bix with that. It seemed like at this time they were definitely pushing Tori and Stacey 
as much as anybody uh, in the uh, in the media ad. That variety story I found a few weeks ago that I tweeted. Let me see if I can find it. Was that 03 or 04? When was that from? I don't remember. Um, that, the, that was about how they were just losing tons of viewers in the younger demos. I'll check real quick. But yeah, this, excuse me, they seem to be, I don't know if panicking is the right word, but they definitely seem to have concerns. But you, you know, it, have until it's, recently. it's it's interesting to think about this because you can't use that strategy anymore for various reasons. But one reason is is that the younger males, and believe me, I work with them, high school age guys and stuff like that. Um, they are way different when it comes to how they talk about women than it was when I was in school. And, you know, and, and all that goes, has gone to how much has changed in how women are portrayed in media and stuff like that. I mean, it, it is a different world when it comes to that way. So the, the age of, you know, trotting out, you know, Tori and Stacy of you know, some like that, uh, you know, in this era, it really wouldn't have that effect as it would have had back in this time period because of how different things are with uh, the thoughts of, of women and how they've been uh, exploited sexually. You know? It really is interesting to look at that. Yeah, and as you say that, I was trying to see on ProQuest if I could find that ad in anything, which I couldn't because they don't have Sports Illustrated and other magazines they do have at it. But I did find a Stacker 2 ad with Stacy in it, that part of it is that they show a guy staring at her, and the little caption is, he spots his prey. God. <laughs> That's another I mean, yeah, thing you wouldn't get today. Yeah, you, you, can't, you can't do that anymore. And, this, what, and what year is that, Bix? Oh, three. Yeah. Exactly. And it's good that you can't do that anymore. What's that? Well, yeah, I mean, times have changed. But in that way, I mean, but it, we're like that for years, you know, and, and various different th formats, uh, you know, whether it's that or just how women were portrayed altogether, you know, as being weaker than men. So, yeah. All right. Broadcasting and Cable, one of Bix's favorite magazines, right on the front page store in WWE, said wrestling is stumbling, trying to find a new star after Hogan and Rock has left. Austin gets no mainstream respect. Leaving the cup in the hands of such relatively anonymous hulks as Goldberg, Randy Orton, Brock Lesnar, and Eddie Guerrero. He talked about the ratings drops, revenue drops, and declines in the male age 18 to 34 age group compared to numbers three years ago. It was interesting to see how mainstream pub categorizing Goldberg, who five years ago was a major mainstream celebrity. The conclusion they came to was the fall of the past few years because The Rock left, which anyone who follows this knows has given Rock far too much credit. Because it doesn't like business turn around when he was around. The story talks about the new ad campaign. Publication speculated U UPN would renew WWE because even though the ad rates are among the lowest on network television, WWE pays for, pays for the production, and UPN will take in an estimated $73 million in ads on the show the next year. Yeah, we forgot to talk about that earlier, actually, that the change on SmackDown was that uh, 
they went it went from WWE buying the time and selling the ads to get a getting a straight rights fee. Mm-hmm. Which again is something no one ever talks about anymore. Everyone just remembers it as they got UPN and they assumed they were being paid, and then that it was kind of what's the word I'm looking to oh folded into the Viacom deal, but it wasn't. Nope. So Yeah. I mean, it, again, it's just it, it's a different thing, you know. Um, Devin, you're, I mean, this is your age demo right now. I mean, so what – of the people that you, you know, deal with at your job, do any of them, like, watch wrestling or even – wrestling is even on their radar? Or, and what is on their radar? Because I'm curious to see if your story matches my story. <sighs> Uh, nobody really watches wrestling anymore. Uh, in in my age group, that's not really a thing. Um, the people that the stuff that people watch is, of course, sports. Um, you know, obviously NBA and NFL are very popular. Um, college football, obviously, being in the South, is very popular. Um, what about video a non- game? Okay, um, yeah. Video gaming is huge. Yep. Uh, like, Sports yes. video games, 2K, people play 2K together, Call of Duty. Um, I remember when Red Dead Redemption 2 came out three years ago. Everybody at my job was going crazy about that. Um, like anytime the new video game comes out, that's like the topic of discussion at lunch and on the break room. Like, what about what about uh, streaming? Like uh, like a, a oh yeah, TV shows. Oh yeah, Netflix, all that's just, all that's oh, just to talk. Absolutely. I mean, like, I ignored that because that almost goes without being said, right? Like, yeah, I mean, it's like, insane. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's that's totally the topic of the day. I mean, everybody's talking about the the new hottest show and and the new season of whatever. You know, it's 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 that's that's how things are. I mean, you know, the only thing that's kind of been a constant is sports. You know, everybody will talk about sports, but because it's, li- it's a lot. It's sports is live, and it's not worked right exactly we do we do have those uh moments where officials can uh influence a game in their own way but it's not worked it's not something that's you know booked out in advance right right correct so yeah it it is sports i mean it's just going to be that's in the lexicon of our nation but yeah i mean there's so much stuff now to you know, digest from, you know, media wise compared to even 2003. Cause let's look at in 2003, I mean, you have salad dishes and stuff like that. And, and people are getting more salad dishes to cave. They're getting more of a digital cable presence and stuff like that, but there's no streaming. There's no YouTube. There's no Netflix. There's none of that stuff around here at this time. So, you're still kind of limited in scope and what you can watch on your television set or your computer, you know, right. It's just, a, it's, it's a different time, but yeah, yeah. The young guys I work with though. Oh, they don't get, they don't give a shit about wrestling. It's all about sports, more, anything Marvel related, uh, yeah. TV wise and stuff like that. They're always talking about the, the, the latest hot shows on the, on Netflix or Hulu or whatever, so Squid Game yeah. or something. Squid like that. Game. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Nobody cares about wrestling anymore. Absolutely not. Not mm-hmm. among the masses. 
there's that niche audience that still watches, but that's it. It's not growing per se. Oh, I pull, was able to pull up the article. Um, how much do you think they dropped in men 18 to 34 since the 2000, 2001 season? Uh, probably, uh, uh, probably a good full ratings point. 41%. Oh, wow. That's over a third. Good Lord. Yeah. The declines have stemmed some this season still compared with last year at this time. Male teens are off 8% season to date. While men 18 to 34 are off 19%. Yeah, and, and, and when you talk, and when you talk to people from that used to watch, you know, in that in that previous era, I mean, one of the main reasons why they quit watching was because of people like The Rock not being around anymore, and Austin not being around Too anymore. Too much Triple H. And, well, not, no, I'm gonna say that. Uh, That's one not, I hear a lot. On top of those, not a, yeah. not well. And, and, and other things too. I mean, but the, but uh, well, you know, I've told this story before in the air. I, I know a lot of guys don't want to watch the show because the women aren't treated like they used to be. They they liked it when the women were treated as sex objects. But they're That's still doing the, that in this show. era, though. They're going hard. In this, in I'm about, I'm, yeah, I'm talking about now. I'm talking about I know, I, but I'm talking about when we have these big sudden drops. Yeah, and and these are guys that are in their late thirties, early forties that used to watch back in the day. So I ain't watch wrestling no more. You know, it ain't like it used to be in the good old days of 1998. <laughs> 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 but anyway, all right. Uh, speaking of treatment of women, Don Callis's column in the Winnipeg Sun of the weekend started a ton of speculation about Rhino's future. Callis noted he and Scott DeMora who helped train Rhino and now works on the teenage writing staff met up with him last week. It was just a social deal as all three have known each other for years, but people took it to mean he was going to jump to TNA when his contract expires in a few months. It's easy to believe, given Rhino's push being brought to a halt ever since the incident with Vincent Mann at the Nassau Coliseum House show, which we talked about on this show a while back. And he's been buried ever since, including jobbing the Scotty Two Hottie for Velocity this week. Rhino has a one-year-old daughter, and if you understand that, he's not leaving for TNA unless they make him a substantial offer, which doesn't seem likely because they haven't tried to bid for talent whose deals are coming up. Well, guess where he ends up? TNA. <laughs> huh. Rhino and TNA with Scott Tamor and Don Callis, you say? Mm-hmm. Huh. Interesting. Sean. Joni Lauer was on VH1 this past week claiming she was bulimic in her days at WWE. She claims she used to pass out while purging herself and wake up with a bump on her head from hitting on the toilet. Jeez. Yeah, she had a hard time. Hard time. Speaking of... To the torch, Christian Nowinski has been seeing a headache specialist. He's been having bad headaches, believed to be a result of concussions he suffered before and during his wrestling career. He has an outside chance to be released to begin working out in the ring again sometime in the next few weeks. His condition is improving as his headaches are getting further and further apart. Do not be clear to return to the ring until doctors are 100% sure he won't do more damage, because if he were to return too soon this time, his career could be over. I believe the guideline they set... Was that he had to go something like three months without a headache? And I believe he never got there. Yeah, this is ominous for the future, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> wow. And God knows how many concussions he had before wrestling, too. Yeah, from, yeah, from playing football. Absolutely. You definitely get him there. 
Big Show was did appearance at the November 14th Houston Rockets Phoenix Suns game to vote SmackDown tables in the Toyota Center. At one point, Show was next to Yao Ming and looked at least six or seven inches shorter. <laughs> that reminds Dave of a famous story from many years ago when Manute Bowl wanted to meet Andre the Giant. Bowl came to where Andre was, and Andre refused to stand up to expose that Bowl was nine or ten inches taller than he was. He refused to pose for a picture and didn't want to acknowledge him at all for fear of an inadvertent photo be shot. Amazing. Show also did a radio interview the next day in town to promote the tape. He said he weighed 470 pounds as his real weight, and that works out. Which Dave sure thrill—he sure thrills the rest of the crew that trains their asses off to keep in shape. He says he wears a size 23 ring. They also know that a local cardio ship was giving away tickets to the show, so they're doing more papering. In the 80s, companies do a lot of papering on TV tapings, feeling you need the full building. And contrary to popular belief, Hulk Hogan did not mean an automatic sellout at most points in the 80s. In recent years, there's not been so much papering as they simply close down large sections of the arena and sell the seats facing the cameras first. I want to see Andrea Manu bowl. <laughs> yeah, so I don't want. I literally did <laughs> the same thing when I read that story. Holy uh, shit. <laughs> Even though Manu Bowl was taller, Andre was so bit much bigger than he was. Oh, yeah. Still looked like a damn giant next to him. Oh, oh yeah, for sure. But it would kill it would kill the aura too. So all right. Uh, Goldberg has become more of a team player and less of an individual behind the scenes. He is fitting in more, according to Newman Sources. A torch reader showed Goldberg the torch talk with Raven. He has some unflattering comments about Goldberg. Goldberg got upset when reading it and said Raven was just jealous. Fix, <laughs> don't you hate Jew on Jew crime? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Goldberg will be starting a low-budget movie called Santa Slay, where he plays Santa Claus, following the, on the footsteps of Hulk Hogan's memorable performance in Santa with Muscles. <laughs> the movie will be filming in late January and early February in Edmonton. He said he won't miss any Raw since he's getting Sundays and Mondays off filming. There's no release date and nobody else is fine for the movie. Goldberg did a WWE.com interview where he said Dennis Haskins, who played Mr. Belding and Saved by the Bell, may co-star as a heel pastor. Dave remembers interviews where Roth talked about trying to fit in wrestling with doing a movie and said he would never put himself through anything like that again. Oh, yeah, Santa Slay. Uh, real quick, Dennis Haskins, uh, Chattanooga, Tennessee guy. Yeah. In That's fact, right. he also... Uh, Went to my alma mater, uh, UTC, UT Chattanooga. There you go. And Papa Hale's alma mater as well, yes. Yeah. So, let's see. How, how, low, how low is Papa Hale's? Uh, my dad is 69 years old. Well, Dennis Haskins, is, Dennis Haskins is 70, so they may they may have crossed paths and even know it. That's, that's very possible. Very possible. I, I need a... Uh, web series about Dennis Haskins, Papa Hales, and Pez Watley as like <laughs> college students out on the town together. Oh my god! Just, yeah, imagine that. Good lord! All right. Um, the girl with the pit. This is torch. Growing a pain in her hope of some WWE mid card is that some of the usual main eventers are less than, of an interest in the company once WrestleMania twenty passes. These wrestlers believe most of the top wrestlers are jockeying for WrestleMania position because they believe it'll be such a massive payoff. That's square guard, brother. Yeah. And then, of course, 18 years later, I'm sure the mid-cards are still asking the same question. 
Yeah. And to close out, more and more people, it's torch again, more people continue to say the morale on SmackDown wrestlers is way down. It's frustrating for us, says one wrestler, and it's trickling down to the agents. Their hands are tied, but what these kids who Vince hired to be the main writers who have so little history in the business tell them to do and how to put matches. There's some ridiculous stuff going on here by people who don't know what they're talking about. Paul Heyman returns to the show has given some people hope that things will get better again. Says he'll fight for what he thinks is right, and he actually knows the wrestling business. That was a quote. Fred say Heyman will fight for what he believes is right and about worrying about repercussions because he's reached a point in his life that he can walk away from wrestling and be content with his private family life fulfilling him. He There's has a pe- reached a point in his life. Where- <laughs> <laughs> Hold on, I'm not done yet. There is a piece to him that I've never seen before, but he's still the same old Paul in other ways, says one SmackDown wrestler. Paul Heyman continues to tell the wrestler he's not involved in the creative process, of course. He's also been urging a child who approached him to submit five ideas in writing to not only the creative department, but also Vincent Mann and Jim Ross each week. Heyman joked in a WWE.com interview that he's lost weight while he was away because of having so much sex with his girlfriend. In a more serious moment, he said he benefited from being able to control his diet while at home rather than on the road. If you give me five ideas, I will hand-deliver them to Vince McMahon, <laughs> Jim Ross, Kevin Sullivan, and Terry Taylor. I lost all this weight because I've been fucking. <laughs> or, 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 or is the famous story uh, uh, that my dad always tells of the uh, Asbury Park show in the summer of '97, uh, where, where my dad was trying to find uh, a, a place to pee, pee in the ocean, and 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 uh, Heyman goes, "Just go take a piss in the ocean, why don't you? Just, just go right over there and, and take a piss in the ocean." <laughs> as 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 uh, Perry Saturn with his recent broken leg is, you know, mean mugging everybody on the beach. <laughs> but good lord! And to close out with a Paul Heyman story. So there you go. Yeah. Uh, uh, all right. Uh, yeah, Miss Friends. All right. Well, that was a long section. It could. Mean, this the- could end up being a two-file episode. We really don't know. I hope not, but we'll see. I have to count. But anyway, Devin, we thank you as always for joining us. So go ahead and plug away, my man. Yeah. So uh, lately, I've been uh, uh, doing uh, doing some uh, some podcast uh, outside of here on a place called LateNightGrin.com uh, slash Patreon uh, with uh, Joe Holbert, Robert O'Neill, and Matt Confirmed Shoot, where we. Uh, uh, cover uh, Rampage, and this takes place every Friday night uh, live after Rampage at 11.05 p.m. Eastern Time on latenightgrand.com slash Patreon. And uh, it's a $1 uh, a month. That's all you have to give. Uh, and uh, we also do all sorts of watch-alongs. Uh, we've been doing a lot of Joshi watch-alongs uh, from the early 90s. We uh, occasionally do some Wednesday night uh, episodes. If we if we really like Dynamite, there's always a chance we could do a full gear post show. Uh, and and usually all this stuff takes place about five ten minutes after the show goes off the air. Uh, and again, that is at latenightgrin.com/slash/patreon. All right. Well, there you go. So we appreciate you being back on with us. And next week we got a show that you'll love. It's a Patreon request show by William Lanham. And we're going to go back to 2001. 
where, yes, we will have another Survivor Series to talk about. But before then, we'll have, a, well, we'll have news on the XWF and what's going on there. We missed the TV tapings by a few days, but we'll have news on uh, what's going on after the tapings. We got an interesting note about the future of wrestling on AOL Time Warner. So we'll talk about that. We got independent wrestling results, including the interesting story out of Jersey Championship Wrestling. We got IWA Puerto Rico running the Bruiser Brody Memorial Tour. We got uh, Rey Mysterio Jr. in in Mexico, in Arena Mexico, in fact. And as this is CMLL's tearing it up in this era. Plus, uh, Greta de Titanes, AAA show. So we'll have that. We got all kinds of uh, Japanese news, including Bix. A Joshi match I cannot wait to talk about with you. So we'll talk about that. Uh, is Miss Genki involved? No, she's not actually. Is but it we Kim have Neo, that at least. No, it's not actually. <laughs> but we have but we have an FMW pay review. We have um, news of Shin Yashimoto coming to the United States. Vader losing some weight and looking better in Noah. Uh, New Japan running the G1 Junior Tag League. Um, all Japan, uh, some interesting news there. But, of course, World Wrestling Federation is the bell cow of this show. A whopping 23-plus pages. Longer than the pages for this show. So there will not be a guest next week. So anyway. Uh, quick quick correction. I, 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 uh, I uh, did, the, uh, did the reverse on the Patreon. It is uh, patreon.com slash late night grin. There you go. There, there we go. Yep. There you go. So anyway, we got uh, all kinds of stuff, including uh, financial numbers from 2001. And, of course, we're deeper on this one because this is post-WCW, post-XFL. So we'll look at that. We have uh, the end of the, the WCW angle of Survivor Series and what that means to some talent. We got SmackDown. We got Raw after Survivor Series where things are looking up, according to Dave Meltzer and Brian Alvarez for WF. It, their tune changed a week later. Uh, we have uh, WS issues with DirecTV and, of course, Survivor Series. But a non-WF story, and also really, Ric Flair makes his uh, return to WF in our week, but a non-WF story that involves WF in a way, as we have Hart family drama to talk about, as Martha Hart and Diana Hart are going to war with each other next week on Between the Sheets. Should be something. All right, Devin, we thank you again, like I said, for being on with us. We'll have you back on in the future. Big stick you as always. You're the Rock of the Show. This is Chris says so long from the Peach State of Georgia.
Hello, everyone, and welcome to Between the Sheets Patreon Special Edition number 61. I'm your host, Chris Zona, joined as always by my co-host, David Bix and Span. And Bix, it's time to go back 25 years and talk about the NWO again in part two of our uh, series on uh, the birth of the end of New World Order. Yep. And thankfully it didn't end up being too long to fit it in through our intended endpoint. So everything worked out. This is part two of two. And then next month, I guess we'll explain that at the end of the show. Yes. Yes, we will. Well, let's venture to September now. Week of September 2nd. Torch, September 7th. Observer, September 9th. Blair, it's September 11th. Cover story. Giant joins NWO. Bulldog almost joins WCW. Secret plans for Bulldog joining NWO fell through. Waltman's delayed, delayed due to unresolved release by Way Keller, Torch editor. Some promoters book meticulously and with confidence, planning each progression of ongoing storylines months ahead. And others wing it. WCW is definitely winging it. Or at least they wing it when their best laid plans fall through. The Giant joined the New World Order on Monday, and he and WCW Bookers had all the 48 hours to ponder how he would turn. The subject of him joining the NWO had been discussed in the past or discounted. After all, the NWO needs someone to wrestle. A week earlier, WCW had at least two other ideas in mind, one of which would have been a major bombshell, but fell through. Sean Waltman had been scheduled to join WCW as an employee, and the NWO storyline in them for a number of weeks. The plans for him to find debut on September 2nd f- fell through when legal matters weren't settled yet. In fact, he had neither seen his release to WWF nor worked out the final details of WCW in time to debut on Monday. In addition to Waltman de- Waltman's debut, WCW had a major surprise plan. The British Bulldog Dave Boy Smith totally planned to join WCW without getting, giving notice to WWF. On the one-year anniversary of Nitro's debut, Air Bischoff was going to unveil a jump of the same caliber as Lex Luger's a year earlier. Bulldog had not signed a contract to WWF, although he had a verbal agreement to stay and his lawyer signed with an attempt to sign an agreement. For the last two months, Bulldog had been receiving contracts from WS front office, but he kept sending them back with minor changes. While it was aggravating for WF and McMahon, McMahon didn't suspect Bulldog was playing a similar game as Luger. Bulldog hadn't let any, or at least not many, fellow WF wrestlers seen on his plans, but did make a joke out of how he was messing with Vince by sending the contracts back. Fellow wrestlers thought Bulldog was just ribbing Vince in return from Vince making a few promises. It was more than just that. Last week, Bulldog's original WF contract expired, and he still hadn't signed a new deal. Vincent found out about Bulldog's secret plan, and sources say that man blew his top and immediately called the Bulldog and demanded he put on paper what he had already agreed to, a five-year deal for $250,000 per year. Bulldog agreed with McMahon and flew to Stanford, Connecticut on Thursday and inked the five-year contract with a promise from McMahon that he won't be punished for his alternative scheme, but will instead get a major push, including a tag title run this year. McMahon, though, probably didn't put that promise in writing, although it is not to his advantage to bury Bulldog now that he has him under a five-year guarantee. Now to the Observer. The original offer made a Davey months back was a three-year deal of $400,000 per year, and the latest offer had to be at least that figure, if not higher. When Smith gave notice to WF three months back after his messed-up pay-per-view title match with Shawn Michaels, which wasn't that, that he necessarily was leaving, but to avoid his contract rolling over, WC officials secretly believed he was coming in. However, several weeks later, Smith's attorney sent WCW a letter saying that the two sides weren't able to come to terms. And Smith had also moved from Tampa back to Calgary, which most assumed meant he was no longer concerned going to WCW since Tampa would be perfect city to live given where most of WCW events are scheduled. At this point, Smith agreed to stay with WF with the lower money figure guaranteed reportedly not being the crux of negotiating problems 
and it was more that he was unhappy about not being told his future programs ahead of time and not getting what he thought was the push he was promised into the title picture. In particular, Smith was reported to having what most considered the two to three best ever matches over the past nine months. Title match against Brett and Hershey and Shauna Milwaukee. In either case, was he programmed for rematch at the house shows and instead used at the house shows lower and more of a stepping stone role. The other side of the coin is that even though he had two excellent title matches, neither drew huge buy rates, and Davey was thought of a guy as of as a guy who can be a great worker when he's motivated, but not a great draw on top as a title challenger. Titan and Davey have been going back and forth over the past few weeks regarding actually signing the contract when negotiations with WC picked up. As WCW informed Davey they had no problem flying him in for Calgary, as they do routinely with other regulars who live in foreign countries. With any verbal deal Davey may have made with WCW is unknown, but when WCW shot the angle August 26th, where Teddy Biasi thought to introduce a number four and number five, at that point, WCW was apparently believing Smith was to be number four. When Vince got wind, which was believed to be on August 28th, when D- that Davey was on the verge of making the deal with WCW, he made a phone call to Davey, along with WF attorney Jeremy Devitt, and finally reached him the next day and said they'd been furious. The bone of contention was that Davey had apparently made a verbal agreement to continue with WF and signed a five-year contract, even though he had not signed, actually signed the deal. And, um, and Smith's attorney had already signed a preliminary entering a contract several weeks ago. The latter basically was that two sides agreed that Davey was staying, but all terms hadn't been agreed to, so he wouldn't have been phased out on television, while details and negotiations were still ongoing. Where the legal threats in regard to what we see as going back on both verbal and written agreement were made, as Titan was under belief that had written an agreement with Davey and is obviously going to enforce it, are not clear. By the end of the day, both sides had agreed the terms and Smith signed a deal. Now about the way. WCW tried once again to get Waltman's deal done, but there just wasn't time to work through all the lawyers. Therefore, WCW had to come up with a new plan. Or whether they could write Wolf a few times really in the NWO storyline, WCW didn't want to renege on their promise, more specifically Teddy DiBiase's promise of revealing the fifth man. That led to some brainstorming concerning all the obvious choices, Luger, Sting, and some not-so-obvious possibilities. The decision obviously turned out to be turning into Giant against WCW. Giant beat Brad Armstrong in a singles match on Nitro. Jimmy Hart was in his corner in a match. Led him to show four horse and battle Dungeon of Doom. Kevin Sullivan, Big Bubba, Barbarian, and Ming. Late in the match, Hall, Nash, and Hogan interfered, jumping all eight men. Sting and Luger out of the picture, having stolen a police car to chase Ted DiBiase's limousine around town. Now that for Andy Savage and the Giant, as the two WCW big boys left make the save. Savage ran to the ring, but was soon overwhelmed by the fresh NWO threesome. Giant then made his way to the ring. Fans who popped big for his ring entrance and chokeslam finished earlier the show gave him another babyface pop. When he got to the ring, though, he chokeslam Barbarian. As Eric Bischoff screamed no for the announce move, Giant and Nash hugged. Giant explained afterward, or tried to, since Hogan interrupted him, that he was lured to the NWF to meeting with DiBiase. He was so impressed with DiBiase's 25,000-foot square foot mansion that DiBiase and DiBiase's lifestyle that he won't be part of that. Nitro didn't went off the air before there was any t- time for any follow-up. All right, let's talk about Davey first. Um, boy, if Vince didn't find out, that would have been something. Yeah, but I also, reading this, don't necessarily get the impression he ever had real intentions of going to WCW. Possibly, yeah. I mean, it doesn't sound like he was, you know, really concrete in it, No. It seems like he was using it entirely for leverage and only started to consider it once they told him they'd be happy to fly him in from Calgary every week. Yeah, and if that's the case, then why do you want to turn that down? Yeah. Um, I get that they apparently thought they had two different options for the fifth man, and neither went through. 
But yeah, you could have gone with Luger or DDP if you really had to. You had to deliver something. You absolutely did. And for a main event angle, it probably would have had to been Luger, but we don't get the Sting angle, but in the moment... Now, granted, they probably already have the Sting angle planned to some degree. I don't know. I can see... Like, I see the argument of not using Luger because he's more important to the Sting angle if they've already started planning the Sting angle. And I can see why DDP wouldn't work in this angle. But the Giant was still a terrible idea. Yeah. But I'm just not sure what the exact right answer is. Luger's probably the best one, but it affects so much other stuff. But DDP wouldn't be weighty enough to put in this one, to have him join the NWO here, after you did the DiBiase thing the previous... Well, it does because of the benefactor thing. That's what makes it work. But it's still it's a letdown though, at this point because he's not he's not that guy yet. No. <sighs> if nothing else, they were between a rock and a hard place, and it wasn't entirely their fault. No, it wasn't. But mm. that said, the they fans... should not have shot the angle until they had what they needed on paper for either Wallen or Smith. Yes, and and a giant. I mean, yeah, like I said, I guess it says here. I mean. The fans got were into him as in this new character version of himself. You know, he still is with the Dungeon of Doom, basically. You know, I mean, he's still he's become a babyface because of he's feeding with the NWO. So, yeah, but yeah, it sucks that the giant, uh, the giant turn because there there was stuff that could have been done. And then and then here's the thing, though, Bix, they turned him back just a few mo- three months later. After turning him three weeks after Hogwild, yes. That's the thing. It turned, they turned him back quickly. You know? They that, turned him that, here because they needed a turn on or surprise on this night. Yeah, and then they turned him back because they needed somebody to be, in WC, be a WCW guy. That tells you how, many, how much everything is being winged. And probably also because they realized where the Sting thing was going, because I gotta think he was... We'll talk more, I think, later. I think I have it in here about how his hiatus was about using up his maximum dates. But that's going to expire at some point. I'd have to check when his calendar year started. I mean, excuse me, his contract year started. But I got to think it's by December. They know they're going with Sting as a long-term thing where he's not wrestling. And that's why they turned Giant back. Yeah, but still... Now, all of you know. that said, the best work that Paul White does during this period is once he turns babyface, for the most part. Yeah. The, yeah. The Luger stuff that leads into the turn is also very good. But they were in a bad spot. The, their fault was shooting the DiBiase angle before they had anything in writing from Davey. Or Just get Jeff Jarrett to show up. He ain't got to wrestle. Just get Jeff Jarrett to show up. Also, after the DiBiase angle, you can have Jarrett in the crowd. Yeah. And that's probably playing with too much fire before his release, but... There's stuff you could have done. They had other options, though. All right. Well, back to the torch. Throughout the first hour of Nitro, Larry's Biscuit repeated that while the NWO have leaders in DiBiase and Hogan, WCM has them anyone who be considered a coach of their side. That might suggest a well-led Bret Hart. 
is waiting in the wings, ready to join Team WCW, and even the odds are at Giants on a covert mission on WCW's behalf. But Ashes Abisco was laying groundwork for a Dusty Rose proposed idea that he become the honorary coach of WCW's wrestlers against NWO. Because the NWO original is going to consist of just Scott Hall, Kevin Nash, Sean Waltman, and Jeff Jarrett, but now includes Hulk Hogan and the Giant, WCW is considering not having Jarrett join the NWO after all. Although it appears that Waltman's a lot because of his friendship out of the ring with fellow clip members Hall and Nash. It does appear the idea that Nancy Boys joining the NWO is back on the back is on the back burner. But given WCW's pattern declining, deciding on major shifts in storylines just hours before they go in the air, nothing can be said 100%. And while it's not by design, that's the way WCW likes it. And look, Jeff would not have been a good fit in the NWO. I don't know. At the, well, look at some people they had in NWO. No, but I mean, if he's a continuation of Double J, I don't think he. Well, he would. He wouldn't. He wouldn't have been. I don't think he would have been. You think they tried to make him at least when this is the plan into like 1997 WWF return Jeff Jarrett or something like that? I don't think he would have been in the double J type gear persona. No. Okay. He's just Jeff Jarrett. And maybe, th- maybe this would be the chance that he would have a different hairstyle. Yeah. So I don't know. Also something to note too, other than Hogan until this point where giant turns, everyone that's either joined or is rumored to join the NWO is someone who left WWF in that calendar year in mm-hmm. 1996. Hall, Nash, Waltman, DiBiase, Jarrett. Yeah. Or was going to leave Davey. Yeah. You know, Mabel. Yeah. If you want to go way back. Yeah, that's also why Luger would have worked because it's only September 95. It's right before all that. Mm-hmm. And the timing of everything. So, and how about him? Tur- and how about him turning heel on the anniversary of his debut? On the first anniversary Nitro, that would have been the best part. Yeah. To hear this entire show, support between the sheets on Patreon for just five dollars per month. Go to patreon.com/slash/between-the-sheets.